96 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests In October, 1973, Autorite vacated the building which it had been renting for $350 per month and Spiller begun to use the entire building as a warehouse. On November 15, 1973, Makareth's attorney sent a letter to Spiller demanding that he either vacate one half of the building or pay rent. Spiller did not respond to the letter, vacate the premises, or pay rent, therefore, Makareth brought this counterclaim to collect the rental she claimed Spiller owed her. Since there is no real dispute concerning the essential facts in this case, we will limit our review to the trial judge's application of the law to the facts. On the question of Spiller's liability for rent, we start with the general rule that in absence of an agreement to pay rent or an ouster of a co-tenant, a co-tenant in possession is not liable to his co-tenants for the value of his use and occupation of the property. Since there was no agreement to pay rent, there must be evidence which establishes an ouster before Spiller is required to pay rent to Mac Arith. The difficulty in this determination lies in the definition of the word ouster. Ouster is a conclusory word which is used loosely in co-tenancy cases to describe two distinct fact situations. The two fact situations are, 1, the beginning of the running of the statute of limitations for adverse possession and, 2, the liability of an occupying co-tenant for rent to other co-tenants. Although the cases do not acknowledge a distinction between the two uses of ouster, it is clear that the two fact situations require different elements of proof to support a conclusion of ouster. The Alabama cases involving adverse possession require a finding that the POS sessing CO tenant asserted complete ownership to the land to support a conclusion of ouster. The finding of assertion of ownership may be established in several ways. Some cases find an assertion of complete ownership from a composite of activities such as renting part of the land without accounting, hunting the land, cutting timber, assessing and paying taxes and generally treating the land as if it were owned in fee for the statutory period. Other cases find the assertion of complete ownership from more overt activities such as a sale of the property under a deed purporting to convey the entire fee. But whatever factual elements are present, the essence of the finding of an ouster in the adverse possession cases is a claim of absolute ownership and a denial of the co-tenancy relationship by the occupying co-tenant. In the Alabama cases which adjudicate the occupying co-tenant's liability for rent, a claim of absolute ownership has not been an essential element. The normal facts situation which will render an occupying co-tenant liable to out-of-possession co-tenants is one in which the occupying co-tenant refuses a demand of the other co-tenants to be allowed into use and enjoyment of the land, regardless of a claim of absolute ownership. The instant case involves a co-tenant's liability for rent. Indeed. The adverse posse's Zion rule is precluded in this case by Spiller's acknowledgement of the co-tenancy relationship as evidenced by filing the bill for partition. We can affirm the trial court if the record reveals some evidence that Macareth actually sought to occupy the building but was prevented from moving in by Spiller. To prove ouster, Macareth's attorney relies upon the letter of November 15, 1973 as a sufficient demand and refusal to establish Spiller's liability for rent. This letter, however, did not demand equal use and enjoyment of the premises, rather, it demanded only that Spiller either vacate half of the building or pay rent. The question of whether a demand to vacate or pay rent is sufficient to establish an occupying co-tenant's liability for rent has not been addressed in Alabama, however, it has been addressed by courts in other jurisdictions.
In jurisdictions which adhere to the majority in Alabama rule of non-liability for mere occupancy, several cases have held that the occupying co-tenant is not liable for rent notwithstanding a demand to vacate or pay rent. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3 Actions among CO owners 97 There is a minority view which establishes liability for rents on a continued occupancy after a demand to vacate or pay rent. We believe that the majority view on this case is consistent with Alabama's approach to the law of occupancy by co-tenants. As one of the early Alabama cases on the subject explains, tenants in common are seized per my et per tout. Each has an equal right to OC coupe and unless the one in actual possession denies to the other the right to enter, or agrees to pay rent, nothing can be claimed for such occupation. Newbold v. Smart, 67 a 326, 1980, Thus, before an occupying co-tenant can be liable for rent in Alabama, he must have denied his co-tenants the right to enter. It is axiomatic that there can be no denial of the right to enter unless there is a demand or an attempt to enter. Simply requesting the OC coupeing co-tenant to vacate is not sufficient because the occupying co-tenant holds title to the whole and may rightfully occupy the whole unless the other co-tenants assert their POS cessory rights. Besides the November 15th letter, Macarretha's only attempt to prove ouster is a showing that Spiller put locks on the building. However, there is no evidence that Spiller was attempting to do anything other than protect the merchandise he had stored in the building. Spiller testified that when Otto Wright moved out they removed the locks from the building. Since Spiller began to store his merchandise in the building thereafter, he had to acquire new locks to secure it. There is no evidence that either Mac Arith or any of the other co-tenants ever requested keys to the locks or were ever prevented from entering the building because of the locks. There is no evidence that Spiller intended to exclude his co-tenants by use of the locks. Again, we emphasize that as long as Spiller did not deny access to his co-tenants, any activity of possession and occupancy of the building was consistent with his rights of ownership. Thus, the fact that Spiller placed locks on the building, without evidence that he intended to exclude the other co-tenants, is insufficient to establish his liability to pay rent. After reviewing all of the testimony and evidence presented at trial, we are unable to find any evidence which supports a legal conclusion of ouster. We are, therefore, compelled to reverse the trial court's judgment awarding MacArith $2,100 rental. For allocating costs among CO owners the common law categorized the costs borne by CO owners into three categories, recurring costs, costs for necessary repairs, and improvement costs. The allocation rules differed depending on the type of costs. With respect to recurring costs, such as mortgage and utility payments, each of the CO owners is required to contribute to the cost in a share proportionate to their own airship interests. At common law, this rule prevailed even when a single CO owner had exclusive possession of the property. Under modern law, in some jurisdictions, a CO owner who is not in possession may not be obligated to contribute to recurring costs. With respect to necessary repairs, such as fixing a leaky roof, a CO owner who pays for the repair is not legally entitled to contribution from his CO owners. If the CO owner who paid the cost is sued for an accounting, however, he can set off from the other CO owner's shares of the revenue generated by the property. Or, in an ouster action seeking to recover the reasonable rental value, 
the CEO owner can set off from other CEO owners pro portionate shares of the cost of necessary repairs. The same approach applies if the property is sold voluntarily or if a CEO owner files a partition action. If one CEO owner pays for necessary repairs, the other CEO owner's proportionate share of those costs are taken into Semeraro, Introduction to Property 98 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests Account in a Partition in Kind, or set off from their share of a partition by sale or voluntary sale. With respect to improvements, a CEO owner who improves the property, for example by adding a garage, is entitled to neither a contribution nor a set-off of the costs of the improvement in an accounting, ouster, or partition action. The CO tenant who funded the improvement, however, would be entitled to the incremental value added if it can be reasonably identified at the time of sale or rental. If the property is sold, the increase in price attributable to the improvement would be allocated to the CO owner who improved the property before the purchase price is divided based on ownership shares. In a partition in kind, the portion of the property that includes the improvement would be allocated to the CO tenant who funded the improvement. Or, if such a division is not feasible, the non-improving owners might be required to pay the improver for the added value, a payment known as ALTI. If the property is rented, the improving CO owner would be entitled to extra rent made possible by the improvement. In most jurisdictions, the improver can recover the added value even if it exceeds the cost of the improvement. Some jurisdictions, however, cap the recoverable extra value at the amount that the improving CO owner paid for the improvements. And, if the so-called improvements have the effect of lowering the value of the property, then the CO owner who funded the improvement would be forced to take a reduced share upon sale of the property to account for the lost value. In the following case, one joint tenant sued to cancel leases issued by another joint tenant without her consent. In resolving this issue, the court discusses many of the doctrines relevant to CO ownership. As you read the case, think about how the plaintiff could have attained her goals more effectively by using the causes of action discussed above instead of seeking to cancel the leases entered by her joint tenant. Consider both those causes of action discussed by the court and any others discussed above. In addition, Consider how one joint tenant's expenditure of costs to restore the property might be allocated in an accounting or partition action. Swartzbaw v. Sampson 11 Cal.App.2D 451, 1936, Marks, Justice, this is an action to cancel two leases executed by John Josiah Swartzbaugh, as lessor, to Sam A. Sampson, as lessee, of two adjoining parcels of land in Orange County. A motion for non-suit was granted at the close of plaintiff's case, and this appeal followed. Defendant Swartzbaugh and plaintiff are husband and wife. They owned, as joint tenants with the right of survivorship, 60 acres of land in Orange County planted to bearing walnuts. In December, 1933, defendant Sampson started negotiations with plaintiff and her husband for the leasing of a small fraction of this land fronting on Highway 101 for a site for a boxing pavilion. Plaintiff at all times objected to making the lease, and it is thoroughly established that Sampson knew she would not join in any lease to him. Image Source, Stock Exchange, www.sxc.hu Semeraro, Introduction to Property 4 Allocating costs 99 The negotiations resulted in the execution of an option for a lease, dated January 5, 1934, 
signed by Schwarzbach and Sampson. The lease, dated February 2, 1934, was executed by the same parties. A second lease of property adjoining the site of the boxing pavilion was signed by Schwarzbach and Sampson. This was also dated February 2, 1934, but probably was signed after that date. Plaintiff's name does not appear in any of the three documents, and Sampson was advised that she would not sign any of them. The walnut trees were removed from the leased premises. Sampson went into POS session, erected his boxing pavilion, and placed other improvements on the property. Plaintiff was injured in February, 1934, and was confined to her bed for some time. This action was started on June 20, 1934. Up to the time of the trial plaintiff had received no part of the rental of the leased property. Sampson was in possession of all of it under the leases to the exclusion of plaintiff. There is but one question to be decided in this case which may be stated as follows. Can one joint tenant who has not joined in the leases executed by her co-tenant and another maintain an action to cancel the leases where the lessee is in exclusive possession of the leased property? This question does not seem to have been decided in California, and there is not an entire uniformity of decision in other jurisdictions. In decisions on analogous questions where courts reached like conclusions, they did not always use the same course of reasoning in reaching them. It seems necessary, therefore that we consider briefly the nature of the estate in joint tenancy and the rights of the joint tenants in it. T. He distinguishing incident of a joint tenancy is a right of survivorship. For a proper understanding of some of the cases we will cite, it should be borne in mind that, at the common law, estates in joint tenancy were favored over those in com Monday, and that to create a tenancy in common it was necessary to add restrictive and explanatory words so as to expressly limit the estate to the grantees to hold as tenants in common and not as joint tenants, to Thompson on real property, 926, and that this rule has been abrogated by statute in California and many other states. C 683, 686, Civ Code. An estate in joint tenancy can be severed by destroying one or more of the Nassis Sari unities, either by operation of law, by death, by voluntary or certain involuntary acts of the joint tenants, or by certain acts or omissions of one joint tenant without the consent of the other. It seems to be the rule in England that a lease by one joint tenant for a term of years will affect a severance, at least during the term of the lease. We have found no case in the United States where this rule has been applied. From the reasoning used and conclusions reached in many of the American cases its adoption in this country seems doubtful. One of the essential unities of a joint tenancy is that of possession. Each tenant owns an equal interest in all of the fee, and each has an equal right to possession of the whole. Possession by one is possession by all. Ordinarily, one joint tenant out of possession cannot recover exclusive possession of the joint property from his co-tenant. He can only recover the right to be let into joint possession of the property with his co-tenant. He cannot eject his co-tenant in possession. Ordinarily one joint tenant cannot maintain an action against his co-tenant for rent for occupancy of the property or for profits derived from his own labor. He may, however, compel the tenant in possession to account for rents collected from third parties. The case of Stark v. Barrett, 15 calories 361, discusses the rights of a grantee of one co-tenant of a specific parcel of property.
It is there said, the case has been argued as though the question presented was to be determined by the rules of the common law, and in that view we have examined it. For Semeraro, Introduction to Property 100 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests Its Determination, Considered by the Common Law, It is immaterial whether the grantees took the land embraced in their grant as joint tenants or as tenants in common. During the lives of the tenants, the rules regulating the transfer of their interest are substantially the same, whether they hold in joint tenancy or in common Monday. Neither a joint tenant nor a tenant in common can do any act to the prejudice of his co-tenants in their estate. This is the settled law, and hence a conveyance by one tenant of a parcel of a general tract, owned by several, is inoperative to impair any of the rights of his co-tenants. The conveyance must be subject to the ultimate determination of their rights, and upon obvious grounds. One tenant cannot appropriate to himself any particular parcel of the general tract, as, upon a partition, which may be claimed by the co-tenants at any time the parcel may be entirely set apart in severalty to a co-tenant. He cannot defeat this possible result whilst retaining his interest, nor can he defeat it by the transfer of his interest. He cannot, of course, invest his grantee with rights greater than he possesses. The grantee must take, therefore, subject to the contingency of the loss of the premises, if, upon the partition of the general tract, they should not be allotted to the grantor. Subject to this contingency, the conveyance is valid, and passes the interest of the grantor. And, this we consider the result of the several cases cited by the counsel of the appellants. They go to the extent that the conveyance can have no legal effect to the prejudice of the co-tenant, not that it is absolutely void, that it is ineffectual against the assertion of his interest in a suit for partition of the general tract, but is good against all others. Until such partition, the grantee will be entitled to the use and possession as co-tenant, in the parcel conveyed, with the other owners. In Robinette v. Preston's heirs, the precise question under consideration was passed upon by the Court of Appeals of Virginia. The defendant in that case claimed under a grant from the state of North Carolina, and traced his title through a conveyance from one of the grantees of a parcel, described by meets and bounds, of the premises granted. To the introduction of the conveyance the demandants objected, on the ground that as no partition of the grant had been made by the grantees, it was not competent for one of them, a joint tenant of the granted land, to convey by meets and bounds such portion as he pleased, without the consent of his co-tenant, and in prejudice of his rights, and that such conveyance was wholly void. The circuit court sustained the objection, and excluded the conveyance, and judgment passed for the demandants but the appellate court held the ruling erroneous and reversed the judgment. In its opinion, after referring to the cases in Massachusetts, and stating that in Varnum v. Abbott etal, it was held that a similar deed was not absolutely void, the court said, with us there are still stronger reasons, if any were required, for holding such deeds not to be void. All grants are to be most strongly construed against the grantor, and by our statute all alienations purporting to pass or assure a greater right or estate than the grantor may lawfully pass or assure, shall operate as alienations of so much of the right and estate as the grantor might lawfully convey. Under the COV enance of such a deed as this, though it might be ineffectual to pass the particular tract as against the co-tenant, yet as against the grantor and strangers it would be effectual to pass the interest of the grantor in the tract. 
possession under it would support a release from the co-tenant, and if the part conveyed were assigned to the alienee on partition, the title would be absolute at law. The deed being good against the grantor, the entry of the tenant under it would be lawful, and though it might be inoperative, so far as the rights of the co-tenant were thereby prejudiced, yet as it would invest the grantee with the estate of the grantor, so far as he semeraro, introduction to property for allocating costs 101 could lawfully convey, the grantee would be tenant in common with the co-tenant of his grantor, to the extent of the interest conveyed. His possession and season would be the possession and season of both, because such possession and season would not be adverse to the right of his companion, but in support of their com Monday title. It is a general rule that the act of one joint tenant without express or implied authority from or the consent of his co-tenant cannot bind or prejudicially affect the rights of the latter. In the application of the foregoing rule, the courts have imposed a limitation upon it which, in effect, is a qualification of its broad language. This perhaps is due to the nature of the estate which is universally held to be joint in enjoyment and several upon severance. This limitation arises in cases where one joint tenant in possession leases all of the joint property without the consent of his co-tenant and places the lessee in possession. It seems to be based upon the theory that the joint tenant in possession is entitled to the possession of the entire property and by his lease merely gives to his lessee a right he, the lessor, had been enjoying, puts the lessee in the enjoyment of a right of possession which he, the lessor, already had and by so doing does not prejudicially affect the rights of the co-tenant out of possession, it being conceded that the joint tenant not joining in the lease is not bound by its terms and that he can recover from the tenant of his co-tenant the reasonable value of the use and enjoyment of his share of the estate, if the tenant under the lease refuses him the right to enjoy his moiety of the estate. It has been held that each joint tenant during the existence of the joint estate has the right to convey, mortgage, or subject to a mechanic's lien an equal share of the joint property. It has also been held that one joint tenant in possession of personal property may pledge his interest in the property to another, that the pledgee's rights are valid to the extent of the pledger's interest, that each joint tenant has an equal right of possession and so the pledgee has the same right of possession that the pledger had, that the joint tenant out of possession can maintain no action against the pledgee that he could not maintain against the pledger. It was held in Johnson v. Norse, 258 Massachusetts 417, and Cram v. Cram, 262 Massachusetts 509, that one joint tenant cannot maintain trover i.e., the common law name for an action to recover the value of property improperly taken against another except where the joint tenant in possession has completely ousted the other and deprived him of the benefit of the property and that mere refusal of possession is not such ouster. In 2 Thompson on real property, it is said, one joint tenant may make a lease of the joint property, but this will bind only his share of it. The same rule is thus stated in one landlord and tenant, Tiffany, 405, one of two or more joint tenants cannot, by making a lease of the whole, vest in the lessee more than his own share, since that is all to which he has an exclusive right. Such a lease is, however, valid as to his share. The foregoing authorities support the conclusion that a lease to all of the joint property by one joint tenant is not a nullity but is a valid and supportable contract in so far as the interest of the lessor in the joint property is concerned. While the qualities of estates of joint tenancy and a tenancy in common differ, the rights of possession are quite similar. 
This being so, decisions on similar questions to the one we are considering, where estates in common are concerned, have considerable weight. In the case of Li Chuk v. Chuan Wochong and Co., 91 calories 593, the plaintiff, a tenant in common brought an action to oust defendant who was holding under a lease from another tenant in common. The Supreme Court reversed the judgment in favor of plaintiff and said, Semeraro, Introduction to Property 102 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests The uncontradicted evidence shows that the defendants were in possession of the property, with the consent of said Che Yun. All that the plaintiff was entitled to, therefore, was to be let into possession with the defendants to enjoy their moiety. One tenant in common may, by either lease or license, asterisk 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 confer upon another person the right to occupy and use the property of the CO tenancy as fully as such lessor or licensor himself might have used or occupied it if such lease or license had not been granted. If either CO tenant expels such licensee or lessee, he is guilty of a trespass. If the lessee has the exclusive possession of the premises, he is not liable to anyone but his lessor for the rent, unless the other CO tenants attempt to enter, and he resists or forbids their entry, or unless being in posse's Zion with them, he ousts or excludes some or all of them. Freem. CO 10. 253. There is no evidence tending to show that the defendants ever refused to allow the plaintiff to enjoy the use of the premises with them. W. Here one tenant leases the common property to a stranger to the title, the other tenants in common cannot cancel the lease or recover exclusive possession of the entire property. Tiffany, in One Real Property 684, says that the effect of a lease by one co-tenant is to give the lessee the right to share in the possession of the leased property for the term of the lease. This coincides with statements made in the case law that all a co-tenant out of possession is entitled to is to be let into possession with the lessee of his co-tenant to enjoy his moiety. As far as the evidence before us in this case is concerned, the foregoing authorities force the conclusion that the leases from Swartzbaugh to Sampson are not null and void but valid and existing contracts giving to Sampson the same right to the possession of the leased property that Swartzbaugh had. It follows they cannot be cancelled by plaintiff in this action. Plaintiff expresses the fear that, as one of the leases runs for five years, with an option for an additional five years, she may lose her interest in the leased premises by prescription i.e., prescription is a type of adverse possession which could lead to an owner losing rights in the property. See Chapter 8, Section I Infra. It is a general rule that a lessee in possession of real property under a lease cannot dispute his landlord's title nor can he hold adversely to him while holding under the lease. If, as held in numerous cases, the lessee of one co-tenant holds the possession of his lessor and that a co-tenant in Posse's Zion holds for the other co-tenant and not adversely, Sampson would have great difficulty in establishing any holding adverse to plaintiff without a complete and definite ouster. As a general rule, an adverse possessor must claim the property in fee, and a lessee holding under a lease cannot avail himself of the claim of adverse possession. There are certain exceptions to this rule which do not seem to be applicable to this case. There is no showing that plaintiff ever demanded that Sampson let her into possession of her moiety of the estate nor is there anything to indicate that he is holding adversely to her. Judgment Affirmed CO Ownership Short Essay Questions 1 Kate signed a deed, conveying Montrose Center, a partially leased shopping center, to Pat, Raleigh, 
and Ed as follows, I, Kate, convey Montrose Center to Pat, Raleigh and Samararo, Introduction to Property SA Questions 103 Ed as Joint Tenants Pat promptly opened a coffee house called the Empire Cafe in one of the vacant spaces in the shopping center. Empire Cafe turned out to be a huge success, and Raleigh demanded that Pat split his profits with Raleigh and Ed Ed demanded that Pat pay rent to Ed and Raleigh. Pat refused both demands and sold the Empire Cafe business to Smoot. In connection with the sale of the business, Pat leased the space to Smoot for $2,000 a month and agreed to sell his interest in Montrose Center to Smoot in two years. Raleigh and Ed demanded that Pat cancel the lease and the sale agreement with Smoot and pay them the rents Pat is receiving from Smoot. Pat consults you about the following concerns, 1, Raleigh's demand for a share in the profits, 2, Ed's demand for rent from Pat, 3, Raleigh and Ed's demand that Pat cancel the lease and the sale, and 4, Raleigh and Ed's demand for the rent that Smoot is paying to Pat. Analyze Pat's rights and liabilities in regard to Ed and Raleigh. 2. Peter signed a deed in 2005 that provided as follows, I, Peter, grant Puget Acre to Steve, Bob, Chris, Gary, and Trish as joint tenants with right of survivorship. In 2006, Steve sold his interest in Puget Acre to Lauren. In 2008, Bob signed a deed conveying his interest in Puget Acre from himself as a joint tenant to himself as a tenant in common. Bob also signed a will leaving his interest in Puget Acre to Amy. Shortly thereafter, Bob died. In 2010, Chris died. In 2011, Gary leased Puget Acre to Helen for five years without the consent of any of his CO tenants. In 2013, Gary died. From 2005 until after Gary's death in 2013, explain who owned what shares of Puget Acre. Explain what is the effect and the STA TUS of the lease. Three Bert and Sally, a married couple, were CO owners of lot number 16, which contained a small storefront, on Main Street. Because of depressed economic conditions in the town, the storefront remained vacant for several years. On February 1st, 2010, Bert, without Sally's permission, decided to open a bowling ball shop at the lot number 16 storefront. Sally hated the idea because of a bad experience she had at a bowling alley as a child. Bert and Sally's marriage was breaking up at this time so Sally decided not to interfere. On February 1, 2011, Bert and Sally were separated but still married. Sally told Bert that she wanted to use lot number 16 to open a snap-on tools store. Bert refused, saying that he had already agreed, without Sally's permission, to lease lot number 16 for one year to Tom, who had purchased Bert's bowling ball business and planned to continue to operate it at the lot number 16 storefront. As of March 1, 2011, Sally and Bert remained separated, but they were still married. Sally had not received any rental income as a result of Bert's lease of lot number 16 to Tom. On March 1, 2011, Sally purported to sell her interest in the property for $60,000 to the Downtown Redevelopment Corporation. On April 1, 2011, Sally and Bert were divorced. Advise Bert with respect to the claims that Sally or the Downtown Redevelopment Corporation may have against him and any defenses that Bert may have to those claims. Semeraro, 
Introduction to Property 104 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests Semeraro, Introduction to Property and Introduction to Property Law in the U.S. Copyright 2018 Stephen Semeraro Version 2.0 Please note, generally, omissions of substance are indicated with an ellipsis, but omissions of seditions or footnotes are not. For more detailed information, please see the book's front matter. Chapter 4 Landlord-Tenant Law In Chapter 2, leaseholds were discussed in the context of categorizing property in the system of present possessory estates and future interests. There, we learned how to classify grants involving a leasehold, e.g., to A for five years, provided he oversees the ranch. In this chapter, we return to leaseholds by considering the relationship between landlord and tenant. In contrast to the law of estates, over the past century, Landlord-tenant law has experienced significant developments and changes. This chapter provides an overview of the major concepts and doctrines that govern the landlord-tenant relationship, starting with the types of leases and then addressing the rights and duties of landlords and tenants. I. The four types of leases before considering the rights and duties of landlords and tenants, it is important to understand the different types of leases, leasehold estates. There are four different types of leases. 1. Term of years, 2. Periodic tenancy, 3. Tenancy at will, and 4. Tenancy at sufferance. A. The term of Y years lease A term of years lease, also known as a tenancy for years, lasts for a fixed, determined period of time. It is often a period of years. But a term of years lease can be for any length of time from one day to one month to one year to 100 years. The key factor that distinguishes a term of years lease is not the length of time but that it is a lease for a specific period, i.e. it has a fixed and predetermined end date. For example, in the context of estates, a term of years lease can be made defeasible e.g. to T for five years provided he does not become a lawyer but this would not change the fact that it is a term of years lease. No notice is required to terminate a term of years lease, because the end point is defined in the lease itself. That is, after all, what makes it a term of years lease? The term ends automatically on the date specified in the lease, and neither party needs to give no tice. Every jurisdiction has a statute of frauds typically providing that any lease that exceeds one year must be in writing, whereas a lease for less than one year may be made orally. An oral lease for two years thus violates the statute of frauds and is therefore unenforceable. As discussed below, typically, when an oral lease violates the statute of frauds, a periodic tenancy will arise by implication. B. Periodic tenancy A periodic tenancy is a tenancy that continues for succeeding fixed intervals of time until either the landlord or tenant gives proper notice of termination. That may sound like a mouthful, but periodic tenancies are readily familiar to anyone who has ever rented an apartment. To T from month to month or from year to year would both be periodic semeraro. Introduction to Property 106 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant Tenancies In each example, the tenancy would continue for succeeding fixed intervals of time until proper notice of termination is given. Unlike a term of years lease, which terminates without notice, written notice is required to terminate a periodic tenancy. In the absence of written notice, the lease period is automatically extended for the next period. The parties to a periodic tenancy may include a specific notice period in the lease provision.
In the absence of a provision to the contrary, however, the default rule requires that a party give notice that is at least equal to the length of the lease period itself. But if the tenancy is for a period longer than six months, e.g. year to year or every seven months, then only six months notice is required. For example, leases black acre to T from month to month. Lore T must give the other party at least one month's notice to terminate the lease. But if leases black acre to T from year to year, Lore T need only give each other six months notice to terminate the lease. One other important rule about terminating a periodic tenancy is that the periodic tenancy must end at the conclusion of a natural lease period. In other words, a party cannot terminate a periodic tenancy in the middle of the period. For example, Leas's Black Acre to T on January 1, 2012 for a month-to-month -month periodic tenancy. On April 15, 2012, T sends a valid written notice of termination to L. When will the lease end? Although only one month's notice is required, the lease will not end on May 15, 2012, but will end instead on May 31, 2012. This is because May 15, 2012 is in the middle of a lease period. As a result, the termination date for notice given on April 15, 2012 would be the conclusion of the next monthly lease period in this case, May 31, 2012. Note that this is the result if the notice is valid, i.e. it includes all of the information that the jurisdiction requires. If a notice is defective, it may not operate to terminate a periodic lease, even if it conveys the substance of the decision to terminate at the earliest possible opportunity. In some jurisdictions, for example, a notice that includes the wrong termination date is entirely ineffective. Periodic tenancy by implication A periodic tenancy is easy to spot when a lease specifies that it is month to month or year to year. However, a periodic tenancy can also arise by implication. There are three scenarios that can lead to an implied periodic tenancy. In these situations, a periodic tenancy arises by operation of law. These are, 1, first, a periodic tenancy arises where land is leased with no mention at all of the duration of the lease, but the lease provides for payment at set intervals. For example, lease is an apartment to T beginning January 1, 2012, and the lease is silent as to its duration. T pays rent to a very month. By implication, L has a month-to-month -month periodic tenancy in T's property. 2. Second, a periodic tenancy also arises where an oral lease is in violation of the statute of frauds. As noted above, any lease that exceeds one year must be in writing. When an oral lease violates the statute of frauds, a periodic tenancy will arise by implication once the landlord accepts payment from the tenant measured by the period for which payment was made. For example, Leas is an apartment beginning January 1, 2008, to T for five years without any written agreement. On January 1, 2008, T sends law check for $1,000 for one month's rent and accepts the check. What type of lease, if any, is there? The lease cannot be a five-year term of years lease because the agreement violates the statute of frauds. However, Land T surely have some type of landlord-tenant relationship since L has accepted T's payment. 
the law fills in the gap by finding that land T have a month-to-month -month periodic tenancy arising by implication. This is because L accepted T's payment for one month's rent. If T had paid L 12 months' rent, then land T would have a bi-monthly periodic tenancy by implication. Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Lease Types 107, 3, Finally, a periodic tenancy can arise by implication in the case of a holdover tenant. A holdover tenant is one who stays on the premises after the termination of the lease. For example, a tenant that has a one-year term of year's lease beginning January 1 who does not vacate the premises before January 1 of the following year. In this situation, the landlord has two options, one the landlord may evict the tenant, or two the landlord may elect to renew the existing lease for the period of the tenant's lease, but the renewal period generally may not exceed one year. If the landlord fails to exercise either of these options and instead accepts payment from the tenant for rent after the lease expired, then a periodic tenancy will be implied and measured by the period for which payment was made. The Crackhale case below provides an example of a holdover tenancy that led to an implied periodic lease. See Tenancy at Will A tenancy at Will is a tenancy that has no fixed period or specific duration, and where either party can terminate the tenancy at any time. This type of tenancy is increasingly rare in part because, as discussed above, if a lease is silent about the lease period then a periodic tenancy will arise by implication based on the payment of rent. Parties can still create a tenancy at will by using language that clearly indicates that intent e.g. to T for as long as T or LSO desires. In this case, there is no set time for the lease and either party can end the lease at any time. Modern statutes ordinarily require at least some notice prior to termination. D. Tenancy at sufferance, holdover tenants, A. Tenancy at sufferance is not a true lease. It arises when a tenant holds over, remaining in possession of the premises after the expiration of the lease, for example, a tenant who has a one-year, term of years lease beginning on January 1 but who does not vacate the premises before January 1 of the following year. In this situation, a landlord has two options, 1, seek to evict the tenant and recover damages, or, 2, hold the tenant to a new full term based on the term of the original lease, though many jurisdictions provide a one-year maximum for renewed leases in this circumstance. As discussed above, if the landlord fails to properly exercise these options and instead chooses to accept payment from the holdover tenant, a periodic tenancy can arise by implication. Copyright Stephen Semeraro Semeraro, Introduction to Property 108 Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant E. An Illustrative Case Crackhale and Pauls, Inc. v. Smith 295 So. 2D 275, Miss 1974, Rogers, Justice, This action originated in the Chancery Court of the 1st Judicial District of Hines County, Mississippi pursuant to a bill for specific performance of a lease contract filed by Crackhale and Pauls, Inc., appellant herein. The court awarded the complainants $1,750, $1,750, in back rent payment, and $760, $760, for damages to the leasehold premises, as well as costs incurred in the proceeding. From this judgment appellant files this appeal and appellee's cross-appeal. The testimony shows that on February 5, 1964, the appellant, 
Crackhale and Pauls, Inc., a Mississippi corporation, entered into a lease agreement with Appalese, John D. Smith, Jr. and Mrs. Gloria Smith, with appellant as lessor and Appalese as lessees. The lease was for a term of five, five, years commencing February 7, 1964, and expiring February 6, 1969, with rental in the amount of $1,250, $1,250, per month. Smith was informed near the end of his lease that the new building which he planned to occupy would not be complete until a month or two after his present lease expired. With this in mind, he arranged a meeting with his landlord, Craig Hale, in late December, 1968, or early January, 1969, for the purpose of negotiating an extension of the lease on a month-to-month -month basis. The outcome of this meeting is one of the focal points of this appeal and the party's stories sharply conflict. Craig Hale maintains that he told Smith that since he was trying to sell the property, he did not want to get involved in any month-to-month -month rental. Smith asserts that Craig Hale informed him that he was trying to sell the building, but that he could stay in it until it was sold or Smith's new building was ready. Smith's attorney drafted a 30-30 day extension, but Craig Hale refused to sign it saying, oh, go ahead. It's all right. Craig Hale denies that he was ever given the document to sign. The following is a chronological explanation of the events which led to the subsequent litigation. February 4, 1969 Smith sent a letter to Craig Hale confirming their oral agreement to extend the lease on a monthly basis. February 6, 1969 Craig Hale wrote Smith denying the existence of any oral agreement concerning extension of the lease and requesting that Smith quit and vacate the premises upon expiration of the term at midnight, February 6, 1969. The letter also advised Smith that he was subject to payment of double rent for any holdover. March 3, 1969 Smith paid rent for the period of February to March. The check was accepted and cashed by Craig Hale. April 6, 1969 Smith paid rent for the period of March to April, but the check was not accepted by Chechel, because it was for a final payment. April 7, 1969 Smith sent a telegram to Craig Hale stating that he was tendering the premises for purposes of lessor's inventory. The telegram confirmed a telephone conversation earlier that day in which Craig Hale refused to inventory the building. April 19, 1969 approximately three and one half, three one half, months after the expiration of the lease, Kretschel's attorney wrote Smith stating that since the lessee had held over beyond the normal term, the lessor was treating this as a renewal of the lease for a new term expiring February 6, 1974. April 24, 1969 Smith again tendered the check for the final month's occupancy and it was rejected by Craig Hale. April 29th, 1969 Kretschel's attorney wrote Smith again stating the lessor's intention to consider the lessee's holdover as a renewal of the terms of the lease. Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Lease Types 109 There was no further communication between the parties until a letter dated May 15, 1970, from Crackhale to Smith requesting that Smith pay the past due rent or vacate the premises. May 27th 1970 Smith's attorney tendered the keys to the premises to Craig Hale. Subsequently, this lawsuit was filed by Craig Hale to recover back rent and damages beyond ordinary wear and tear to the leasehold premises.
From the Chancellor's decision, appellant files the following assignment of error, 1. The lower court erred in holding that the appellees were not liable as holdover tenants for an additional term of 1, 1, year. The appellant, Crackhale and Pauls, Inc., contends that the appellees became holdover tenants for a new term under the contract at the election of the landlord appellant, and that appellees owe appellant the rent due each month up to the filing of suit, less the rent paid, and, in addition thereto, it is entitled to specific performance of the holdover contract. This argument is based upon the general rule expressed in 3 Thompson on Real Property 1024 at 65 to 66, 1959, wherein it is said, as a general rule, a tenancy from year to year is created by the tenants holding over after the expiration of a term for years and the continued payment of the yearly rent reserved. Asterisk 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 by remaining in possession of leased premises after the expiration of his lease, a tenant gives the landlord the option of treating him as a trespasser or as a tenant for another year. In support of this rule the appellant cites Tonkel, E.T.A.L.V. Wrightman, 163 Miss 216, 219, 1932, wherein it is said, it is firmly established that where, without a new contract, a tenant continues to occupy the property which he has held under an annual lease, he becomes liable as tenant for another year at the same rate and under the same terms. It is the duty of a tenant when his period of tenancy has expired to surrender the premises to his landlord or else to have procured a new contract and, if he fails to do either, the landlord may treat him as a trespasser or as a tenant under the previous terms, according to the option of the landlord. An examination of the testimony in this case has convinced us that the appellant is not entitled to specific performance so as to require the appellees to pay rent for a new term of the rental contract as a holdover tenant for the following reasons. After receiving a letter from one of the appellees in which appellee Smith confirmed an alleged agreement to extend the lease on a month-to-month -month basis, Crackhale immediately wrote Smith and denied that there was such an agreement, and demanded that Smith quit and vacate the premises at the end of the lease. In addition to the rule expressed in the 1959 treatise, above cited, another rule is tersely expressed in American Law of Property, 1952, as follows. When a tenant continues in possession after the termination of his lease, the landlord has an election either to evict him, treat him as a trespasser it is said, or to hold him as a tenant. The letter from the appellant dated February 6, 1969, was an effective election on the part of appellant to terminate the lease and to treat the appellees as trespassers. After having elected not to accept the appellees as tenants, the appellant could not at a later date after failing to pursue his remedy to evict the tenants, change the election so as to hold the appellees as tenants for a new term. It is pointed out. In 49 AM Jewer.2 D that, after the landlord has once exercised his election not to hold the tenant for another term, his right to hold him is lost. On the other hand, if he has signified his semeraro, introduction to property 110 chapter 4, Landlord-tenant election to hold the tenant for another term he cannot thereafter rescind such election and treat the tenant as a trespasser, since his election when once exercised is binding upon the landlord as well as the tenant. Although the landlord, appellant, expressly refused to extend the lease on a month-to-month -month basis, nevertheless, the appellant accepted and cashed the rent check for the month of February. 
the normal effect of such action by the landlord is tantamount to extension of the lease for the period of time for which the check was accepted, unless, of course, the landlord had elected to treat the tenant as a holdover tenant. The following excerpt from the American Law Reports points out this rule, it is the rule that, absent evidence to show a contrary intent on the part of the landlord, a landlord who accepts rent from his holding over tenant will be held to have consented to a renewal or extension of the leasing for the period for which the rent was accepted. Although there is authority to the contrary the overwhelming weight of authority has adopted the rule above expressed. On April 6, 1969, the tenants mailed a check for rent for the month of March AC accompanied by a letter stating that the enclosed check represented the final payment of rent. The next day the tenants tendered the lease premises to the landlord and requested an inventory of certain personal property described in the lease. The landlord refused to accept the tender and rejected the check as a final payment. On April 19, 1969 three and one half, three and one half, months after the expiration of the lease the landlord attempted to change its position. It then notified the tenants that it had elected to treat them as holdover tenants so as to extend the lease for another term. We are of the opinion that once a landlord elects to treat a tenant as a trespasser and refuses to extend the lease on a month-to-month -month basis, but fails to pursue his remedy of ejecting the tenant, and accepts monthly checks for rent due, he in effect agrees to an extension of the lease on a month-to-month -month basis. We hold, therefore, that the decree of the trial court should be and is hereby AF firmed. To the rights and duties of landlords and tenants a delivery of possession now that we have considered the different types of leases, we turn to the rights and duties of landlord and tenant. In considering the relationship between landlord and tenant, the landlord's duty to deliver possession is a natural place to start since it coincides with the beginning of the lease. The question here is, what type of possession is a landlord obligated to deliver legal possession or physical possession? For example, assume that land T enter into a lease for one year beginning January 1, 2012. L has not leased the premises to anyone else for that time period and so has given T the clear legal right to possession of the land. When T arrives on January 1, however, she finds that L's previous tenant H is still on the land as a holdover tenant. H refuses to leave and T is unable to take physical possession of the premises. Who bears responsibility to remove H from the premises that L has a lawful right to inhabit, Lord T? In other words, does L have a duty to get rid of a holdover tenant and deliver physical possession to T? Or, since T now has legal possession of the premises, is T's only remedy to sue H? This is the subject of our next case. Semeraro Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 111 Hannon v. Dush 154 Virginia 356, 1930, Prentice, Chief Justice, the declaration filed by the plaintiff, Hannon, against the defendant, Dush, alleges that Dush had on August 31, 1927, leased to the plaintiff certain real estate in the city of Norfolk, Virginia, therein described, for 15 years, the term to begin January 1, 1928, at a specified rental, that it thereupon became and was the duty of the defendant to see to it that the premises leased by the defendant to the plaintiff should be open for entry by him on January 1, 1928, the beginning of the term, 
and to put said petitioner in posse's Zion of the premises on that date, that the petitioner was willing and ready to enter upon and take possession of the leased property, and so informed the defendant, yet the defendant failed and refused to put the plaintiff in possession or to keep the property open for him at that time or on any subsequent date, and that the defendant suffered to remain on said property a certain tenant or tenants who occupied a portion or portions thereof, and refused to take legal or other action to oust said tenants or to compel their removal from the property so occupied. Plaintiff alleged damages which he had suffered by reason of this alleged breach of the contract and deed, and sought to recover such damages in the action. There is no express covenant as to the delivery of the premises nor for the quiet possession of the premises by the lessee. The defendant demurred to the declaration on several grounds, one of which was that under the lease set out in said declaration the right of possession was vested in said plaintiff and there was no duty as upon the defendant, as alleged in said declaration, to see that the premises were open for entry by said plaintiff. The single question of law therefore presented in this case is whether a landlord, who without any express covenant as to delivery of possession leases property to a tenant, is required under the law to oust trespassers and wrongdoers so as to have it open for entry by the tenant at the beginning of the term that is, whether without an express covenant there is nevertheless an implied covenant to deliver possession. For an intelligent apprehension of the precise question it may be well to observe that some questions somewhat similar are not involved. It seems to be perfectly well settled that there is an implied covenant in such cases on the part of the landlord to assure to the tenant the legal right of possession that is, that at the beginning of the term there shall be no legal obstacle to the tenant's right of possession. This is not the question presented. Nor need we discuss in this case the rights of the parties in case a tenant rightfully in possession under the title of his landlord is thereafter disturbed by some wrongdoer. In such case the tenant must protect himself from trespassers, and there is no obligation on the landlord to assure his quiet enjoyment of his term as against wrongdoers or intruders. Of course, the landlord assures to the tenant quiet possession as against all who rightfully claim through or under the landlord. The discussion then is limited to the precise legal duty of the landlord in the absence of an express covenant, in case a former tenant, who wrongfully holds over, illegally refuses to surrender possession to the new tenant. This is a question about which there is a hopeless conflict of the authorities. It is generally claimed that the weight of the authority favors the particular view contended for. There are, however, no scales upon which we can weigh the authorities. In numbers and respectability they may be quite equally balanced. It is then a question about which no one should be dogmatic, but all should seek for that rule which is supported by the better reason. It is conceded by all that the two rules, one called the English rule, which implies a covenant requiring the lessor to put the lessee in possession, and that called the American Semeraro, Introduction to Property 112 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant Rule, which recognizes the lessee's legal right to possession, but implies no such duty upon the lessor as against wrongdoers, are irreconcilable. The English rule is that in the absence of stipulations to the contrary, there is in every lease an implied covenant on the part of the landlord that the premises shall be open to entry by the tenant at the time fixed by the lease for the beginning of his term. The court then cited a number of cases in support of this position. In one case, for example, it was held in an action for breach of a lease that, where the landlord knew at the time the lease was made that he would not be able to deliver possession as required by the lease, 
and that the tenant intended to use the premises for a certain kind of business and to prepare to commence business at the beginning of the term, he is liable for all damages which could be reasonably considered to be the natural and proximate result of the breach. It must be borne in mind, however, that the courts which hold that there is such an implied covenant do not extend the period beyond the day when the lessee's term begins. If after that day a stranger trespasses upon the property and wrongfully obtains or withholds possession of it from the lessee, his remedy is against the stranger and not against the lessor. King v. Reynolds, 67 a 229, has been said to be the leading case in this country affirming the English rule. In that case, the court explained, where a tenant has already taken possession and there is a trespasser, the tenant cannot sue the landlord but should instead sue the trespasser. But how about the implications at the time the very moment fixed by the terms of the lease for the lessee to take possession? Who is responsible if there is a trespasser, or tenant holding over, then in possession? Must the lessor clear the possession, or is this duty cast on the lessee? The authorities being in conflict, how does this question stand on principle? As was said in a previous case one who accepts a lease expects to enjoy the property, not a mere chance of a lawsuit. A lease for a year, or term of years, is not a freehold. It is a chattel interest. The prime motive of the contract is, that the lessee shall have possession, as much so as if a chattel were the subject of the purchase. Delivery is one of the elements of every executed contract. When a chattel is sold, the thing itself is delivered. Formerly parties went upon the land, and their symbolical delivery was perfected. Now the delivery of the deed takes the place of this symbolical delivery. Still, it implies that the purchaser shall have possession. Up to the time the lessee is entitled to possession under the lease, the lessor is the owner of the larger estate, out of which the leasehold is carved, and ownership draws to it the possession, unless someone else is in actual possession. The moment the lessor's right of possession ceases by virtue of the lease, that moment the lessee's right of possession begins. There is no appreciable interval between them, and hence there can be no interregnum or neutral ground between the two attaching rights of possession, for a trespasser to step in and occupy. If there be actual, tortuous occupancy, when the transition moment comes, then it is a trespass or wrong done to the lessor's possession. If the trespass or intrusion have its beginning after this, then it is a trespass or wrong done to the lessee's possession, for the right and title to the property being then in the lessee for a term, it draws to it the possession, unless there is another in the actual possession. Another case which supports the English rule is Herpalsheimer v. Christopher, 76 Nebraska 352. In that case the court gave these as its reasons for following the English rule, we think that the English rule is most in consonance with good conscience, sound principle, and fair dealing. Can it be supposed that the plaintiff in this case would have entered into the lease if he had known at the time that he could not obtain possession on the first of Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 113 March, but that he would be compelled to begin a lawsuit, await the law's delays, and fall low the case through its devious turnings to an end before he could hope to obtain Posse's Zion of the land he had leased? Most assuredly not. It is unreasonable to suppose that a man would knowingly contract for a lawsuit, or take the chance of one. 
whether or not a tenant in possession intends to hold over or assert a right to future term may nearly always be known to the landlord, and is certainly much more apt to be within his knowledge than within that of the prospective tenant. Moreover, since in an action to recover possession against a tenant holding over, the lessee would be compelled largely to rely upon the less SOR's testimony in regard to the facts of the claim to hold over by the wrongdoer, it is more reasonable and proper to place the burden upon the person within whose knowledge the facts are most apt to lie. We are convinced, therefore, that the better reason lies with the courts following the English doctrine, and we therefore adopt it, and hold that, ordinarily, the lessor implied le covenants with the lessee that the premises leased shall be open to entry by him at the time fixed in the lease as the beginning of the term. In commenting on this line of cases and arguing against the English rule one commentator has remarked, the English rule practically prohibits the landlord from leasing the premises while in the possession of a tenant whose term is about to expire, because notwithstanding the assurance on the part of the tenant that he will vacate on the expiration of his term he may change his mind and wrongfully hold over. It is true that the landlord may provide for such a contingency by suitable provisions in the lease to the prospective tenant, but it is equally true that the prospective tenant has the privilege of insisting that his prospective landlord expressly agree to put him in possession of the premises if he imagines there may be a chance for a lawsuit by the tenant in possession holding over. It seems to us that to raise by implication a covenant on the part of the landlord to put the tenant into possession is to make a contract for the parties in regard to a matter which is equally within the knowledge of both the landlord and tenant. So let us not lose sight of the fact that under the English rule a covenant which might have been but was not made is nevertheless implied by the court, though it is manifest that each of the parties might have provided for that and for every other possible contingency relating to possession by having express covenants which would unquestionably have protected both. Referring then to the American rule, under that rule, in such cases, the landlord is not bound to put the tenant into actual possession, but is bound only to put him in legal possession, so that no obstacle in the form of superior right of possession will be interposed to prevent the tenant from obtaining actual possession of the demised premises. If the landlord gives the tenant a right of possession he has done all that he is required to do by the terms of an ordinary lease, and the tenant assumes the burden of enforcing such right of possession as against all persons wrongfully in possession, whether they be trespassers or former tenants wrongfully holding over. The court then attributed this quote without citation to Judge A.C. Freeman and cited cases supporting the American rule. So, under the American rule, where the new tenant fails to obtain possession of the premises only because a former tenant wrongfully holds over, his remedy is against such wrongdoer and not against the landlord this because the landlord has not covenanted against the wrongful acts of another and should not be held responsible for such a tort unless he has expressly so contracted. This accords with the general rule as to other wrongdoers, whereas the English rule appears to create a specific exception against lessors. It does not occur to us now that there is any other instance in which one clearly without fault is held responsible for the independent tort of another in which he has neither participated nor concurred and whose misdoings he cannot control. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 114 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant in one case adopting the American rule for example. T. He lease was silent as to the delivery of possession, the former tenant wrongfully refused to vacate the premises, and there was no evidence of collusion on the part of the lessor. After stating the conflict in the authorities, citing them, 
and showing that cases in which the lessor expressly agrees to put the lessee in possession, or where there is an unexpired term of a previous lessee, have no application, the court adhered to the American rule, saying, it is founded on the theory that the implied covenants of the lessor are that the premises are, and shall be, free and unencumbered for the term of the lease, but that there is no warranty against the acts of strangers. The lessee is entitled, as of right, under the implied covenant of the lease, to enter upon and enjoy the premises for the entire term. There is a breach of this implied covenant when the premises are in possession of anyone under a superior right as of a tenant under an unexpired term, or of one claiming under a paramount title. But there is no breach of this implied covenant when a party is in possession, wrongfully holding after the expiration of a pre-existing lease. He is a pure wrongdoer. A lessor makes no covenant against such a wrongdoer any more than against a wrongdoer who, without right, and without warranty from the landlord, expels the tenant after the term has begun. Snyder v. Deban, 249 Massachusetts 59 There are some underlying fundamental considerations. Any written lease, for a specific term, signed by the lessor and delivered is like a deed signed, sealed and delivered by the grantor. This lease for 15 years is, and is required to be, by deed. It is a conveyance. During the term the tenant is substantially the owner of the property, having the right of possession, dominion, and control over it. Certainly, as a general rule, the lessee must protect himself against trespassers or other wrongdoers who disturb his possession. It is conceded by those who favor the English rule, that should the possession of the tenant be wrongfully disturbed the second day of the term, or after he has once taken possession, then there is no implied covenant on the part of his landlord to protect him from the torts of others. The English rule seems to have been applied only where the possession is disturbed on the first day, or perhaps more fairly expressed, where the tenant is prevented from taking possession on the first day of his term, but what is the substantial difference between invading the lessee's right of possession on the first or a later day? To apply the English rule you must imply a covenant on the part of the landlord to protect the tenant from the tort of another, though he has entered into no such covenant. This seems to be a unique exception, an exception which stands alone in implying a contract of insurance on the part of the lessor to save his tenant from all the consequences of the flagrant wrong of another person. Such an obligation is so unusual and the prevention of such a tort so impossible as to make it certain, we think that it should always rest upon an express contract. For the reasons which have been so well stated by those who have enforced the American rule, our judgment is that there is no error in the judgment complained of. The plaintiff alleges in his declaration as one of the grounds for his action that the defendant suffered the wrongdoer to remain in possession, but the allegations show that it was he who declined to assert his remedy against the wrongdoer, and so he it was who permitted the wrongdoer to retain the possession. Just why he valued his legal right to the possession so lightly as not to assert it in the effective way open to him does not appear. Whatever ethical duty in good conscience may possibly have rested upon the defendant, the duty to oust the wrongdoer by the summary remedy provided by the unlawful detainer statute clearly rested upon the plaintiff. The law helps those who help themselves, Jenner ally aids the vigilant, but rarely the sleeping, and never the acquiescent. Affirmed. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 115 Epes, Justice, Concurring, 
I concur in the conclusions reached by the Chief Justice in the opinion in this case, because of the fact that under the provisions of the Law of Virginia, Code, Section 5445, etc., a lessor, having made a lease to take effect immediately upon termination of an expiring lease, appears to have been left without power or process to himself evict a tenant under the expiring lease, who tortiously holds over on the day succeeding the termination of his lease, and therefore the power to evict being denied by law to the lessor, no covenant to put the new tenant into possession should or can be properly implied. But I am further of the opinion that what is stated to be the English rule in the opinion of the Chief Justice is the law under the common law, and that in the absence of a statute which by express provision or necessary implication changes this common law, it is the law of Virginia on the subject. If at any time the statutes of Virginia be so amended as to permit the lessor after the moment of the expiration of the prior lease to evict his tenant tortiously holding over under the expiring lease, I am of opinion that the English rule, the rule of the common law, will again become the law of the land in Virginia. Note, delivery of possession today today, the majority of jurisdictions follow the so-called English rule. A handful of states continue to follow the American rule. In jurisdictions following the American rule, in the event of a holdover, the tenant's remedy is against the person who is in wrongful possession. In English rule jurisdictions, the tenant may sue either the landlord or the wrongful holdover tenant. B. Tenant's rights to well-maintained property at common law, once a lease was entered, the landlord had virtually no responsibility to maintain the property. As stated in the discussion of delivery of possession above, the warranty of quiet enjoyment required the landlord to convey the right to legal posses Zion to the tenant. The condition of the property, however, was entirely the tenant's responsibility. This arrangement made some sense when most leases were of rural properties and most tenants were able to deal with whatever problems might arise. With the advent of extensive urban leases to tenants with little knowledge or ability to maintain property, the justification for the old law no longer applied. Over time, landlords began to agree to maintain rental property. Courts, however, interpreted the landlord's agreement as independent of the tenant's obligations under the lease. Although a landlord's breach of its obligation in a lease to maintain the premises would entitle the tenant to sue for damages, the tenant's obligation to pay rent remained in full force and effect. If the tenant failed to pay rent, or breached the lease in any other way, the landlord could terminate the lease and evict the tenant either through judicial proceedings or by using self-help, essentially putting the tenant's possessions on the street and changing the locks. Today, most jurisdictions prohibit self-help, requiring landlords to use summary proceedings. These special procedures, often called unlawful detainer cases, proceed quickly with very short notice and limit the issues that may be contested to whether the tenant paid the rent. Although some jurisdictions continue to formally per MIT self-help eviction, they require that any non-judicial eviction occur only under circumstances that are not likely to result in violence. That no violence actually occurs is insuffie for a description of the summary procedures available to landlords see Restatement, 2nd, of Property, Landlord and Tenant, 12.1. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 116 Chapter 4 Landlord Tenancyant. To justify a self-help eviction, the landlord must establish that no potential for violence existed. In most cases, 
such as showing is impractical and as a result, judicial eviction is the only viable option for landlords. Until a half century ago, the only exception to the general rule that a tenant was always obligated to pay the rent took effect if the landlord's actions or omissions so seriously impacted the tenant that those actions or omissions amounted to a constructive eviction, and the tenant actually abandoned the premises. This exception grew from an expansion of a doctrine known as the implied covenant of quiet enjoyment. Judges realized that if a landlord took actions to affirmatively drive a tenant from the property, the result was indistinguishable from a landlord that failed to provide the tenant with the legal right to possession. In both cases, the tenant would be evicted. Courts thus held that if a landlord constructively evicted a tenant by creating conditions at the property that the landlord knows to be inconsistent with the purpose for which the lease was entered, then the landlord would be deemed to violate the covenant of quiet enjoyment and the tenant could abandon the premises without further obligation to pay rent. Over time, the doctrine expanded to situations where the landlord constructively evicted the tenant by failing to properly maintain the property. Beginning in the 1960s, the Vermont Supreme Court has explained, American courts began recognizing that this approach to landlord and tenant relations, which had originated during the Middle Ages, had become an anachronism in 20th century, urban society. Today's tenant enters into lease agreements, not to obtain arable land, but to obtain safe, sanitary, and comfortable housing. Hilder v. St. Peter, 478A.2D202, VT 1984. Courts thus recognized that when a landlord breached the lease, the tenant should not be required to abandon the premises, but should be able to sue the landlord for damages for breach of the covenant of quiet enjoyment. This step in the evolution of the law effectively recognized that the landlord could breach the covenant of quiet enjoyment without forcing the tenant to abandon the premises and eventually led most jurisdictions to adopt an implied warranty of habitability that provided tenants even greater protections. The details of the implied warranty of habitability are addressed below. The Fall Lowing case illustrates the modern implied covenant of quiet enjoyment. One Covenant of Quiet Enjoyment Rest Realty Corp. v. Cooper 53 New Jersey 444, 1969, Francis, Justice plaintiff lessor sued defendant lessee to recover rent allegedly due under a written lease. The suit was based upon a charge that defendant had unlawfully abandoned the premises two and a quarter years before the termination date of the lease. The trial court, sitting without a jury, sustained tenant's defense of constructive eviction and entered judgment for defendant. The appellate division reversed, holding, 1. The proof did not support a finding of any wrongful act or omission on the part of the lessor sufficient to constitute a constructive eviction, and, two, if such act or omission could be found, defendant waived it by failing to remove from the premises within a reasonable time thereafter. We granted defendant's petition for certification. On May 13, 1958 defendant Joy M. Cooper leased from plaintiff's predecessor in title a portion of the ground or basement floor of a commercial, office, building at 207, Union Street Hackensack, New Jersey. The term was five years, but after about a year of occupancy the parties made a new five-year lease dated April 1959 covering the entire floor except the furnace room. The leased premises were to be used as commercial offices and semeraro, introduction to property too. 
Rights and Duties 117 Not for any other purpose without the prior written consent of the landlord. More particularly, the lessee utilized the offices for meetings and training of sales personnel in connection with the business of a jewelry firm of which Mrs. Cooper was branch manager at the time. No merchandise was sold there. A driveway ran along the north side of the building from front to rear. Its inside edge was at the exterior foundation wall of the ground floor. The driveway was not part of Mrs. Cooper's leasehold. Apparently it was provided for use of all tenants. Whenever it rained during the first year of defendant's occupancy, water ran off the driveway and into the offices and meeting rooms either through or under the exterior or foundation wall. At this time Arthur Adonijian, a member of the bar of this state, had his office in the building. In addition, he was an officer and resident manager of the then corporate owner. Whenever water came into the leased floor, defendant would notify him and he would take steps immediately to remove it. Obviously Denigian was fully aware of the recurrent flooding. He had some personal files in the furnace room which he undertook to protect by putting them on 2x4s in order to raise them above the floor surface. When negotiating with defendant for the substitute five-year lease for the larger space, Denigian promised to remedy the water problem by resurfacing the driveway. It is important to note here that Denigian told Walter T. Whitman, an attorney, who had offices in the building and who later became executor of Denigian's estate, that the driveway needed regrading and some kind of sealing of the area between the driveway which lay to the north of the premises and the wall. He also told Whitman that the grating was improper and was letting the water into the basement rather than away from it. The work was done as promised and although the record is not entirely clear, apparently the seepage was somewhat improved for a time. Subsequently it worsened, but Denigian responded immediately to each complaint and removed the water from the floor. Denigian died on March 30, 1961, approximately two years after commencement of the second lease. Whenever it rained thereafter and water flooded into the leased floor, no one paid any attention to defendants' complaints, so she and her employees did their best to remove it. During this time sales personnel and trainees came to defendants' premises at frequent intervals for meetings and classes. Sometimes as many as 50 persons were in attendance in the morning and an equal number in the afternoon. The flooding greatly inconvenienced the conduct of these meetings. At times after heavy rainstorms there was as much as two inches of water in various places and every cabinet, desk and chair had to be raised above the floor. On one occasion jewelry kits that had been sitting on the floor, as well as the contents of file cabinets, became soaked. Mrs. Cooper testified that once when she was conducting a sales training class and it began to rain, water came into the room making it necessary to move all the chairs and gear into another room on the south side of the building. On some occasions the meetings had to be taken to other quarters for which rent had to be paid, on others the meetings were adjourned to a later date. Complaints to the lessor were ignored. What was described as the crowning blow occurred on December 20, 1961. A meeting of sales representatives from four states had been arranged. A rainstorm intervened and the resulting flooding placed five inches of water in the rooms. According to Mrs. Cooper it was impossible to hold the meeting in any place on the ground floor, they took it to a nearby inn. That evening she saw an attorney who advised her to send a notice of vacation. On December 21 she asked that the place be cleaned up. This was not done, 
and after notifying the lessor of her intention she left the premises on December 30, 1961. Plaintiff acquired the building and an assignment of defendant's lease January 19, 1962. On November 9, 1964 it instituted this action to recover rent for the unexpired term of defendant's lease, i.e., until March 31, 1964. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 118 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant at Trial of the Case Defendant's Proofs showed the facts outlined above. Plaintiff offered very little in the way of contradiction. It seemed to acknowledge that a water problem existed but as defense counsel told the court in his opening statement, he was prepared to show that the water receded any number of times, and therefore the damage, if it was caused by an act that can be traced to the landlord, the condition, was not a permanent interference with the use and enjoyment of the premises. Plaintiff contended further that the water condition would not justify defendant's abandonment of the premises because in the lease she had stipulated that prior to execution thereof she had examined the demised premises, and accept, add, them in there, then, condition asterisk asterisk asterisk, and without any representations on the part of the landlord or its agents as to the present or future condition of the said premises, moreover she had agreed to keep the demised premises in good condition and to redecorate, paint, and renovate the said premises as may be necessary to keep them in good repair and good appearance. The trial judge found that the testimony is just undisputed and overwhelming that after every rainstorm water flowed into the leased premises of the defendant and nothing was done to remedy the condition despite repeated complaints to the lessor. He declared also that the condition was intolerable and so substantially deprived the lessee of the use of the premises as to constitute a constructive eviction and therefore legal justification for vacating them. On this appeal the plaintiff landlord claims that under the long-settled law, delivery of the leased premises to defendant-tenant was not accompanied by any implied warranty or covenant of fitness for use for commercial offices or for any other purpose. He asserts also that by express provision of both the first and second leases, which are item to call printed forms, except that the second instrument covers the additional portion of basement floor, the tenant acknowledged having examined the demised premises, HAV Ing agreed to accept them in their present condition, and having agreed to keep them in good repair, which acknowledgement, as a matter of law, has the effect of excluding any such implied warranty or covenant. It is true that as the law of leasing an estate for years developed historically, no implied warranty or covenant of habitability or fitness for the agreed use was imposed on the landlord. Because the interest of the lessee was considered personal property the doctrine of caveat emptor was applied, and in the absence of an express agreement otherwise, or misrepresentation by the lessor, the tenant took the premises as is. Modern social and economic conditions have produced many variant uses and types of leases, e.g., sale and leaseback transactions, mortgaging of leasehold interests, shopping center leases, long-term leases. Moreover, an awareness by legislatures of the inequality of bargaining power between landlord and tenant in many cases, and the need for tenant protection, has produced remedial tenement house and multiple dwelling statutes. It has come to be recognized that ordinarily the lessee does not have as much knowledge of the condition of the premises as the lessor. Building code requirements and violations are known or made known to the lessor, not the lessee. He is in a better position to know of latent defects, structural and otherwise, 
in a building which might go unnoticed by a lessee who rarely has sufficient knowledge or expertise to see or to discover them. A prospective lessee, such as a small businessman, cannot be expected to know if the plumbing or wiring systems are adequate or conform to local codes. Nor should he be expected to hire experts to advise him. Ordinarily all this information should be considered readily available to the lessor who in turn can inform the prospective lessee. These factors have produced persuasive arguments for re-evaluation of the caveat emptor doctrine and, for imposition of an implied warranty that the premises are suitable for the least purposes and conform to local codes and zoning laws. Proponents of more liberal treatment of tenants say, among other things, that if a lease is a demise of land and a sale of an interest in land in the commercial semiraro, introduction to property to rights and duties 119 cents, more realistic consideration should be given to the contractual nature of the relationship. It will not be necessary to deal at any length with the suggested need for revaluation and revision of the doctrines of caveat emptor and implied warranties and leases beyond consideration of matters projected into the case by the various contentions of the landlord. Since the language of the two leases is the same, except that the second one describes the larger portion of the basement taken by the tenant, evaluation of the landlord's contentions will be facilitated by first considering the original lease and the factual setting attending its execution. Although the second or substitutionary lease is the controlling instrument, we take this approach in order to focus more clearly upon the effect of the change in the factual setting when the second lease was executed. This course brings us immediately to the landlord's reliance upon the provisions of the first lease, which also appear in the second, that the tenant inspected the demised premises, accepted them in their present condition and agreed to keep them in good condition. The word premises, construed most favorably to the tenant, means so much of the ground floor as was leased to Mrs. Cooper for commercial offices. The driveway or its surfacing or the exterior wall or foundation under it cannot be considered included as part of the premises. In any event there is nothing to show that the inspection by Mrs. Cooper of the driveway or the ground floor exterior wall and foundation under it prior to the execution of the first lease would have given or did give her notice that they were so defective as to permit rainwater to flood into the leased portion of the interior. The condition should have been and probably was known to the lessor. If known, there was a duty to disclose it to the prospective tenant. Certainly as to Mrs. Cooper, it was a latent defect, and it would be a wholly inequitable application of caveat emptor to charge her with knowledge of it. The attempted reliance upon the agreement of the tenant in both leases to keep the demised premises in repair furnishes no support for the landlord's position. The driveway, exterior ground floor wall and foundation are not part of the demised premises. Latent defects in this context, the existence and significance of which are not reasonably apparent to the ordinary prospective tenant, certainly were not assumed by Mrs. Cooper. In fact in our judgment present day demands of fair treatment for tenants with respect to latent defects remediable by the landlord, either within the demised premises or outside the demised premises, require imposition on him of an implied warranty against such defects. Such warranty might be described as a limited warranty of habitability. In any event we need not at this point deal with the scope of the warranty, nor with issues of public policy that might be involved in certain types of cases where express exclusion of such warranty is contained in the lease. In Pines v. Persian, 111 and.w.2d 409, 1961, 
the Supreme Court of Wisconsin after noting that the frame of reference in which the old common law rule operated has undergone a change, declared, legislation and administrative rules, such as the Safe Place Statute, Building Codes, and Health Regulations, all impose certain duties on a property owner with respect to the condition of his premises. Thus, the legislature has made a policy judgment that it is socially, and politically, desirable to impose these duties on a property owner which has rendered the old common law rule obsolete. To follow the old rule of no implied warranty of habitability of leases would, in our opinion, be inconsistent with the current legislative policy concerning housing standards. The need and social desirability of adequate housing for people in this era of rapid population increases is too important to be rebuffed by that obnoxious legal CLIH, caveat emptor. 111N.W.2D point at 412-13. The letting of a one-family home to college students was involved in the case. Althoff the young men had gone through the house before renting it, the court pointed out Semeraro, Introduction to Property 120 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant They had no way of knowing that the plumbing, heating, and wiring systems were defective. Under the circumstances an implied warranty of habitability was said to exist, and its breach by the landlord relieved the tenants of liability for rent, except for such rent as would be reasonable for the one month of their occupancy. Similarly we believe that at the inception of the original lease in the present case, an implied warranty against latent defects existed. But the landlord says that whatever the factual and legal situation may have been when the original lease was made, the relationship underwent a change to its advantage when the second was executed. This contention is based upon the undisputed fact that in April 1959, after a year of occupancy, defendant, with knowledge that the premises were subject to recurrent flooding, accepted a new lease containing the same provisions as the first one. This acceptance, the argument runs, eliminates any possible reliance upon a COV and or warranty of fitness because the premises were truly taken then as is. While it is true that a tenant's knowing acceptance of a defective leasehold would normally preclude reliance upon any implied warranties, the landlord's position here is not sustainable because it is asserted in disregard of certain vital facts the agents promise to remedy the condition and the existence of an express covenant of quiet enjoyment in the lease. The evidence is clear that prior to execution of the substitutionary lease, the tenant complained to the owner's agent about the incursion of water whenever it rained. The agent conceded the problem existed and promised to remedy the condition. Relying upon the promise Mrs. Cooper accepted the new lease, and the landlord resurfaced the driveway. Unfortunately, either the work was not sufficiently extensive or it was not done properly because at some unstated time thereafter the water continued to come into the tenants' offices. The complaints about it resumed, and as noted above, until the building manager died he made prompt efforts to remove the water. In our opinion the tenant was entitled to rely upon the promise of its agent to provide a remedy. Thus it cannot be said as a matter of law that by taking the second lease she accepted the premises in their defective condition. This brings us to the crucial question whether the landlord was guilty of a breach of a covenant which justified the tenant's removal from the premises on December 30, 1961. We are satisfied there was such a breach. The great weight of authority throughout the country is to the effect that ordinarily a covenant of quiet enjoyment is implied in a lease. 
the early New Jersey cases laid down the strict rule that such a covenant would not be implied simply from the relationship of landlord and tenant. An express agreement to that effect or the use of words from which it could be implied was required. We need not deal here with problems of current serviceability of that rule because as has been indicated above, the lease in question contains an express covenant of quiet enjoyment for the term fixed. Where there is such a covenant, whether express or implied, and it is breached substantially by the landlord, the courts have applied the doctrine of constructive eviction as a remedy for the tenant. Under this rule any act or omission of the landlord or of anyone who acts under authority or legal right from the landlord, or of someone having superior title to that of the landlord, which renders the premises substantially unsuitable for the purpose for which they are leased, or which seriously interferes with the beneficial enjoyment of the premises, is a breach of the covenant of quiet enjoyment and constitutes a constructive eviction of the tenant. Examples of constructive eviction having close analogy to the present case are EASILY found. Failure to supply heat as covenanted in the lease so that the apartment was unlivable on cold days amounted to constructive eviction. So too, when the main waste pipe of an apartment building was permitted to become and remain clogged with sewage for a long period of time causing offensive odors and danger to health, the covenant of quiet Semeraro, introduction to property 2. Rights and duties 121 enjoyment was breached and justified the tenant's abandonment of his premises. If a landlord lets an apartment in his building to a tenant as a dwelling and knowingly permits another part to be used for lewd purposes which use renders the tenant's premises unfit for occupancy by a respectable family, his failure to terminate the use when he has the legal power to do so constitutes a constructive eviction. The same rule was applied in White v. Hannon, 11 NJLJ 338, DISTCT 1888 where it appeared that the plumbing in the rooms to the rear of the demised premises became so old and worn out as to emit strong and unhealthy odors which came through into the tenant's quarters. The tenant's removal was held justified. As noted above, the trial court found sufficient interference with the use and enjoyment of the leased premises to justify the tenant's departure and to relieve her from the obligation to pay further rent. In our view the evidence was sufficient to warrant that conclusion and the appellate division erred in reversing it. Plaintiff argued and the appellate division agreed that a constructive eviction cannot arise unless the condition interferes with the use in a permanent sense. It is true that the word permanent appears in many of the early cases. But it is equally obvious that permanent does not signify that water in a basement in a case like this one must be an everlasting and unending condition. If its recurrence follows regularly upon rainstorms and is sufficiently serious in extent to amount to a substantial interference with use and enjoyment of the premises for the purpose of the lease, the test for constructive eviction has been met. Additionally in our case, the defective condition of the driveway, exterior, and foundation walls which permitted the recurrent flooding was obviously permanent in the sense that it would continue and probably worsen if not remedied. There was no obligation on the tenant to remedy it. Plaintiff claims further that Stewart v. Childs Co., 86 NJL 648, E&A 1914, strongly supports its right to recovery. Under the lease in that case the landlord covenanted that at all times he would keep the cellar waterproof. The cellar was known to be necessary to the conduct of the tenant's business. After the business opened, water flooded into the cellar, at times to a depth of two and three feet. 
there was no doubt the flooding resulted from failure of the landlord to make the place waterproof. But when the tenant moved out, a suit for rent for the unexpired term was instituted and the landlord was allowed to recover. It was held that the agreement to pay rent and the agreement to waterproof the seller were independent covenants and breach of the covenant to waterproof was not a defense to the action for rent. We regard this holding as basically contrary to that in Higgins v. Whiting, 102 NJL 279, Supreme Court 1926, comma where the agreement by the landlord to heat the leased premises and the tenant's agreement to pay rent during the term were declared to be mutually dependent covenants. Thus failure to heat constituted a failure of consideration and justified vacation by the tenant without liability for further rent. We reject the rule of Stuart v. Childs Co. and espouse Higgins v. Whiting as propounding the sounder doctrine. Higgins v. Whiting is compatible with the sensible approach taken in Pines v. Persion, Supra, where in addition to the excerpt quoted above, the court said, the evidence clearly showed that the implied warranty of habitability was breached. Respondents' covenant to pay rent and appellants' covenant to provide a habitable house were mutually dependent, and thus a breach of the latter by appellant relieved respondents of any liability under the former. 111N.W.2D at 413. Breach of the implied warranty of habitability was held to constitute failure of consigned ration on the part of the landlord. Similarly whether the landlord's default in the present case is treated as a substantile breach of the express covenant of quiet enjoyment resulting in a constructive eviction of the tenant or as a material failure of consideration, i.e., such failure as amounts to a semeraro, introduction to property 122 chapter 4, landlord-tenant substantial interference with the beneficial enjoyment of the premises, the tenant's vocation was legal. Thus it is apparent from our discussion that a tenant's right to vacate leased premises is the same from a doctrinal standpoint whether treated as stemming from breach of a covenant of quiet enjoyment or from breach of any other dependent covenant. Both breaches constitute failure of consideration. The inference to be drawn from the cases is that the remedy of constructive eviction probably evolved from a desire by the courts to relieve the tenant from the harsh burden imposed by common law rules which applied principles of caveat emptor to the letting rejected an implied warranty of habitability, and ordinarily treated undertakings of the landlord in a lease as independent covenants. To alleviate the tenant's burden, the courts broadened the scope of the long-recognized implied covenant of quiet enjoyment, apparently designed originally to protect the tenant against ouster by a title superior to that of his lessor, to include the right of the tenant to have the beneficial enjoyment and use of the premises for the agreed term. It was but a short step then to the rule that when the landlord or someone acting for him or by virtue of a right acquired through him causes a substantial interference with that enjoyment and use, the tenant may claim a constructive eviction. In our view, therefore, at the present time whenever a tenant's right to vacate leased premises comes into existence because he is deprived of their beneficial enjoyment and use on account of acts chargeable to the landlord, it is immaterial whether the right is expressed in terms of breach of a covenant of quiet enjoyment, or material failure of consideration, or material breach of an implied warranty against latent defects. Plaintiff's final claim is that assuming the tenant was exposed to a constructive eviction, she waived it by remaining on the premises for an unreasonable period of time thereafter. The general rule is, of course, that a tenant's right to claim a constructive eviction will be lost if he does not vacate the premises within a reasonable time after the right comes into existence. 
what constitutes a reasonable time depends upon the circumstances of each case. In considering the problem courts must be sympathetic toward the tenant's plight. Vacation of the premises is a drastic course and must be taken at his peril. If he vacates, and it is held at a later time in a suit for rent for the unexpired term that the landlord's course of action did not reach the dimensions of constructive eviction, a substantial liability may be imposed upon him. That risk and the practical inconvenience and difficulties attendant upon finding and moving to suitable quarters counsel caution. Here, plaintiff's cooperative building manager died about nine months before the removal. During that period the tenant complained, patiently waited, hoped for relief from the landlord, and tried to take care of the water problem that accompanied the recurring rainstorms. But when relief did not come and the crowning blow put five inches of water in the leased offices and meeting rooms on December 20, 1961, the tolerance ended and the vacation came ten days later after notice to the landlord. The trial court found as a fact that under the circumstances such vacation was within a reasonable time, and the delay was not sufficient to establish a waiver of the constructive eviction. We find adequate evidence to support the conclusion and are of the view that the appellate division should not have reversed it. Although not necessary to our decision, we note that the New York Supreme Court, Appellate Division, in EESRC, Inc. v. Holland, held that where the condition which caused the constructive eviction, i.e., lack of waterproof exterior walls, was a continuing one, the basis for right to vacate was renewed after each monthly payment of rent. Also, it is worthy of note that in recent times some courts, recognizing the position of a tenant who claiming constructive eviction moves out before the end of his term, have attempted to neutralize the hazard by authorizing equitable relief. For example in Charles E. Burt, Inc. v. 7 Grand Corporation, such a tenant was allowed to move in equity to restrain the collection of further rents under the lease, and for rescission of the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 123 For the reasons expressed above, we hold the view that the trial court was correct in deciding that defendant had been constructively evicted from the premises in question, and therefore was not liable for the rent claimed. Accordingly, the judgment of the Appell Late Division is reversed and that of the trial court is reinstated. Notes and Questions 1 As the implied covenant of quiet enjoyment expanded, it was said to prohibit the landlord from either undertaking positive acts that deprived the tenant of beneficial use of the leased premises, or withholding something essential to the fulfillment of the intended purpose of the lease that the landlord was obligated to provide. At first, leases only required landlords to provide those services that were explicitly set out in the lease. Over time, a series of exceptions began to emerge to the general rule that the landlord owed no duty to the tenant. These included the following duties the landlord owed the tenant, to keep short-term furnished dwellings in good repair. To disclose latent defects of which the landlord should have been aware. To maintain common areas in good repair. To undertake any repairs that the landlord volunteered to make. To refrain from making fraudulent misrepresentations. To abate immoral conduct and other nuisances. Rest appears to go beyond any common law exception to create a general duty of the landlord to undertake repairs necessary to permit the premises to fulfill the purpose for which the lease was entered. Other cases have held that constructive eviction may arise from any condition over which the landlord has control. Blackett v. Olinoff, 371 Massachusetts 714, 
1977, noisy neighbors who leased from the same landlord. 2. The modern covenant of quiet enjoyment can be breached by landlord conduct that falls short of either actual or constructive eviction. In cases such as this, the tenant's remedy is limited to suing for damages and seeking an injunction requiring the landlord to remedy the offensive conduct. The tenant's obligation to pay rent, however, continues. When the breach is so substantial as to constitute constructive eviction, then the tenant may abandon the premises and has no further obligation to pay rent. Under no circumstances, however, does a breach of the covenant of quiet enjoyment entitle the tenant to remain in possession of the premises and withhold rent, lease as well as a declaration of nullity. The court indicated further that if the tenant remained in possession until the successful disposition of the action, his liability for intervening rent would be limited to the difference between the lease fixed rent and the reasonable rental value of the premises in their defective condition. So too in Pines v. Persian, the Wisconsin Supreme Court held that since there was a material failure of consideration, respondents, lessees, are absolved from any liability for rent under the lease and their only liability is for the reasonable rental value of the premises during the time of actual occupancy. In this connection a further application of equitable principles may be worthy of consideration. Where the facts warrant the conclusion that the landlord has breached any dependent covenant of the lease, for example, that of quiet enjoyment, or an implied warranty against latent defects in such manner as to warrant vacation of the premises by the tenant but the tenant is willing to remain in possession and pay a sum representing their rea sonable rental value in their defective or reduced value condition should he not be entitled to do so for the remainder of the term and to have the court fix the reasonable rental value for that period, or in the alternative have the defective condition repaired or remedied himself and offset the cost against the rent fixed in the lease, provided the expenditure involved would not be unreasonable in light of the value of the leasehold? Semeraro, Introduction to Property 124 Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant 3 the concept of constructive eviction within the ambit of the covenant of quiet enjoyment fits within the broader doctrine of private nuisance, see Infra Chapter 7.I. That doctrine prohibits intentional conduct unreasonably interfering with another's use of real property. Should a landlord bear a greater burden under the covenant of quiet enjoyment than would a member of the general public? How would the rest court likely answer that question? To implied warranty of habitability the expanded covenant of quiet enjoyment retained a significant limitation on the rights of tenants. The doctrine did not permit a tenant to remain in possession of leased premises and withhold rent in response to a landlord's failure to properly maintain those premises. This limitation on the doctrine created a difficult dilemma for tenants. If they abandoned the property, they would risk a judicial determination that the landlord did not breach the covenant of quiet enjoyment potentially subjecting the tenant to liability for rent at both the abandoned premises and whatever new premises the tenant leased. At common law, a landlord had no duty to mitigate damages and thus could simply leave the property vacant and demand that the tenant pay the entire rent for the remainder of the lease unless the tenant proved that the landlord had constructively evicted the tenant. Under modern law, most, but not all, jurisdictions impose on the landlord a duty to mitigate damages by attempting to relet a property that is abandoned by the tenant. The landlord remains entitled, however, to the rental value for the period that it would reasonably take to relet the apartment as well as the expenses of reletting. 
Although some jurisdictions require landlords to demonstrate that they made reasonable efforts to relet, many place the burden on tenants to demonstrate that the landlord did not take reasonable steps to relet. As a result, in many jurisdictions, tenants abandoning a lease face substantial potential liability if they fail to demonstrate that they were constructively evicted. Alternatively, however, if the tenant remained on the premises, a court might infer that the covenant of quiet enjoyment was not violated. How could the tenant have been constructively evicted, a landlord would surely argue, if she remained on the premises for a long period after the landlord's alleged breach. Tenants' rights advocates thus sought to convince courts to adopt more tenant-protective doctrines. In a 1968 case, the District of Columbia Circuit developed a new doctrine known as the Illegal Lease Doctrine. Brown v. Southall Realty Co., 237A.2D834, DC App 1968. It provided that if at the time a lease is entered the premises violate the housing code, then the tenant may withhold rent, while remaining in possession, until the landlord repaired the defect. This doctrine expanded tenants' rights one step further than the COV in ant of quiet enjoyment by enabling tenants to withhold rent while remaining in Posse's Zion but it only applied to defects that existed when the lease was entered. If a problem arose later, the tenant could not rely on the illegal lease doctrine. The final evolution of the tenant's rights revolution occurred when courts in many jurisdictions adopted an implied warranty of habitability in all residential leases. Some jurisdictions also apply it to commercial leases. This doctrine required the landlord to maintain the property in safe and healthy condition throughout the entire term of the lease. It was deemed unwaivable, and the tenant was granted three alternative remedies in response to a breach, one rescind the lease and vacate the premises with no further liability for rent, two repair the defect and deduct the cost from rent, or some jurisdictions recognize a duty to mitigate only for commercial leases, while others recognize the duty only for residential leases. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Rights and Duties 125-3 withhold rent until the landlord repaired the defect. To trigger these remedies, the tenant was required to provide the landlord notice and a reasonable opportunity to cure the defect. If the landlord failed to do so, however, and the tenant withheld rent, the tenant would not be liable for paying the entire rent when the defect is finally fixed. Instead, the rent would be abetted to take account for the reduced value of the leasehold during the period that the defect existed. Wade v. Job. 818p.2d1006, Utah 1991, Applying Percentage Diminution in Value Approach to Calculate Abetted Rent. Of course, the tenant would be responsible for paying the entire rent after the defect is repaired. In some jurisdictions, tenants are required to pay rent into a court-monitored escrow account when the rental is in unhabitable condition. After the repairs are made, the court then decides how to distribute the rent between the landlord and tenant. The regulation of landlord-tenant law has now moved to the legislative forum, including municipal ordinances. A Uniform Residential Landlord-Tenant Act, (ERLTA) was drafted in the early 1970s and has been adopted by over 20 states. Substantially more implement various substantive parts of it. A chart showing how various state laws comport with the ERLTA can be found here, 
http://www.ncsl.org/issues-research/env-res/state-adoptions-of-land-lord-duties.aspx The Uniform Law Commission is currently revising and updating the EARLTA. Its 2013 draft can be found here http colon slash slash www.uniformlaws.org slash shared slash docs slash residential percent sign two zero landlord percent sign two zero and percent sign two zero ten hyphen and slash twenty thirteen am underscore ralta underscore draft dot pdf hilder v st peter one hundred and forty four vt one hundred and fifty nineteen eighty four billings chief justice defendants appeal from a judgment rendered by the rutland superior court the court ordered defendants to pay plaintiff damages in the amount of $4,945, which represented reimbursement of all rent paid and additional compensatory damages for the rental of a residential apartment over a 14-month period in Defendant's Rutland Apartment Building. Defendants filed a motion for reconsideration on the issue of the amount of damages awarded to the plaintiff, and plaintiff filed a cross-motion for reconsideration of the court's denial of an award of punitive damages. The court denied both motions. On appeal, defendants raise three issues for our consideration, first, whether the court correctly calculated the amount of damages awarded the plaintiff, secondly, whether the court's award to plaintiff of the entire amount of rent paid to defendants was proper since the plaintiff remained in possession of the apartment for the entire 14-month period, and finally, whether the court's finding that defendant Stuart St. Peter acted on his own behalf and with the apparent authority of Defendant Patricia St. Peter was error. The facts are uncontested. In October, 1974, plaintiff began occupying an apartment at Defendant's 10-12 Church Street apartment building in Rutland with her three children and newborn grandson. Plaintiff orally agreed to pay Defendant Stuart St. Peter $140 a month and a damage deposit of $50. Plaintiff paid Defendant the first month's rent and the damage deposit prior to moving in. Plaintiff has paid all rent due under her tenancy. Because the previous tenants had left behind garbage and items of personal belongings, defendant offered to refund plaintiff's damage deposit if she would clean the apartment herself prior to taking possession. Plaintiff did clean the apartment, but never received her deposit back because the defendant denied ever receiving it. Upon moving into the apartment, plaintiff discovered a broken kitchen window. Defendant promised to repair it, but after waiting a week and fearing that her two-year-old child might cut herself Semeraro, Introduction to Property 126 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant on the Shards of Glass, Plaintiff repaired the window at her own expense. Although Defendant promised to provide a front door key, he never did. For a period of time, whenever Plaintiff left the apartment, a member of her family would remain behind for security REA sons. Eventually, plaintiff purchased and installed a padlock, again at her own expense. After moving in, plaintiff discovered that the bathroom toilet was clogged with paper and feces and would flush only by dumping pails of water into it. Although plaintiff repeatedly complained about the toilet, and defendant promised to have it repaired, the toilet remained clogged and mechanically inoperable throughout the period of plaintiff's tenancy. In addition, the bathroom light and wall outlet were inoperable. Again, the defendant agreed to repair the fixtures, but never did. 
In order to have light in the bathroom, plaintiff attached a fixture to the wall and connected it to an extension cord that was plugged into an adjoining room. Plaintiff also discovered that water leaked from the water pipes of the upstairs apartment down the ceilings and walls of both her kitchen and back bedroom. Again, defendant promised to fix the leakage, but never did. As a result of this leakage, a large section of plaster fell from the back bedroom ceiling onto her bed and her grandson's crib. Other sections of plaster remained dangling from the ceiling. This condition was brought to the attention of the defendant, but he never corrected it. Fearing that the remaining plaster might fall when the room was occupied, plaintiff moved her and her grandson's bedroom furniture into the living room and ceased using the back bedroom. During the summer months an odor of raw sewage permeated plaintiff's apartment. The odor was so strong that the plaintiff was ashamed to have company in her apartment. Responding to plaintiff's complaints, Rutland City workers unearthed a broken sewage pipe in the basement of defendant's building. Raw sewage littered the floor of the basement, but defendant failed to clean it up. Plaintiff also discovered that the electric service for her furnace was attached to her breaker box, although defendant had agreed, at the commencement of plaintiff's tenancy, to furnish heat. In its conclusions of law, the court held that the state of disrepair of plaintiff's apartment, which was known to the defendants, substantially reduced the value of the leasehold from the agreed rental value, thus constituting a breach of the implied warranty of habitability. The court based its award of damages on the breach of this warranty and on breach of an express contract. Defendant argues that the court misapplied the law of Vermont relating to habitability because the plaintiff never abandoned the demised premises and, therefore, it was error to award her the full amount of rent paid. Plaintiff counters that, while never expressly recognized by this court, the trial court was correct in applying an implied warranty of habitability and that under this warranty, abandonment of the premises is not required. Plaintiff urges this court to affirmatively adopt the implied warranty of habitability. Historically, relations between landlords and tenants have been defined by the law of property. Under these traditional common law property concepts, a lease was viewed as a conveyance of real property. See note, judicial expansion of tenants' private law rights, implied warranties of habitability and safety in residential urban leases, 56 Cornell LQ 489, 489-90, hereinafter cited as expansion of tenants' rights. The relationship between landlord and tenant was controlled by the doctrine of caveat lessee, that is, the tenant took possession of the demised premises irrespective of their state of disrepair. Love, landlord's liability for defective premises, caveat lessee, negligence, or strict liability, 1975 Wisconsin L. Revelation 19, 27-28 The landlord's only covenant was to deliver possession to the tenant. The tenant's obligation to pay rent existed independently of the landlord's duty to deliver possession, so that as long as possession remained in the tenant, the tenant remained liable for payment of rent. The landlord was under no duty to render the premises habitable unless there was an express covenant to repair in the written semeraro. Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 127 Lease. Expansion of Tenants' Rights, Supra, at 490. The land, not the dwelling, was regarded as the essence of the conveyance. An exception to the rule of caveat lessee was the doctrine of constructive eviction. 
Here, if the landlord wrongfully interfered with the tenant's enjoyment of the demised premises, or failed to render a duty to the tenant as expressly required under the terms of the lease, the tenant could abandon the premises and cease paying rent. Beginning in the 1960s, American courts began recognizing that this approach to landlord and tenant relations, which had originated during the Middle Ages, had become an anachronism in 20th century, urban society. Today's tenant enters into lease agreements, not to obtain arable land, but to obtain safe, sanitary, and comfortable housing. Tenants, the court recognized seek a well-known package of goods and services a package which includes not merely walls and ceilings, but also adequate heat, light, and ventilation, serviceable plumbing facilities, secure windows and doors, proper sanitation, and proper maintenance. Javens v. First National Realty Corp. 428 F.2 D 1071, 1074, D.C. Sir 1970. Not only has the subject matter of today's lease changed, but the characteristics of today's tenant have similarly evolved. The tenant of the Middle Ages was a farmer, capable of making whatever repairs were necessary to his primitive dwelling. Green v. Superior Court 10 Cal.3 D 616, 622, 1974. Additionally, the common law courts assumed that an equal bargaining position existed between landlord and tenant. Note, the implied warranty of habitability, a dream deferred, 48 UMKCL Revelation 227, 238, 1980, here and after cited as a dream deferred. In sharp contrast, today's residential tenant, most commonly a city dweller, is not experienced in performing maintenance work on urban, complex living units. Green, 10 Cal.3 D at 624. The landlord is more familiar with the dwelling unit and mechanical equipment attached to that unit, and is more financially able to discover and cure any faults and breakdowns. ID at 624. Confronted with a recognized shortage of safe, decent housing, today's tenant is in an inferior bargaining position compared to that of the landlord. Park West Management Corp. v. Mitchell, 47 N.Y.2D 316, 324-25, 1979. Tenants vying for this limited housing are virtually powerless to compel the performance of essential services. ID at 325. In light of these changes in the relationship between tenants and landlords, it would be wrong for the law to continue to impose the doctrine of caveat lessee on residential leases. The modern view favors a new approach which recognizes that a lease is s entirely a contract between the landlord and the tenant wherein the landlord promises to deliver and maintain the demised premises in habitable condition and the tenant promises to pay rent for such habitable premises. These promises constitute interdependent and mutual considerations. Thus, the tenant's obligation to pay rent is predicated on the landlord's obligation to deliver and maintain the premises in habitable condition. Boston Housing Authority v. Hemingway, 363 Massachusetts 184, 198, 1973 Recognition of residential leases as contracts embodying the mutual covenants of habitability and payment of rent does not represent an abrupt change in Vermont law. Our case law has previously recognized that contract remedies are available for breaches of lease agreements.
More significantly, our legislature, in establishing local housing authorities, 24v.s.a4003, has officially recognized the need for assuring the existence of adequate housing. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 128 Chapter 4 Landlord-tenant substandard and decadent areas exist in certain portions of the state of Vermont and, there is not, an adequate supply of decent, safe and sanitary housing for persons of low income and slash or elderly persons of low income, available for rents which such persons can afford to pay, this situation tends to cause an increase and spread of communicable and chronic disease and constitutes a menace to the health, safety, welfare, and comfort of the inhabitants of the state and is detrimental to property values in the localities in which it exists. 24v.s.a4001, 4. In addition, this court has assumed the existence of an implied warranty of habitability in residential leases. Therefore, we now hold expressly that in the rental of any residential dwelling unit an implied warranty exists in the lease, whether oral or written, that the landlord will deliver over and maintain, throughout the period of the tenancy, premises that are safe, clean, and fit for human habitation. This warranty of habitability is implied in tenancies for a specific period or at will. Additionally, the implied warranty of habitability covers all latent and patent defects in the essential facilities of the residential unit. Essential facilities are facilities vital to the use of the premises for residential purposes. Klein v. Burns, 111 NH 87, 92, 1971. This means that a tenant who enters into a lease agreement with knowledge of any defect in the essential facilities cannot be said to have assumed the risk, thereby losing the protection of the warranty. Nor can this implied warranty of habitability be waived by any written provision in the lease or by oral agreement. In determining whether there has been a breach of the implied warranty of habitability, the courts may first look to any relevant local or municipal housing code, they may also make reference to the minimum housing code standards enunciated in 24v.s.a5003, c. 1, 5003, c. 5. A substantial violation of an applicable housing code shall constitute prima facie evidence that there has been a breach of the warranty of habitability. ONE or two minor violations standing alone which do not affect the health or safety of the tenant, shall be considered de minimis and not a breach of the warranty. Javens, 428F.2D at 1082N.63. In addition, the landlord will not be liable for defects caused by the tenant. ID at 1082N.62. However, these codes and standards merely provide a starting point in determining whether there has been a breach. Not all towns and municipalities have housing codes, where there are codes, the particular problem complained of may not be addressed. In determining whether there has been a breach of the implied warranty of habitability, courts should inquire whether the claimed defect has an impact on the safety or health of the tenant. In order to bring a cause of action for breach of the implied warranty of habitability, the tenant must first show that he or she notified the landlord of the deficiency or defect not known to the landlord and allowed a reasonable time for its correction. King v. Moorhead, 495 S.W.2D64, 76, 1973 Because we hold that the lease of a residential dwelling creates a contractual relationship between the landlord and tenant, 
the standard contract remedies of rescission, reformation, and damages are available to the tenant when suing for breach of the implied warranty of habitability. The measure of damages shall be the difference between the value of the dwelling as warranted and the value of the dwelling as it exists in its defective condition. Birkenhead v. Coombs, 143 vt 167, 172, 1983 In determining the fair rental value of the dwelling as warranted, the court may look to the agreed-upon rent as evidence on this issue. In residential lease disputes involving a breach of the implied warranty of habitability, public policy militates against requiring expert testimony concerning the value of the defect. ID at 173. The tenant will be liable only for the reasonable rental value Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 129 If any of the property in its imperfect condition during his period of occupancy. Bertito v. Gambino, 63 NJ 460, 469, 1973. We also find persuasive the reasoning of some commentators that damages should be allowed for a tenant's discomfort and annoyance arising from the landlord's breach of the implied warranty of habitability. Damages for annoyance and discomfort are reasonably in light of the fact that the residential tenant who has suffered a breach of the warranty cannot bathe as frequently as he would like or at all if there is inadequate hot water, he must worry about rodents harassing his children or spreading disease if the premises are infested or he must avoid certain rooms or worry about catching a cold if there is inadequate weather protection or heat. Thus, discomfort and annoyance are the common injuries caused by each breach and hence the true nature of the general damages the tenant is claiming. Moskowitz, The Implied Warranty of Habitability, A New Doctrine Raising New Issues, 62 California L. Revelation 1444-1470-71 1974. Damages for discomfort and annoyance may be difficult to compute, however, t he trier of fact is not to be deterred from this duty by the fact that the damages are not susceptible of reduction to an exact money standard. Vermont Electric Supply Co. v. Andrus, 132 vt 195, 200, 1974. Another remedy available to the tenant when there has been a breach of the implied warranty of habitability is to withhold the payment of future rent. The burden and expense of bringing suit will then be on the landlord who can better afford to bring the action. In an action for ejectment for non-payment of rent, 12v.s.a4773, t he trier of fact, upon evaluating the seriousness of the breach and the ramification of the defect upon the health and safety of the tenant, will abate the rent at the landlord's expense in accordance with its findings. A dream deferred, supra, at 248. The tenant must show that, 1, the landlord had notice of the previously unknown defect and failed, within a reasonable time, to repair it, and, 2, the defect, affecting habitability, existed during the time for which rent was withheld. Whether a portion, all or none of the rent will be awarded to the landlord will depend on the findings relative to the extent and duration of the breach. Of course, once the landlord corrects the defect, the tenant's obligation to pay rent becomes due again. Additionally, we hold that when the landlord is notified of the defect but fails to repair it within a reasonable amount of time, and the tenant subsequently repairs the defect, the tenant may deduct the expense of the repair from future rent. 
In addition to general damages, we hold that punitive damages may be available to a tenant in the appropriate case. Although punitive damages are generally not recoverable in actions for breach of contract, there are cases in which the breach is of such a willful and wanton or fraudulent nature as to make appropriate the award of exemplary damages. A willful and wanton or fraudulent breach may be shown by conduct manifesting personal ill will, or carried out under circumstances of insult or oppression, or even by conduct manifesting, a reckless or wanton disregard of one's rights. Sparrow v. Vermont Savings Bank, 95 VT 29, 33, 1921 When a landlord, after receiving notice of a defect, fails to repair the facility that is essential to the health and safety of his or her tenant, an award of punitive damages is proper. The purpose of punitive damages is to punish conduct which is morally culpable. Such an award serves to deter a wrongdoer from repetitions of the same or similar actions. And it tends to encourage prosecution of a claim by a victim who might not otherwise incur the expense or inconvenience of private semeraro, Introduction to Property 130 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant Action The public benefit and a display of ethical indignation are among the ends of the policy to grant punitive damages. Davis v. Williams 402n.y.s.2d92, 94, n.y.civ.ct 1977. In the instant case, the trial court's award of damages, based in part on a breach of the implied warranty of habitability, was not a misapplication of the law relative to habitability. Because of our holding in this case, the doctrine of constructive eviction, wherein the tenant must abandon in order to escape liability for rent, is no longer viable. When, as in the instant case, the tenant seeks, not to escape rent liability, but to receive compensatory damages in the amount of rent already paid, abandonment is similarly unnecessary. Under our holding, when a landlord breaches the implied warranty of habitability, the tenant may withhold future rent, and may also seek damages in the amount of rent previously paid. In its conclusions of law the trial court stated that the defendant's failure to make repairs was compensable by damages to the extent of reimbursement of all rent paid and additional compensatory damages. The court awarded plaintiff a total of $4,945, $3,445 represents the entire amount of rent plaintiff paid, plus the $50 deposit. This appears to leave $1,500 as the additional compensatory damages. However, Althoff the court made findings which clearly demonstrate the appropriateness of an award of compensatory damages, there is no indication as to how the court reached a figure of $1,500. It is crucial that this court and the parties be able to determine what was decided and how the decision was reached. Fox v. McLean, 142 VT 11 16, 1982. Additionally, the court denied an award to plaintiff of punitive damages on the ground that the evidence failed to support a finding of willful and wanton or fraudulent conduct. The facts in this case, which defendants do not contest, evince a pattern of intentional conduct on the part of defendants for which the term slumlord surely was coined. Defendant's conduct was culpable and demeaning to plaintiff and clearly expressive of a wanton disregard of plaintiff's rights. The trial court found that defendants were aware of defects in the essential facilities of plaintiff's apartment, promised plaintiff that repairs would be made, but never fulfilled those promises.
The court also found that plaintiff continued, throughout her tenancy, to pay her rent, often in the face of verbal threats made by defendant Stuart St. Peter. These findings point to the bad spirit and wrong intention of the defendants, Glidden v. Skinner, 142 VT 644, 648, 1983, and would support a finding of willful and wanton or fraudulent conduct, contrary to the conclusions of law and judgment of the trial judge. However, the plaintiff did not appeal the court's denial of punitive damages, and issues not appealed and briefed are waived. Affirmed in part, reversed in part and remanded for hearing on additional compensable damages, consistent with the views herein. Notes and Questions 1. Housing code violations constitute breaches of the implied warranty of habitability as long as they substantially impact health or safety. Breaches of the warranty, however, include anything that affects the health or safety of the premises even if they do not implicate the applicable housing code. For example, courts have held that loud noise in the building, Millbridge APTs v. Linden, 376A.2D611, NJDIST 1977, and the failure of a central air conditioner, Park Hill Terrace Asox v. Glennon, 369A.2D938, NJAP 1977, constitute breaches. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 131 2. The implied warranty of habitability is generally not waivable. Courts have held that the doctrine is intended to ensure that leased property is maintained in safe and habitable condition. Allowing tenants to waive their rights in return for a lower rental payment would undermine the purpose of the doctrine. Moreover, courts were concerned that landlords might coerce or trick tenants into waiving their rights. Some jurisdictions permit waiver in situations where bargaining power between landlords and tenants is deemed equal. Commercial lease situations are the most common example. 3. Despite the broad adoption of the implied warranty of habitability, the covenant of quiet enjoyment remains a vital doctrine. A few jurisdictions have not adopted the warranty of habitability at all, and many limit it to residential leases. Commercial tenants are thus typically limited to the covenant of quiet enjoyment. 4. Although the implied warranty of habitability does eliminate the tenant's obligation not to engage in permissive waste by failing to maintain the property, the tenant's obligation to avoid affirmative or voluntary waste remains intact. The concept of waste was introduced in the context of present possessory and future interest holders in a PA particular piece of property. Tenants are present possessory interest holders and landlords hold a future interest. As a result, tenants may not engage in affirmative conduct that damages the property. Five alterations that may be characterized as improvements may constitute ameliorative waste, depending upon the extent of the alteration and the length of time remaining on the lease. The more the property is altered, and the less time remaining on the lease, the more likely a court is to find that an alteration constitutes waste. 6. Hilder is an unusual case in that the tenant initiated the lawsuit to recover rent that had been paid. In most cases, the warranty of habitability comes into play as a defense when a landlord sues a tenant for failure to pay rent. Indeed, the implied warranty of HA billetability permitted tenants to withhold rent in part to compel landlords to initiate legal proceedings to resolve landlord-tenant disputes based on the theory that they were better equipped than tenants to do so. 
See Prohibitions on Discrimination in Rental Housing at Common Law, a landlord had unbridled discretion to choose to whom to lease property. At around the same time that the law began to place greater burdens on landlords with respect to the condition of rental property, concerns arose about landlords rejecting tenants based on race or other suspect classifications. Unlike the warranty of habitability and the covenant of quiet enjoyment, which evolved at the state level on a jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction -jurisdiction basis, discrimination claims sought to invoke federal law. One Civil Rights Act of 1,866 leases are private transactions. The federal constitution's limits on certain types of discrimination only apply to state action, i.e., the action of governments. So, those subjected to discrimination needed a statutory basis to attack a landlord's refusal to enter a lease. In the mid-1960s, two significant events created the necessary basis to prevent landlords from refusing to rent to otherwise qualified prospective tenants for discriminatory reasons. First, a post-Civil War civil rights statute, 42 U.S.C. 1982, guaranteed all citizens the same right to lease property as is enjoyed by white citizens. In the following 1968 case, the U.S. Supreme Court decided, more than a century after the statute was enacted, that it prohibited all discrimination both state and private action on the basis of race in the sale or rental of housing. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 132 Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Jones v. Alfred H. Mayer Co. 392 U.S. 409, 1968, Stewart, Justice in this case we are called upon to determine the scope and constitutionality of an Act of Congress, 42 U.S.C. 1982, which provides that, all citizens of the United States shall have the same right, in every state and territory, as is enjoyed by white citizens thereof to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property. On September 2, 1965, the petitioners filed a complaint in the District Court for the Eastern District of Missouri, alleging that the respondents had refused to sell them a home in the Paddock Woods community of St. Louis County for the sole reason that petitioner Joseph Lee Jones is a Negro. Relying in part upon 1982, the petitioners sought injunctive and other relief. The District Court S.U.S. tained the respondents' motion to dismiss the complaint, and the Court of Appeals for the 8th Justice Potter Stewart Circuit affirmed concluding that 1982 applies only to state action and does not reach private refusals to sell. We granted certiorari to consider the questions thus presented. For the reasons that follow, we reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals. We hold that 1982 billion Argentine pesos all racial discrimination, private as well as public, in the sale or rental of property, and that the statute, thus construed, is a valid exercise of the power of Congress to enforce the 13th Amendment. I at the outset, it is important to make clear precisely what this case does not involve. Whatever else it may be, 1982 is not a comprehensive open housing law. In sharp contrast to the Fair Housing Title, Title VIII, of the Civil Rights Act of 1968, PUBL. 9284, 82 STAT81, the statute in this case deals only with racial discrimination and does not address itself to discrimination on grounds of religion or national origin. It does not deal specifically with discrimination in the provision of services or facilities in connection with the sale or rental of a dwelling. 
it does not prohibit advertising or other representations that indicate discriminatory preferences. It does not refer explicitly to discrimination in financing arrangements or in the provision of brokerage services. It does not empower a federal administrative agency to assist aggrieved parties. It makes no provision for intervention by the Attorney General. And, although it can be enforced by injunction, it contains no provision expressly authorizing a federal court to order the payment of damages. Thus, although 1982 contains none of the exemptions that Congress included in the Civil Rights Act of 1968, it would be a serious mistake to suppose that 1982 in any way diminishes the significance of the law recently enacted by Congress. Indeed, the Senate Subcommittee on Housing and Urban Affairs was informed in hearings held after the Court of Appeals had rendered its decision in this case that 1982 might well be a presently valid federal statutory ban against discrimination by private persons in the sale or lease of real property. The subcommittee was told, however, that even if this court should so construe 1982, the existence of that statute would not eliminate the need for Congress' signal action to spell out responsibility on the part of the federal government to enforce the rights it protects. The point was made that, in light of the many difficulties confronted Semeraro, introduction to property to rights and duties 133 by private litigants seeking to enforce such rights on their own, legislation is needed to establish federal machinery for enforcement of the rights guaranteed under 1982 even if the plaintiffs in Jones v. Alfred H. Mayer Company should prevail in the United States Supreme Court. On April 10, 1968, Rep. Kelly of New York focused the attention of the House upon the present case and its possible significance. She described the background of this litigation, recited the text of 1982, and then added, when the Attorney General was asked in court about the effect of the old law, 1982, as compared with the pending legislation which is being considered on the House floor today, he said that the scope was somewhat different, the ream dies and procedures were different, and that the new law was still quite necessary. 114 CONG Rec. H. 2807, April 10, 1968. Later the same day, the House passed the Civil Rights Act of 1968. Its enactment had no effect upon 1982 and no effect upon this litigation, but it underscored the vast differences between, on the one hand, a general statute applicable only to racial discrimination in the rental and sale of property and enforceable only by private parties acting on their own initiative, and, on the other hand, a detailed housing law applicable to a broad range of discriminatory practices and enforceable by a complete arsenal of federal author ITY. Having noted these differences, we turn to a consideration of 1982 itself. 3. We begin with the language of the statute itself. In plain and unambiguous terms, 1982 grants to all citizens, without regard to race or color, the same right to purchase and lease property as is enjoyed by white citizens. As the Court of Appeals in this case evidently recognized, that right can be impaired as effectively by those who place property on the market as by the state itself. For, even if the state and its agents lend no support to those who wish to exclude persons from their communities on racial grounds, the fact remains that, whenever property is placed on the market for whites only, whites have a right denied to Negroes. 
so long as a Negro citizen who wants to buy or rent a home can be turned away simply because he is not white, he cannot be said to enjoy the same right asterisk 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 as is enjoyed by white citizens asterisk 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 to asterisk 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 purchase, and, lease asterisk 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 real and personal property. 42 U.S.C. 1982 On its face, therefore, 1982 appears to prohibit all discrimination against Negroes in the sale or rental of property discrimination by private owners as well as discrimination by public authorities. Indeed, even the respondents seem to concede that, if 1982 means what it says to use the words of the respondents' brief then it must encompass every racially motivated refusal to sell or rent and cannot be confined to officially sanctioned segregation in housing. Stressing what they consider to be the revolutionary implications of so literal a reading of 1982, the respondents argue that Congress cannot pos possibly have intended any such result. Our examination of the relevant history, however, persuades us that Congress meant exactly what it said and that Congress had the power to do so in order to enforce the 13th Amendment. Reversed. Douglas, Justice, Concurring. Some badges of slavery remain today. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 134 Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant The men who sat in Congress in 1866 were trying to remove some of the badges or customs of slavery when they enacted 1982. And, as my brother Stewart shows, the Congress that passed the so-called Open Housing Act in 1968 did not undercut any of the grounds on which 1982 rests. Harlan, Justice, dissenting, with Justice White the decision in this case appears to me to be most ill-considered and ill-advised. I believe that the court's construction of 1982 as applying to purely private action is almost surely wrong, and at the least is open to serious doubt. The issues of the constitutionality of 1982, as construed by the court, and of liability under the 14th Amendment alone, also present formidable difficulties. Moreover, the political processes of our own era have, since the date of oral argument in this case, given birth to a civil rights statute embodying fair housing provisions which would at the end of this year make available to others, though apparently not to the petitioners themselves, the type of relief which the petitioners now seek. It seems to me that this latter factor so diminishes the public importance of this case that by far the wisest course would be for this court to refrain from decision and to dismiss the writ as improvidently granted. Underscore 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 two. Fair Housing Act of 1968 contemporaneously with the Jones case. Congress passed the Fair Housing Act. It was initially broader than the 1866 Act in that it prohibited discrimination on bases other than race, and it has grown even broader over time. It now covers discrimination based on race, color, national origin, religion, sex, familial status, including children under the age of 18 living with parents or legal custodians, pregnant women and people securing custody of children under the age of 18, and disability. But the 1968 Act includes many exclusions that the 1866 Act does not, and in that sense it is narrower than the 1866 Act. The following case illustrates the applicability of the Act. 
Broom v Biondi 17F sub 2D 211, SDNY 1997, Carter, Judge, following a verdict in favor of plaintiffs Gregory and Shannon Broom, the Brooms, and third-party defendant Simone Demma, Demma, on various federal, state, and common law claims, the defendants-slash-third-party plaintiffs, the Beekman defendants, move for judgment as a matter of law, pursuant to Rule 50, Federal RCIV P, New Trial, pursuant to Rule 59, Federal RCIV P, or, in the alternative, remitter. I background this case arose from the Beekman defendant's rejection of the Brooms' application to sublet apartment 7A at the Beekman Hill House, a cooperative apartment building located at 425 East 51st Street in New York City. Demma became involved in this litigation when Nicholas Biondi, president of the Beekman Board of Directors, sued her in New York State Supreme Court for defamation, and on March 26, 1996, when the Beekman defendants brought a third-party action against Demma in this court alleging injurious falsehood based on statements made by Demma to the Brooms. Demma removed Nicholas Biondi's defamation claim to federal court, and counterclaimed against the Beekman defendants claiming that their rejection of the Brooms' application, issuance of a notice of default, and filing of two lawsuits constituted retaliation against her for supporting the Brooms' application. Demma filed her retaliation counterclaims under the Federal Fair Housing Act, 42 U.S.C. 3617. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 135. After a seven-day jury trial and one day of deliberations, the jury returned a verdict. The jury awarded the Brooms $230,000 in compensatory damages and $410,000 in punitive damages on their discrimination claims under the Federal Fair Housing Act, 42 U.S.C. 1981. Demo was awarded $100,000 in compensatory damages and $47,000 in punitive damages on her claim under the Federal Fair Housing Act, 42 U.S.C. 1981 and 1982. To judgment as a matter of law the Beekman defendants moved for judgment as a matter of law, pursuant to Rule 50, Federal RCIV P, with respect to the Brooms' discrimination claims and all of Demma's claims that were presented to the jury. A motion for judgment as a matter of law, pursuant to Rule 50, B, Federal RCIV P, may be granted when, 1, there is such a complete absence of evidence supporting the verdict that the jury's findings could only have been the result of sheer surmise and conjecture, or, 2, there is such an overwhelming amount of evidence in favor of the movement that reasonable and fair-minded men could not arrive at a verdict against him. Haskell v. Common Corp., 743F.2D113, 120, 2D Sir 1984. In considering the Rule 50, b. Motion, Tehe District Court is required to consider the evidence in the light most favorable to the party against whom the motion was made and to give that party the benefit of all reasonable inferences that the jury might have drawn in his favor from the evidence. McGuire Co., Inc. v. Herbert Construction Co., 945 F.72,74, S.D.N.Y.1994, 1996, Carter, J. Tehe trial court cannot assess the weight of conflicting evidence, pass on the credibility of the witnesses, or substitute its judgment for that of the jury. Katara v. D.E. Jones Commodities, Inc., 
835F.2D966, 970, 2D Sir 1987. A. The Brooms Claims The Brooms asserted discrimination claims against the Beekman defendants under the Federal Fair Housing Act, 42 U.S.C. 3601 ETSEQ that required the Brooms to make a prima facie case of housing discrimination. In order to establish a prima facie case of housing discrimination, a plaintiff must show that, 1, he is a member of the class protected by the statute, 2, he applied for and was qualified to rent the housing, 3, he was denied the opportunity to rent the housing, and, 4, the housing opportunity remained available thereafter. The Beekman defendants maintain that they are entitled to judgment as a matter of law on the discrimination claims because the Brooms did not show that they were qualified to sublet the apartment in question. Specifically, the Beekman defendants argue that the Brooms failed to prove that they could live peacefully and harmoniously with other members of the Beekman Hill House community. In this circuit, however, the Brooms need not make this showing to establish that they are qualified subtenants. The courts have found a plaintiff to be qualified for housing if he is financially able to rent or buy such housing. The record contains evidence from which the jury could rationally conclude that the Brooms were qualified to sublease apartment 7A. At trial, the Beekman defendants stated that the Brooms' EACH earned a great deal of money and conceded that as far as financially, they would make excellent tenants. Therefore, the court finds that the jury's verdict must be sustained on this issue. The Beekman defendants also assert that the Brooms did not prove their discrimination claims because they did not show proof of circumstances giving rise to an inference of discrimination as part of their prima facie case. In this circuit, a housing discrimination plaintiff raises an inference of discrimination when he establishes a prima facie case. The proof shows that the Brooms are members of a protected class, they were qualified to sublease apartment 7A, their sublease application was denied and the apartment remained available thereafter. Nothing more need be shown to establish a prima facie case. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 136 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant Therefore, the court finds that the Brooms did show an inference of housing discrimination. At trial, the Beekman defendants had the burden of rebutting any inference of housing discrimination by proffering a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for their assertions. The Beekman defendants explained that they rejected the Brooms' application because they perceived them as confrontational and litigious, and believed Demma was trying to intimidate them into accepting the Brooms as subtenants by raising charges of racism. Once a defendant articulates a reason for his actions, the burden shifts to plaintiff to demonstrate that the articulated reason was a pretext for housing discrimination. The Beekman defendants claim that the Brooms did not present any evidence of race discrimination or establish that their proffered reasons for rejecting the sublease application were pretextual. To determine whether a defendant's putative purpose is a pretext, a fact finder need not, and indeed should not evaluate whether a defendant's stated purpose is unwise or unreasonable. DeMarco v. Holy Cross High School 4F.3D166, 170 71, 2D Sir 1993. Rather, the decision should be based on whether the proffered reason is the actual reason for the challenged action. 
The court finds that the trial record contains evidence from which the jury could reasonably conclude that the Beekman defendants' articulated REA sons for rejecting the Broom's sublet application were pretextual and that the decision was actually based on Gregory Broom's race. Contrary to the Beekman defendants' assertions, the Brooms testified that they did not threaten to sue the board or any of its MEM bears. At trial, the Brooms also stated that they submitted references from former landlords and employers as part of their sublet application and that none of the board MEM bears checked any of these references to ask about the Brooms and their potential to be good tenants. Demma testified that she called each board member to advocate for the Brooms application because she believed they were qualified and discussed the issue of race with each defendant because she had reason to suspect that the brooms were being treated differently from former subtenants because of race. At trial, Demma described past incidents in which she believed Biondi acted in a racially prejudiced manner, and stated that she suspected race was a factor in considering the brooms sublet application because Biondi was in charge of the approval process. The record also shows that the Beekman board members discussed Gregory Broom's race when reviewing his application. Following his meeting with Gregory Broom, Biondi mentioned to Wiener that Broom was a black man. Wiener wrote Broom's race at the top of his notes concerning the Broom application, and told Demma that he felt better about the Broom's application upon learning that Shannon Broom was white. The evidence also indicates that after meeting Gregory Broom, Biondi told Silverman that he felt uneasy and that Silverman said to Mr. Biondi that if you feel uneasy because Mr. Broom is black, we will be sued. The record shows that Appleby introduced the issue of race at the June 13th interview by rudely asking the Brooms if they were going to sue and whether they thought they had been racially discriminated against in the application process. Kunde's trial testimony also shows that she voted to reject the Brooms application because she believed that the Brooms would sue based on race discrimination whenever they encountered any problem as tenants in the building. Concede airing this evidence in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs, the motion for judgment as a matter of law regarding the Brooms' discrimination claims must be denied. B. Demma's counterclaims Demma asserted counterclaims against the Beekman defendants for retaliation under the Federal Fair Housing Act and the New York Human Rights Law, breach of fiduciary duty, breach of contract, and tortious interference with the performance of a contract. The Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Rights and Duties 137 Beekman defendants contend that they are entitled to judgment as a matter of law on these counterclaims because there was no rational basis upon which a jury could have reasonably found for her on any of them. One retaliation counterclaims Demma counterclaimed that the Beekman defendants retaliated against her, for supporting the Brooms sublet application, by rejecting the sublease, issuing a notice of default, and filing two lawsuits. Under the Federal Fair Housing Act and the New York Human Rights Law, Demma was required to make a prima facie case of retaliation by showing that, 1, she engaged in protected activity by opposing conduct prohibited under each of these laws, 2, the Beekman defendants were aware of that activity, 3, she was subject to an adverse action, and, 4, there was a causal connection between the protected activity and the adverse action. The Beekman defendants argue that they are entitled to judgment as a matter of law because Demma failed to establish a prima facie case of retaliation. Specifically, the Beekman defendants claim that Demma failed to demonstrate that she engaged in a protected activity. To prove that she engaged in protected activity, 
Dema had to show that she took action to affirmatively oppose discrimination against the plaintiffs by the Beekman defendants. Dema did not have to establish that the conduct she opposed was in fact a violation of the Federal Fair Housing Act and the New York Human Rights Law, but only that she had a good faith, reasonable belief that the underlying actions of the Beekman defendants violated the law. Abel v. Bonfanti, 625F.Sup. 263-267-S.D.N.Y.1985, J. Demma testified that she reasonably believed the board's actions toward the brooms were motivated by racial prejudice. Demma presented evidence showing that she developed this perception because Nicholas Biondi and the board treated the brooms differently from former sublet applicants. Demma first spoke with Biondi about the brooms application on May 31 or June 1, and told him about their financial qualifications. Demma testified that Biondi said he would meet with Gregory Broom and that no full board meeting would be required because the board would go along with his decision concerning the application. After meeting with Gregory Broom on June 5, however, the record shows that the brooms were required to meet with the full board on the following evening. Demma testified that she became concerned about the requirement of a second meeting because this was an unprecedented requirement for the approval process and she reasonably believed that this change was made based on race because the brooms were otherwise qualified applicants. The evidence also demonstrates that Demma took affirmative action to oppose what she believed to be the Beekman defendants' attempt to frustrate the brooms' sublet application because of Gregory Broom's race. Demma testified that she encouraged the brooms to follow through the board's approval process, spoke with Eddie Vega, the superintendent, to facilitate the brooms' move into the apartment, tried to call Biondi and visited Maria Caprero at American Landmark to find out why a second board meeting was required, and called each board of director to ask them to approve the Broom's sublet application. Based on this evidence, the court finds that the jury could conclude that the protected activity requirement of her retaliation claims was satisfied and, therefore, that she made a prima facie case of retaliation. At trial, the Beekman defendants rebutted Demma's prima facie showing of retaliation by providing a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for their rejection of the Broom's sublease application. The Beekman defendants argue that they are entitled to judgment as a matter of law on Demma's retaliation claims because she failed to show that these reasons were a pretext for a racially discriminatory motive. The trial record shows, Semeraro, Introduction to Property 138 Chapter 4, Landlord-tenant however, that the jury could reasonably decide that the Broom's sublet application was denied because of Gregory Broom's race. Therefore, the Beekman defendant's motion for judgment as a matter of law with respect to Demma's retaliation claims is denied. In response to the defendant's argument that the court should reduce the damages awarded, the court held that I in the face of persistent housing discrimination which continues unabated some 30 years after Congress passed the Fair Housing Act to stamp out decades of such discriminatory behavior, the genuine emotional pain associated with such discrimination should not be devalued by unreasonably low compensatory damage awards, especially when one considers the difficulty a plaintiff faces in establishing that he or she was a victim of housing discrimination. After reviewing the awards given for e-emotional distress in comparable cases and the evidence adduced at trial, 
the court finds that the actual emotional and mental damages suffered by the brooms were substantial and that the jury's compensatory award of $114,000 each for emotional damages is not excessive. v. Conclusion The Beekman Defendant's Motions for Judgment as a Matter of Law, under Rule 50, Federal R. Civ. P., and for a remitter of the punitive damages awarded to the brooms and Dema are denied in all respects as is the motion for a remitter of the compensatory damages awarded to the brooms. Notes and Questions 1. To see cases applying the Fair Housing Act in the context of zoning and the sale of residential real estate, see Chapters 7.2.G and 8.7. D. Retaliatory conduct by landlords The creation of new tenant rights through the expanded interpretation of the COV and of quiet enjoyment and the creation of the implied warranty of habitability soon led to a new concern. Landlords might discourage tenants from exercising these rights by evicting tenants who assert them or by raising the rent or cutting back service as soon as the landlord is legally able to do so. Most jurisdictions quickly responded by adopting laws prohibiting landlords from evicting residential tenants in retaliation for the tenants' exercise of their legal rights or taking other retaliatory actions. The prohibition on retaliatory conduct generally does not apply to commercial tenants. See Restatement Second, of property, landlord, and tenant, 14.8 and 14.9. Most jurisdictions presume that any eviction or other retaliatory action within a set time after the tenant exercises her rights typically 90 to 180 days is retaliatory. Retaliation after this time period is still prohibited, but no presumption applies. A tenant must therefore prove that the landlord's decision to evict her was based on a retaliatory motive. See CalCiv Code 1942.5, A, and, C. Notable exceptions include New York and New Jersey, which are at opposite extremes. New York continues to permit retaliatory evictions so long as the landlord provides the tenant sufficient time to find suitable housing. New Jersey, by contrast, permits the landlord to evict a tenant at the end of the lease only for good cause even if the tenant has not exercised any rights. See Edward H. Robin, The Revolution in Residential Landlord-Tenant Law, Causes and Consequences, 69 C.O.R. L. Revelation 517, 534 35, 1984. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 139 E. Waste in the Modern Landlord-Tenant Context under Modern Law. The landlord's duties are primarily the corollaries of the tenants' rights under the English rule for delivery of possession, the covenant of quiet enjoyment, and the implied warranty of habitability. These doctrines have had the effect of shifting the burden of preventing permissive waste from the present possessory interest holder, the tenant, to the future interest holder, the landlord. Of course, the landlord retains the right to prohibit affirmative waste, intentional depletion of resources on the property, and, at least with respect to short-term leases, ameliorative waste, changing the character of the property. F. Right to assign and sublease in furtherance of the laws generally favoring the alienation of property, tenants are presumed to have the right to assign or sublease their leasehold rights to subtenants. As with the duty to deliver possession, however, Landlords and tenants are generally free to alter this presumption through explicit leasehold provisions. As might be expected given the preference for alienation, courts look for ways to avoid these restrictions. For example, 
a prohibition on assignments will not block a tenant from subleasing. Some of the most common disputes between landlords and tenants revolve around subleases and assignments. The problems in this area center on who the landlord can sue if a tenant assigns or subleases his interest to a subtenant and the subtenant breaches the agreement. The landlord may, of course, evict a breaching subtenant from the property. But from whom can the landlord recover damages? Only the subtenant? Only the original tenant? Both? After exploring the differences between assignments and subleases, this section addresses the concept of privity that defines who the landlord can sue for back rent and then addresses the limitations on the landlord's ability to prohibit assignments and subleases. One distinguishing assignments from subleases the question of who a landlord can sue when the original tenant rents to a third party and the third party defaults hinges on whether the tenant's agreement with the third party is an assignment or a sublease. The basic rules here can be easily summarized, if the original tenant, T, assigns her interest to another party, T1, the landlord can sue both T and T1, if the T sublets her interest to another party, the landlord can only sue T and cannot sue T1. To determine whether the agreement between T and T1 is an assignment or a sublease, we ask whether T passed all of her interest in the lease, or portion of the lease when less than all of the leased property is transferred to a subtenant, to T1 or passed less than all of her interest in the lease to T1. If T passed her entire interest in the portion of the leased property transferred to T1, it is an assignment, if T passed anything less than all of her interest in the leased property transferred to T1, it is a sublease. In other words, in a sublease T retains some time on her lease and will retake possession after the sublease to T1 ends. In an assignment, T transfers the entire remaining interest in her lease. When leasehold rights are subleased or assigned more than once, However, the various interests can become somewhat more complicated. What if, for example, there are a series of exchanges where rents to T, T assigns to T1 and T1 subleases to T2 and T2 assigns to T3? In order to be able to analyze these more complex problems, and to fully understand the difference between assignments and subleases, it is necessary to understand two relationships that arise between landlord and tenant, Privity of Estate and Privity of Contract. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 140 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant When a landlord and a tenant enter into a lease, they are said to be both in privity of estate and in privity of contract with one another. We will learn more about privity of estate in the context of equitable servitudes, but for now, it suffices to say that privity of estate is a relationship based on a shared interest in a piece of property. Because the landlord and tenant share an interest in the same piece of property, they are in privity of estate. Privity of contract, by contrast, is a contractual relationship that arises from the lease between the landlord and tenant. Importantly, the privity of estate and privity of contract relationships explain why the landlord above can sue either T or T1 if there was an assignment but only T if there was a sublease. With regard to privity of contract, Land T will always be in privity of contract with one another because of their lease. Land T have a lease with one another, and their privity of contract relationship will continue until the end of that lease. This is why, regardless of whether T assigns to T1 or subleases to T1, L can always sue T. The only limited exception to this rule is if L grants T a novation, a new agreement, 
altering the original lease. The privity of estate relationship is another story. Recall, when there is an assignment, T transfers all of her interest in the land to T1. As a result, once T assigns away her interest, privity of estate between T and Liz terminated for the simple reason that T no longer has any interest in the land. T1 has assumed all of T's interest in an assignment. Accordingly, T1 and Lar now in privity of estate. By contrast, if T subleases to T1, T is still in privity of estate with L. This is because in a sublease T has retained some interest in the land some period of time after T1's sublease ends when T will once again have a possessory interest in the property. And, since T is still in privity of estate with L in the case of a sublease, T1 is not in privity of estate with L. This is why, if T assigns her interest to T1, L can sue either T or T1. When there is an assignment list in privity of estate with T1 and privity of contract with T. But, if T sublets to T1, listen neither privity of estate nor privity of contract with T1. Therefore, L cannot sue T1 and can only sue T, with whom listen both privity of estate and privity of contract. One useful way to remember and understand these relationships is to think of privity of contract as being sticky in other words, once parties are in privity of contract with one another. This relationship will stick until the lease ends or in the uncommon event that the landlord grants an ovation. Privity of estate, by contrast, exists only between the landlord and the party with the right to possession at the end of the lease. The following chart illustrates these relationships, privity of estate privity of contract at the time of the lease between L land T land T and T T assigns to T1 land T1 land T T subleases to T1 land T land T semeraro. Introduction to Property 2 Rights and Duties 141 2 Illustrative Cases Italian Fisherman v. Middlemoss 313 MD 156, 1988, Cole, Judge, in this case we must decide whether the assignor of a leasehold estate has a right of re-entry upon default in the terms of the lease by the assignee. The relevant facts are as follows. In 1975, the Italian Fisherman, Incorporated, Italian Fisherman, entered into a 25-year ground lease with Robert Middlemoss, now deceased, and Rosalie Middlemoss, Middlemoss, for property located in Rockville, Maryland. The lease provided that Italian Fisherman would be permitted to erect a building on the property in order to conduct business there. In addition, and of particular importance to this case, Paragraph 8 of the lease provided that Italian fishermen could not sell, assign, or transfer the lease nor sublet the property without first obtaining the approval of Middlemaws. In conjunction with this provision, Paragraph 14, b, an anti-waiver clause, provided that consent or approval by one party in one circumstance would not be deemed consent or approval of any other action on the same or subsequent occasion. Finally, Paragraph 15 asserted that the covenants and provisions of the lease would likewise apply to the successors and assigns of the respective parties. Italian fishermen took possession of the property and constructed a building at a cost of approximately $175,000 for use as a restaurant. Shortly thereafter, Middlemoss consented to a sale of the outstanding capital stock of Italian fishermen to another corporation, New Leaf, Incorporated. Middlemoss made clear, however, that Italian fishermen would remain the lessee and be responsible for the lease covenants. 
In October, 1976, Italian fishermen entered into negotiations with Armand's Chicago Pizzeria Rockville Limited Partnership, Armand's, for the sale of the restaurant Busyness. In exchange for the business, Armand's agreed to pay Italian fishermen approximately $335,000 evidenced by promissory notes. The deal was finalized when Middlemas subsequently consented to an assignment of the lease from Italian fishermen to Armand's. Again, Middlemas made clear that Italian fishermen was not relieved of its responsibility for performance of obligations contained in the lease. Italian fishermen assigned all of its right, title, and interest in the lease to ARMANDs. To secure payment of the purchase price for the restaurant business, Armand's executed a security agreement granting Italian fishermen a purchase money security interest in the lease, improvements, furnishings, equipment, and fixtures. A financing statement evidencing the security agreement was filed and recorded in land records of Montgomery County. Middlemas was not made aware of and did not give her consent to the security agreement. Armand's operated a restaurant on the premises until 1984 when it began to experience financial difficulty. The restaurant was closed in August, 1984, and Armand's Institute negotiations for the sale of the business. However, Italian fishermen declined to consent to the sale. In response, Armand's filed suit against Italian fishermen seeking injunctive and declaratory relief. Italian fishermen counterclaimed seeking enforcement of its rights under the security agreement. Middlemas was not a party to these proceedings. Armand's failed to pay real estate taxes due on September 30, 1984, and did not pay the rent due on October 1, 1984. On October 12, 1984, Middlemas sent a notice of default to Armand's and on October 19 Middlemas paid the overdue taxes. No notice of non-payment was sent to Italian fishermen, however, it sent to Middlemas on November 19, checks dated November 9, 1984, in payment of the real estate taxes and the October Semeraro, Introduction to Property 142 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant Rent. Armand's did not pay November's rent. Italian fishermen discovered this breach and sent a check covering the rent on November 26, 1984. By the end of November, Armand's had placed a sign in a window of the restaurant to the effect that the business would be under new management. Armand's also removed most of the equipment and furniture to another restaurant in College Park, Maryland. The parking lot surrounding the restaurant was being utilized by a neighboring car dealer to store his vehicles, and trash was accumulating on the property. On December 12, 1984, Middlemas delivered a lease termination notice to ARMANDs and Italian fishermen stating that the lease had been breached because of ARMANDs, 1, failure to pay the September real estate taxes, 2, failure to pay the October and November rent, and, 3, abandonment of the premises. Italian fishermen's checks were rejected and returned by Middlemas to Italian fishermen. On January 12, 1985, Middlemas filed suit in the district court for Montgomery County against Armands seeking repossession of the property. Armands did not answer. Italian fishermen, however, was granted the right to intervene. Judge Stanley Clavin of the district court, after a protracted trial, rendered an oral opinion wherein he emphasized that the rights of the parties, 
as shaped by the transfer of the lease from Italian fishermen to Armin's, were critical to the outcome of the case. He concluded that Italian fishermen's transfer of the lease was an assignment giving ARMANDs all of Italian fishermen's right, title, and interest in the lease, and no right of re-entry was reserved. The trial judge also found that the security agreement between ARMANDs and Italian fishermen, which used the lease as collateral, was ineffective to give Italian fishermen an interest in the lease because the security agreement was never AP proved by Middlemas. Consequently, Italian fishermen was merely a creditor of Armin's and had no reversionary rights in the property. The checks sent from Italian fishermen to Middlemas could only satisfy Italian fishermen's contractual liability under the lease. Finally, the trial judge specifically found that Armin's had vacated the premises and that its abandonment was a material breach of the lease justifying eviction. Middlemas was therefore granted possession of the premises. Italian fishermen appealed this decision to the circuit court for Montgomery County which affirmed. We granted Italian fishermen's petition for certiorari. The critical question we must address is whether Italian fishermen retained a right to re-enter the premises as lessee after assigning the lease to Armin's. To answer this question, a brief review of the law relating to the transfer of leasehold estates is in order. A lease of land creates rights and duties based on two independent grounds. First, the lease represents a conveyance of an estate in real property and a relationship arises between the lessor and lessee based on ownership of the demised premises. The parties are said to be in privity of estate as long as the landlord-tenant relationship exists. Second, the lease agreement creates a contractual relationship between the lessor and lessee. The parties are said to be in privity of contract with the terms of the lease defining their rights and obligations. Typically, the lessee's obligation to pay rent and taxes arises by virtue of both privity of estate and privity of contract. A lease can be transferred by the lessee in one of two ways, by assignment or sub-lease. When a lease is transferred by assignment, the assignee steps into the lessee's shoes and acquires all the lessee's rights in the lease. Privity of estate ends between the lessor and lessee and is created between the lessor and the assignee. The assignee therefore becomes bound by the covenants running with the land. Privity of contract between the lessor and lessee, however, does not end by the mere assignment of the lease and the lessee is therefore still bound by the lease provisions. On the other hand, when a lease is transferred by sublease, a new lessor-lessee relationship is created between the original lessee Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 143 and the sublessee. The original lessee retains both privity of estate and privity of contract with the original lessor and no legal relationship is created between the lessor and the sub-lessee. Consequently, the legal effect differs between an assignment and a sub-lease. The common law rule governing the determination of whether a lease transfer is an assignment or a sub-lease is easily stated, if the instrument purports to transfer the lessee's estate for the entire remainder of the term it is an assignment, regardless of its form or of the party's intention, however, if the instrument purports to transfer the lessee's estate for less than the entire term even for a day less it is a sublease, regardless of its form or the party's intention. Under a strict application of the law of assignment it is clear that Italian fishermen did not have the right to re-enter the premises as lessee. In particular, the lease provided that Italian fishermen had to obtain Middlemas's consent before assigning or subletting its leasehold estate in the Rockville property.
Middlemoss specifically consented to an assignment of the lease from Italian fishermen to Armands but conditioned her consent so that Italian fishermen would remain liable for any unpaid rent. Since Italian fishermen transferred to Armands all of its right, title, and interest in the Rockville property, one may conclude that the assignment was unequivocal and that Italian fishermen had divested itself of any interest in the property. Nevertheless, Italian fishermen maintains that the parties intended that Italian fishermen would have a right to re-enter as lessee of the property. We reject the argument that Middlemaz's insistence that Italian fishermen remain liable for the rent demonstrated that Middlemaz intended for Italian fishermen to have the right to re-enter the premises as lessee. As previously discussed, Italian fishermen was obligated to pay the rent by virtue of its continuing privity of contract with Middlemaz, despite the assignment to Armands. Nor did Italian fishermen's tender of the October and November rent revive Italian fishermen's right of re-entry. Once transferred by act of assignment, this right was lost unless revived by the lessor. Therefore, once Middlemaz decided to terminate the lease on grounds of abandonment by Armands, no act of Italian fishermen could undermine this election. Italian fishermen also suggests that the security agreement represents a valid assignment of the lease under the line of cases which teach that an assignment from an assignee back to the original lessee-slash-assignor need not be supported by the landlord's consent. We find, however, that this proposition has not gained wide acceptance and we decline to follow it. We believe that the better approach is to look to the express provisions of the lease. Here. The lease specifically provided that the landlord's consent was necessary to effectuate an assignment. The validity of such a provision was established in Jacobs v. Clawens, 225 MD 147, 1961. There is no exemption from this requirement in the event the assignee wishes to assign or sublet to the original lessee-slash-assignor. Accordingly, whether the assignment is being made back to the original lessee or some other party is irrelevant. What is important is that the assignment be approved by the landlord. Since Middlemaz never consented to the security agreement, no right accrued to Italian fisherman to re-enter the premises as lessee. In the alternative, Italian fisherman argues that Middlemaz's consent to the original assignment from Italian fisherman to Armands also serves as consent for the transfer or assignment of the lease from Armands back to fisherman by way of the security agreement. Italian fisherman relies on the rule established in Doomper's case, 4 Coke 119b, 1578, adopted by this court in Reed v. John F. Weissner Brewing Co., 88 MD 234. 1898. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 144 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant Doomper's case stands for the proposition that the lessor's consent to one assignment dispenses with the need to obtain the lessor's consent for any future assignments. This rule is inapplicable in this case, however, because the lease from Middlemoss to Italian fishermen expressly provides in paragraph 14, b that consent to one transfer would not serve to waive the consent requirement as to any other transfers. That the landlord may preserve his rights, despite the rule in Doomper's case, by including this type of provision in a lease is generally accepted. Since Italian fishermen had clearly divested itself of any rights in the premises by its assignment of the leasehold to Armands, the only remaining question is whether ARMANDs, the lessee, had effectively abandoned the premises. The trial judge found that it had and we agree. In this case, 
the trial judge found as a fact that Armands abandoned the premises because it, 1, failed to pay the October and November rent, 2, failed to pay the real estate taxes due September 30, 3, closed its business, 4, turned off the gas and electricity in the building, 5, failed to winterize the building seasonably, 6, removed its equipment from the premises, 7, allowed the premises to be used as a parking lot, and, 8, declined to participate in the suit. We think this evidence is more than sufficient to support the trial judge's conclusion. Because Armands, contrary to the lease, abandoned the premises, Middlemas is entitled to possession, there being no right of re-entry to Italian fishermen. Christensen v. Tidewater Fiber 172n.c.app 575, 2005, Steelman, Justice, Plaintiff was the owner of property located at 700 Mallard Avenue, Durham, the property. On June 30, 1997, Plaintiff entered into a lease agreement with Sons Hairs, Inc., Sons Hairs, a North Carolina non-profit corporation which conducted curbside recce cling services for the city of Durham. The term of the lease was July 1, 1997 to June 30, 2000 with monthly rental payments of $4,716.25. Defendant is a family-owned corporation engaged in the business of recycling. In the spring of 1998, Defendant learned that Sons Hairs was unable to continue to perform recycling services for Durham. Defendant subsequently entered into a contract with Durham to perform the curbside recycling services previously performed by Sons Hairs. Defendant entered into an agreement with Sunshares on October 31, 1998. In the agreement, defendant agreed to pay rent on the property for the 60-day period immediately following October 31, 1998 as a temporary measure until defendant could locate another property more suitable for the operation of its busyness. Plaintiff had no knowledge of the negotiations between Sunshares and defendant and at no time gave explicit consent to any agreement between Sunshares and defendant. The lease agreement between plaintiff and Sunshares required plaintiff's prior written consent for any such agreement to be valid. Plaintiff did not become aware of defendant's use of the property until a difference in the physical appearance of the rent check was brought to his attention by his staff. Plaintiff consulted with counsel and was advised that his negotiation of the November and December rent checks precluded him from evicting defendant. Plaintiff subsequently accepted and deposited a rent check from defendant for January 1999. Once a suitable location became available at the end of January, 1999, defendant transferred its operations away from the property. Defendant paid rent to plaintiff from November 1, 1998 through January. 1999. Defendant ceased active recycling operations on Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 145 The property in late January or early February, 1999. No payments were made to plaintiff after January, 1999. Quantities of recyclable material belonging to defendant remained at the property until the middle of May, 1999 when they were removed by APB, Inc., a contractor engaged by defendant. Other, non-recyclable materials were left on the site by defendant until September of 2000. Plaintiff filed this action on February 28, 2002, 
seeking to recover rent due under the lease agreement and reimbursement for expenses incurred for the repair of the property and the clean-up of trash left on the premises. The case was tried before the Honorable Stafford G. Bullock, sitting without a jury. Judge Bullock entered a judgment in favor of plaintiff. Defendant Appeals Defendant first argues that the trial court erred in determining defendant assumed the lease between plaintiff and son's heirs, and is obligated for additional payment of rent, as well as other obligations under the lease between plaintiff and son's heirs. We agree. Based on the findings of fact, the trial court made the following contested conclusions of law, 1, defendant agreed with son's heirs that it was assuming the lease. And, 2, because plaintiff was not a party to the agreement between defendant and son's heirs, any attempted limitation on the term of the assumption is ineffective in the absence of proof that plaintiff knew of and accepted the limited term. The determinative issue in the instant appeal is whether the lease agreement between son's heirs and defendant constituted an assignment or a sublease. Oer courts have adopted the traditional bright line test for determining whether a conveyance by a tenant of leased premises is an assignment or a sublease. Under this test, a conveyance is an assignment if the tenant conveys his entire interest in the premises, without retaining any reversionary interest in the term itself. A sublease, on the other hand, is a conveyance in which the tenant retains a reversion in some portion of the original lease term, however short. Northside Station Association P. Ship v. Madri, 105N.C.App. 384-388. 1992. If the conveyance is an assignment, privity of estate is created between the original lessor and the assignee with regard to lease covenants that run with the land, and the original lessor has a right of action directly against the assignee. The original lessor has no such right against a sublessee. ID at 389. In general, Privity of estate is not established between the original landlord and the sublessee and the landlord has no direct action with respect to the covenants in the original lease as against the sublessee, there is neither privity of estate nor privity of contract as between the original landlord and a sublessee, and the sublessee can sue only his immediate lessor with respect to the lease. Neil V. Craig Brown, Inc., 86n.c.app 157, 162, 1987. In the instant case, Sun's Hairs and defendant executed an agreement whereby defendant agreed to assume Sun Shares lease obligations for the months of November and December, 1998. Sun Shares lease with plaintiff was not due to terminate until June 30, 2000. Thus there was no agreement by Sun's Hairs to convey its entire interest in the property to defendant. This conveyance could not be an assignment, it was a sublease. By depositing defendant's checks, plaintiff waived his right to receive prior written notice of the sublease, and thus validated the agreement to sublet between son's heirs and defendant. As a sublessee of son's heirs, there was no privity of estate or contract between defendant and plaintiff, defendant was not bound by the terms of the lease between son's shares and plaintiff and plaintiff had no recourse against defendant for any violations Semeraro, Introduction to Property 146 Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Thereof. Plaintiff's sole remedy for unpaid rent for the balance of the lease term was against son's heirs. Defendant was liable only to son's heirs pursuant to their agreement. Son's heirs remained liable to plaintiff for all the terms of its lease with plaintiff until its expiration.
defendant was not liable to plaintiff for the breach of any covenants in the lease, and thus was not liable to plaintiff for the payment of rent, property taxes, or insurance under the lease. These portions of the trial court's judgment must be vacated. The court went on to find that the defendant could be held liable for the physical damage caused to the plaintiff's property. This discussion has been omitted. Assignment and sublease short problems 1. Lucy and Tyler enter into a lease on January 1, 2007 for two years. On June 1, 2007, Tyler assigns his entire interest in the lease to Tammy. On August 1, 2007, Tammy assigns her entire interest to Tony. Tony defaults. Which of the parties, Tyler, Tammy, and Tony, can Lucy sue? 2. Larry and Tucker enter into a lease on January 1, 2007 for two years. On June 1, 2007, Tucker assigns his entire interest in the lease to Trent. On August 1, 2007, Trent sublets to Tara for five months. Tara defaults. Which of the parties, Tucker, Trent, and Tara, can Larry sue? G. Restrictions on the right to assignment and sublease This next case addresses the second broad issue that we look at in the area of assignments and subleases, to what extent can a landlord prohibit or restrict a tenant from assigning or subleasing her interest. Kendall v. Ernest Pestana, Inc. 40 Cal.3D 488, 1985, Broussard, Justice, this case concerns the effect of a provision in a commercial LEASE 1 that the lessee may not assign the lease or sublet the premises without the lessor's prior written consent. The question we address is whether, in the absence of a provision that such consent will not be unreasonably withheld, a lessor may unreasonably and arbitrarily withhold his or her consent to an assignment. Point 2 This is a question of first impression in this court. I. This case arises on appeal from an order sustaining a demurrer without leave to amend. We review the allegations of the complaint applying the established principle that a demurrer admits the truth of all material factual allegations in the complaint. Alcorn v. Anbro Engineering, Inc. 1970, 2 Cal.3d 493, 496. 1. We are presented only with a commercial lease and therefore do not address the question whether residential leases are controlled by the principles articulated in this opinion. 2. Since the present case involves an assignment rather than a sublease, we will speak primarily in terms of assignments. However, our holding applies equally to subleases. The difference between an assignment and a sublease is that an assignment transfers the lessee's entire interest in the property whereas a sublease transfers only a portion of that interest, with the original lessee retaining a right of re-entry at some point during the unexpired term of the lease. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Rights and Duties 147 The allegations of the complaint may be summarized as follows. The lease at issue is for 14,400 square feet of hangar space at the San Jose Municipal Airport. The City of San Jose, as owner of the property, leased it to Irving and Janice Perlich, who in turn assigned their interest to Respondent Ernest Pestana, incorporated prior to assigning their interest to Respondent, the Perlich is entered into a 25-year sublease with one Robert Bixler commencing on January 1, 1970. The sublease covered an original five-year term plus four five-year options to renew. 
the rental rate was to be increased every 10 years in the same proportion as rents increased on the master lease from the city of San Jose. The premises were to be used by Bixler for the purpose of conducting an airplane maintenance business. Bixler conducted such a business under the name Flight Services until, in 1981, he agreed to sell the business to appellants Jack Kendall, Grady O'Hara, and Vicky O'Hara. The proposed sale included the business and the equipment, inventory, and improvements on the property, together with the existing lease. The proposed assignees had a stronger financial statement and greater net worth than the current lessee, Bixler, and they were willing to be bound by the terms of the lease. The lease provided that written consent of the lessor was required before the lessee could assign his interest, and that failure to obtain such consent rendered the lease voidably at the option of the lessor. Accordingly, Bixler requested consent from the Perlich's successor in interest, Respondent Ernest Pestana, Incorporated Respondent refused to consent to the assignment and maintained that it had an absolute right arbitrarily to refuse any such request. The complaint recites that Respondent demanded increased rent and other more onerous terms as a condition of consenting to Bixler's transfer of interest. The proposed assignees brought suit for declaratory and injunctive relief and damages seeking, inter alia, a declaration that the refusal of Ernest Pestana, in to consent to the assignment of the lease is unreasonable and is an unlawful restraint on the freedom of alienation. The trial court sustained a demur to the complaint without leave to amend and this appeal followed. 2. The law generally favors free alienability of property, and California follows the common law rule that a leasehold interest is freely alienable. Contractual restrictions on the alienability of leasehold interests are, however, permitted. Such restrictions are used defied as reasonable protection of the interests of the lessor as to who shall possess and manage property in which he has a reversionary interest and from which he is deriving income. Shoshinsky, American Law of Landlord and Tenant, 1980 The common law's hostility toward restraints on alienation has caused such restraints on leasehold interests to be strictly construed against the lessor. Thus, in Chapman v. Great Western Gypsum Co., 1932, 216 calories 420, where the lease contained a COV in and against assignment without the consent of the lessor, this court stated, it hardly needs citation of authority to the principle that covenants limiting the free alienation of property such as covenants against assignment are barely tolerated and must be strictly construed. ID at 426. This is particularly true where the restraint in question is a forfeiture restraint, under which the lessor has the option to terminate the lease if an assignment is made without his or her consent. Nevertheless, a majority of jurisdictions have long adhered to the rule that where a lease contains an approval clause, a clause stating that the lease cannot be assigned without the prior consent of the lessor, the lessor may arbitrarily refuse to approve a proposed assignee no matter how suitable the assignee appears to be and no matter how unreasonable the lessor's objection. The harsh consequences of this rule have often been avoided through application of the doctrines of waiver and estoppel, under which the lessor may semeraro, introduction to property 148 chapter 4, landlord-tenant be found to have waived, or be estopped from asserting, the right to refuse consent to assignment. The traditional majority rule has come under steady attack in recent years. A growing minority of jurisdictions now hold that where a lease provides for assignment only with the prior consent of the lessor, 
such consent may be withheld only where the lessor has a commercially reasonable objection to the assignment, even in the absence of a provision in the lease stating that consent to assignment will not be unreasonably withheld. For the reasons discussed below, we conclude that the minority rule is the preferable position. 3. The impetus for change in the majority rule has come from two directions, reflecting the dual nature of a lease as a conveyance of a leasehold interest in a contract. The policy against restraints on alienation pertains to leases in their nature as conveyances. Numerous courts and commentators have recognized that in recent times the necessity of permitting reasonable alienation of commercial space has become paramount in our increasingly urban society. Schweisso v. Williams, 1984, 150 calories app.3d883, 887. Civil Code 711 provides, conditions restraining alienation, when repugnant to the interest created, are void. It is well settled that this rule is not absolute in its application, but forbids only unreasonable restraints on alienation. Reasonableness is determined by comparing the justification for a particular restraint on alienation with the quantum of restraint actually imposed by it. T he greater the quantum of restraint that results from enforcement of a given clause, the greater must be the justification for that enforcement. Wellencamp v. Bank of America, 1978, 21 Cal.3d 943, 949. In Cohen v. Ray 1983, 147 Cal.app.3d321 The court examined the reasonableness of the restraint created by an approval clause in a lease, because the lessor has an interest in the character of the proposed commercial assignee, we cannot say that an assignment provision requiring the lessor's consent to an assignment is inherently repugnant to the leasehold interest created. We do conclude, however, that if such an assignment provision is implemented in such a manner that its underlying purpose is perverted by the arbitrary or unreasonable withholding of consent, an unreasonable restraint on alienation is established. ID at 329. One commentator explains as follows, the common law hostility to restraints on alienation had a large exception with respect to estates for years. A lessor could prohibit the lessee from transferring the estate for years to whatever extent he might desire. It was believed that the objectives served by allowing such restraints outweighed the social evils implicit in the restraints, in that they gave to the lessor a needed control over the person entrusted with the lessor's property and to whom he must look for the performance of the covenants contained in the lease. Whether this reasoning retains full validity can well be doubted. Relationships between lessor and lessee have tended to become more and more impersonal. Courts have considerably lessened the effectiveness of restraint clauses by strict construction and liberal applications of the doctrine of waiver. With the shortage of housing and, in many places, of commercial space as well, the allowance of lease clauses forbidding assignments and subleases is beginning to be curtailed by statutes. 2 Powell on Real Property 246 1 at pages 372.97-372.98. The Restatement Second of Property adopts the minority rule on the validity of approval clauses in leases, a restraint on alienation without the consent of the landlord of a tenant's interest in leased property is valid, but the landlord's consent to an alienation by the tenant cannot be withheld unreasonably, unless a freely negotiated provision in Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 149 The lease gives the landlord an absolute right to withhold consent. 
Rest Point 2D Property, 15.52, 2, 1977, italics added. A comment to the section explains, the landlord may have an understandable concern about certain personal qualities of a tenant, particularly his reputation for meeting his financial obligations. The preservation of the values that go into the personal selection of the tenant justifies upholding a provision in the lease that curtails the right of the tenant to put anyone else in his place by transferring his interest, but this justification does not go to the point of allowing the landlord arbitrarily and without REA son to refuse to allow the tenant to transfer an interest in leased property. ID, Com A. Under the restatement rule, the lessor's interest in the character of his or her tenant is protected by the lessor's right to object to a proposed assignee on reasonable commercial grounds. The lessor's interests are also protected by the fact that the original lessee remains liable to the lessor as a surety even if the lessor consents to the assignment and the assignee expressly assumes the obligations of the lease. The second impetus for change in the majority rule comes from the nature of a lease as a contract. As the Court of Appeal observed in Cohen v. Radinoff, Supra, since a prior California case that had adopted the majority rule was decided, there has been an increased recognition of an emphasis on the duty of good faith and fair dealing in here and in every contract. ID, 147 Cal.app at P329. Thus, in every contract there is an implied covenant that neither party shall do anything which will have the effect of destroying or injuring the right of the other party to receive the fruits of the contract. Universal Sales Corp. v. California Press Manufacturing Co., 1942, 20 Cal.2d751-771. W. Here a contract confers on one party a discretionary power affecting the rights of the other. A duty is imposed to exercise that discretion in good faith and in accordance with fair dealing. Cal Lettuce Growers v. Union Sugar Co., 1955, 45 Cal.2d474, 484. Here the lessor retains the discretionary power to approve or disapprove an assignee proposed by the other party to the contract, this discretionary power should therefore be exercised in accordance with commercially reasonable standards. Where a lessee is entitled to sublet under common law, but has agreed to limit that right by first acquiring the consent of the landlord, we believe the lessee has a right to expect that consent will not be unreasonably withheld. Fernandez v. Vazquez, FLA App.1981, 397 So.2d1171, 1174. Under the minority rule, the determination whether a lessor's refusal to consent was reasonable is a question of fact. Some of the factors that the trier of fact may properly consider in applying the standards of good faith and commercial reasonableness are, financial responsibility of the proposed assignee, suitability of the use for the particular property, legality of the proposed use, need for alteration of the premises, and nature of the occupancy, i.e., office, factory, clinic, etc. Denying consent solely on the basis of personal taste, convenience, or sensibility is not commercially reasonable. Nor is it reasonable to deny consent in order that the landlord may charge a higher rent than originally contracted for. Schweisso v. Williams, so PRA, 150 Cal.app.3d at p.886. 
This is because the lessor's desire for a better bargain than contracted for has nothing to do with the permissible purposes of the restraint on alienation to protect the lessor's interest in the preservation of the property and the performance of the lease covenants. He clauses for the protection of the landlord in its ownership and operation of the particular property not for its general economic protection. Ringwood Associates, Limited v. Jacks of Route 23, Inc., 1977, 153 NJ Super 294. In contrast to the policy reasons advanced in favor of the minority rule, the major ITY rule has traditionally been justified on three grounds. Respondent raises a fourth argument in its favor as well. None of these do we find compelling. First, it is said that a lease is a conveyance of an interest in real property, and that the lessor, having exercised a personal choice in the selection of a tenant and provided that Semeraro, Introduction to Property 150 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant No Substitute Shall Be Acceptable Without Prior Consent, is under no obligation to look to anyone but the lessee for the rent. This argument is based on traditional rules of conveyancing and on concepts of freedom of ownership and control over one's property. A lessor's freedom at common law to look to no one but the lessee for the rent has, however, been undermined by the adoption in California of a rule that lessors like all other contracting parties have a duty to mitigate damages upon the lessee's abandonment of the property by seeking a substitute lessee. Furthermore, the values that go into the personal selection of a lessee are preserved under the minority rule and the lessor's right to refuse consent to assignment on any commercially reasonable grounds. Such grounds include not only the obvious objections to an assignee's financial stability or proposed use of the premises, but a variety of other commercially reasonable objections as well. The lessor's interests are further protected by the fact that the original lessee remains a guarantor of the performance of the assignee. The second justification advanced in support of the majority rule is that an AP approval clause is an unambiguous reservation of absolute discretion in the lessor over assignments of the lease. The lessee could have bargained for the addition of a reasonableness clause to the lease, i.e., consent to assignment will not be unreasonably withheld. The lessee having failed to do so, the law should not rewrite the party's contract for them. Numerous authorities have taken a different view of the meaning and effect of an approval clause in a lease, indicating that the clause is not clear and unambiguous, as respondent suggests. As early as 1940, the court in Granite Trust Building Corp v. Great Atlantic and Pacific Tico, Supra, 36F.Sub. 77, examined a standard approval clause and stated, it would seem to be the better law that when a lease restricts a lessee's rights by requiring consent before these rights can be exercised, it must have been in the contemplation of the parties that the lessor be required to give some reason for withholding consent. I.D., at P78, italics added. Again in 1963, the court in Gamble v. New Orleans Housing Mart Incorporated, LA App.1963, 154 So.2 D625, stated, Here the lessee is simply not permitted to sublet without the written consent of the lessor. This does not prohibit or interdict subleasing. To the contrary, it permits subleasing provided only that the lessee first obtain the written consent of the lessor. It suggests or connotes that, when the lessee obtains a subtenant acceptable or satisfactory to the lessor, he may sublet. Otherwise the provision simply would prohibit subleasing.
ID, at P627, final italics added. In light of the interpretations given to approval clauses in the cases cited above, and in light of the increasing number of jurisdictions that have adopted the minority rule in the last 15 years, the assertion that an approval clause clearly and unambiguously grants the lessor absolute discretion over assignments is untenable. It is not a rewriting of a contract, as respondent suggests, to recognize the obligations imposed by the duty of good faith and fair dealing, which duty is implied by law in every contract. The third justification advanced in support of the majority rule is essentially based on the doctrine of stare decisis. It is argued that the courts should not depart from the common law majority rule because many leases now in effect covering a substantial amount of real property and creating valuable property rights were carefully prepared by competent counsel in reliance upon the majority viewpoint. Grumman v. Investors Diversified Services, 1956 247 Minnesota 502. As pointed out above, however, the majority viewpoint has been far from universally held and has never been adopted by this court. Moreover, the trend in favor of the minority rule should come as no surprise to observers of the changing state of real property law in the 20th century. The minority rule is part of an increasing recognition of the contractual nature of leases and the implications in terms of contractual duties that flow therefrom. We would be remiss in our duty if we declined to question a view held by the majority of jurisdictions simply because it is held by a majority. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Rights and Duties 151 As we stated in a prior case, the vitality of the common law can flourish only so long as the courts remain alert to their obligation and opportunity to change the common law when reason and equity demand it. Rodriguez v. Bethlehem Steel Corp., 1974, 12 Cal.3d 382, 394. A final argument in favor of the majority rule is advanced by respondent and stated as follows, both tradition and sound public policy dictate that the lessor has a right under circumstances such as these, to realize the increased value of his property. Respondent essentially argues that any increase in the market value of real property during the term of a lease properly belongs to the lessor, not the lessee. We reject this assertion. One California commentator has written, W. Hen the lessee executed the lease he acquired the contractual right for the exclusive use of the premises, and all of the benefits and detriment attendant to possession, for the term of the contract. He took the downside risk that he would be paying too much rent if there should be a depression in the rental market. Why should he be deprived of the contractual benefits of the lease because of the fortuitous inflation in the marketplace? By reaping the benefits he does not deprive the landlord of anything to which the landlord was otherwise entitled. The landlord agreed to dispose of possession for the limited term and he could not reasonably anticipate any more than what was given to him by the terms of the lease. His reversionary estate will benefit from the increased value from the inflation in any event, at least upon the expiration of the lease. Miller and Starr, Current Law of Cal Real Estate, 1977, 1984 Sup, 27 92 at P321. Respondent here is trying to get more than it bargained for in the lease. A lessor is free to build periodic rent increases into a lease, as the lessor did here. Any increased value of the property beyond this belongs to the lessor only in the sense, as explained above, 
that the lessor's reversionary estate will benefit from it upon the expiration of the lease. We must therefore reject respondents' argument in this regard. For in conclusion, both the policy against restraints on alienation and the implied contractual duty of good faith and fair dealing militate in favor of adoption of the rule that where a commercial lease provides for assignment only with the prior consent of the less SOR, such consent may be withheld only where the lessor has a commercially reasonable objection to the assignee or the proposed use. Under this rule, appellants have stated a cause of action against respondent Ernest Pestana, Inc. The order sustaining the demurrer to the complaint, which we have deemed to incorporate a judgment of dismissal, is reversed. Lucas, Justice, dissenting, I respectfully dissent. In my view we should follow the weight of authority which, as acknowledged by the majority herein, allows the commercial lessor to withhold his consent to an assignment or sublease arbitrarily or without reasonable cause. The majority's contrary ruling, requiring a commercially reasonable objection to the assignment, can only result in a proliferation of unnecessary litigation. Notes and Questions 1 The rule in Kendall is not a majority position and is generally limited to commercial leases. Two even jurisdictions following Kendall permit landlords to prohibit absolutely all assignments and subleases so long as the lease does not refer to the landlord's consent. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 152 Chapter 4 Landlord-tenant When a lease is ambiguous, however, the courts presume that subleasing and assigning are permitted. The court in Italian Fisherman, Supra, refers to the rule in Dumper's case, which applies in some jurisdictions and holds that even where subleasing and assigning is prohibited, a landlord's agreement to one sublease or assignment will be interpreted as consent to future subleases and assignments as well, absent explicit evidence of contrary intent. 3. Even where the landlord may refuse to permit a sublease or assignment, however, the landlord's duty to reasonably avoid damages may impact the landlord's ability to recover back rent if the original tenant abandons the property. This issue is discussed in the next subsection. H. Landlord responds to tenant breach If a tenant breaches the lease, the landlord may, of course, evict the tenant and sue for damages. In most jurisdictions, the common law right to self-help eviction has been either eliminated entirely, requiring the landlord to use judicial process to evict the tenant, or limited significantly by the requirement that any self-help eviction be peaceable. The latter requirement has generally been interpreted strictly to require not only an eviction that was in fact peaceable, but one that held no reasonable prospect for violence. A landlord thus cannot ensure that it would meet the peaceable standard by waiting until the tenant had left the premises to change the locks. C. E.G., Spinks v. Taylor, 303 N.C. 256, 1981. The de facto requirement that landlords use judicial process to evict breaching tenants has been justified by the availability of summary eviction proceedings in all jurisdictions. These procedures provide for prompt hearings and limit the contestable issues. In addition to evicting a breaching tenant and suing for any property damage, landlords often seek to recover unpaid rent on the lease. At common law, a tenant was required to satisfy the leasehold estate obligation to pay the rent regardless of circumstances. The implied warranty of habitability has dramatically altered the common law rule by freeing tenants of the obligation to pay rent when a landlord breaches a duty. Modern law has moved in this direction more generally as well. 
when a tenant tenders surrender of the property, courts tend to infer acceptance of that surrender from unclear actions by the landlord. And if a landlord relets a property before the lease is up, the landlord must do so on the tenant's account, reducing the former tenant's liability. In addition, most jurisdictions now impose the contract law requirement that the landlord must take reasonable actions to avoid the accumulation of damages. This so-called duty to mitigate requires the landlord to make a property that a tenant has abandoned available to prospective tenants in the same fashion as other properties. The landlord's recovery is thus limited to rent for a reasonable period of vacancy plus the landlord's reasonable costs in reletting the apartment, such as advertising and cleaning fees. See Sommer v. Crydell, 74 NJ 446, 1977. In most jurisdictions, the tenant as the breaching party bears the burden of proving that the landlord did not take reasonable steps to relet the property. Some jurisdictions, however, impose the burden on the landlord to prove that reasonable steps to mitigate were taken. These jurisdictions reason that the landlord can more readily bear this burden because the landlord is more familiar with the rental market. I tort liability to tenants or third parties at common law. Landlords were liable to tenants or third parties on the leased premises only when the landlord negligently violated a specified duty owed to the tenant. These duties generally included, to keep short-term furnished dwellings in good repair. To disclose latent defects of which the landlord should have been aware. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 153, To Maintain Common Areas Indiana Good Repair. To undertake any repairs that the landlord volunteered to make. To refrain from making fraudulent misrepresentations. To abate immoral conduct and other nuisances. Although the common law approach remains the majority position, some states now impose a general negligence standard on landlords. C. E.G., Sergeant V. Ross, 308A.2D528, NH 1973. Landlord-Tenant Short Essay Questions 1. In a written agreement in 2005, Laura leased property to Tom for five years at a monthly rent of $500. In 2006, Tom transferred his entire remaining right of possession to Tanya, who promised Laura in writing that she would pay the rent to Laura. In 2007, Tanya transferred all her right of possession to Tina, who assumed all the obligations of the lease in a written agreement with Tanya. In 2008, Tina in writing transferred all her right of possession to Todd. In 2009, Todd in writing transferred all his right of possession to Terence. Terence failed to pay the rent. Laura consults you. Identify all parties that Laura can sue for the default in the payment of rent and explain the theory or theories under which Laura can proceed against the various parties. 2. Lawrence owns a residential apartment building. All units are rented out on two-year written term of years leases. A former tenant, Tamim, had complained to Lawrence about various problems with his second-floor unit and with the building in general. When Lawrence did not respond, Tamim reported him to the local housing authority which investigated and then cited Lawrence for numerous substantive violations of the local housing code. The housing authority gave Lawrence 90 days to cure the violations or face substantial fines. Lawrence did nothing. Tamim then moved out and has not been heard from again. Lawrence then rented the apartment Tamim had vacated to Tamara.
Before they signed the lease, Tamara inspected the unit and the premises and discovered, among other things, the following problems, a broken porch railing on the balcony, loose boards on the steps, a non-functional fire extinguisher and smoke detector, old, chipping paint in the living room and bathroom, and a sliding glass patio door that was stuck in the closed position. When Tamara requested that Lawrence repair the items, Lawrence balked, but feared to reduce the requested rent by 25% and waive the security deposit if Tamara would accept the unit in as-is condition. Tamara didn't particularly like the idea, but because she had little money, she agreed. Tamara supported herself by babysitting in her home for several toddlers. Lawrence leased another unit in the same building to Teddy, a rather eccentric artist. Teddy complains to Lawrence at least once a month, usually when his rent is due, about the noisy neighbors in the building next door, which is owned by someone other than Lawrence, who scream at each other and at their kids and who let their dogs bark during the day when they are gone. Teddy also complains about a group of anti-abortion protesters who regularly picket on the sidewalk in front of the doctor's office across the street, singing, shouting, and waving gory pictures around from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. nearly every weekday. Teddy has also requested that Lawrence repaint his living room because Teddy finds the present color aesthetically disruptive, replace the bedroom carpet which was ruined when Teddy's waterbed leaked, and repair the holes in the walls left by Teddy's constantly changing artistic sensibilities and taste. Teddy also doesn't like the potholes in the driveway, the broken fence post, and the muddy walkways when it rains. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 154 Chapter 4 Landlord-tenant another second-floor unit is leased to the Tallies, an elderly couple who are concerned about increasing crime in the area, including burglaries, assaults, and drug dealing. The Tallies have notified Lawrence that the deadbolt on their front door no longer works, although the push-button lock and the chain still work, that the sliding door to their BAL Coney won't close tightly, and that several of their screens are torn and tattered. The Tallies are afraid to go out of their apartment, especially at night, because some of the building's exterior lights are burned out, and teenage boys from the neighborhood race their cars in the driveway and parking lot. Another unit is leased to Tobias, who read in the newspaper recently that one of the many effects of El Nino is a dramatic increase in the populations of ants, mice, and swarming insects. Tobias then requested that Lawrence trim all the trees and landscaping on the property to prevent harboring any of these pests. Tobias is also unhappy because other tenants sometimes leave their trash and garbage next to the dumpster rather than putting it inside the dumpster. After living in her unit for six months, Tamara requested that Lawrence repair the broken and non-functional items and repaint her apartment. Lawrence refused, reminding Tamara of their agreement that she would accept the unit in as-is condition for reduced rent. When Tamara then stopped paying her rent and reported Lawrence to the housing authority, Lawrence served Tamara with a three-day notice to pay rent or quit. Because Lawrence has not responded to any of Teddy's complaints about his apartment, Teddy has threatened to stop paying his rent in order to get Lawrence to pay attention. The Tallies still pay their rent, but they are virtual prisoners in their apartment, where they regularly barricade the doors with their heavy furniture to prevent break-ins. Tobias has threatened to walk out in the middle of his lease if Lawrence does not do something about the place. Tamara, Teddy, the Tallies, and Tobias all come to you for advice about their various problems with the apartment building. For each of these tenants, 
analyze that tenant's potential claims or defenses with regard to Lawrence. 3. Louth owns a small apartment building. He rented unit number 1 to Tramore under a written agreement, signed by both parties, that provided as follows, Louth agrees to lease unit number 1 to Tramore for three years, beginning August 1, 2004, for rent of $600 per month, payable on the first day of the month. Tramore agrees not to transfer any rights under the lease without Louth's consent. In December 2006, Tramore informed Louth he had been laid off from his job and he wanted to move out. He told Louth he had a friend, Tavin, who would take over the remainder of the lease. Tavin submitted a rental application, which indicated a generally good credit history and four years' employment as office manager of a non-profit civil rights organization. Louth, who disagreed with the affirmative action policies espoused by Tavin's employer, refused to permit Tramore to transfer the rest of the lease to Tavin. When Tramore asked why, Louth refused to explain his refusal. Tramore then requested that Louth release him from the rest of the lease because he couldn't afford the rent, but Louth refused. Tramore was unable to pay his rent in January 2007. Tramore found a new job several weeks later, and was able to make the rest of his rent payments on time but did not make up the missed January payment. On August 1, 2007, Tramore sent Louth a check for $1,800 for August, September and October rent, which Louth cashed. On September 1, 2007, Tova contacted Louth and inquired about vacancies. After some discussion, Louth and Tova signed an agreement that provided as follows. Louth agrees to rent unit number 1 to Tova from month to month, Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Rights and Duties 155 beginning on October 1, 2007, at a monthly rental of $700 per month. On October 1, Tova arrived at unit number 1, ready to move in, but was prevented from doing so by Tramor, who was still living there. Tova complained to Louth, who responded, that's your problem. Tova then threatened to sue Louth. After the threat, Louth called Tramore several times and told him to leave. When Tramore refused, Louth threatened to throw all of Tramore's possessions in the dumpster and change the locks. Tramore then threatened to sue Louth. With both Tramore and Tova threatening to sue him, Louth finally decided he had better call a lawyer. He calls you with a number of questions. Advise Louth on the following questions, can Louth get rid of Tramore? Can he get the January 2007 rent that Tramore never paid? Is there any basis for a lawsuit by Tramore against Louth? Any defenses for Louth? Is there any basis for a lawsuit by Tova against Louth? Any defenses? Semeraro, Introduction to Property 156 Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Semeraro Introduction to Property and Introduction to Property Law in the U.S. Copyright 2018 Stephen Semeraro Version 2.0 Please note, generally, omissions of substance are indicated with an ellipsis, but omissions of seditions or footnotes are not. For more detailed information, please see the book's front matter. Chapter 5, Acquisition Without a Voluntary Transfer Most often, property interests are acquired through a sale, gift, or device i.e. through inheritance. 
Some aspects of these common methods for transferring property interests are covered later in the course. This chapter deals with property interests that individuals acquired by means other than a voluntary transfer. Traditionally, property interests could be acquired through discovery. Now, however, more common means of AC queering property without a voluntary transfer include, 1. Finding property that has been abandoned, lost, mislaid, or hidden, 2. Adversely possessing property for a sufficiently long period of time, and 3. Creating property that did not exist before. The following subsections explore the law surrounding each method of property rights acquisition. I. Acquiring property rights by find chapters 2 to 4 dealt with two ways in which property rights can be divided among different individuals. Chapter 3 dealt with CO ownership law, which divides property rights among owners who each have full possessory rights. The chapters on estates and future interests and landlord-tenant law address temporally divided property interests between the current possessory interest holder and future interest holders. Finder's law also divides property interests in a way that resemblances the law of estates and future interests. In many cases, a finder obtains a limited possessory right similar to a fee simple subject to condition subsequent with the forfeiting condition being that the finder's rights terminate when the owner or more accurately anyone with a previously accrued property right in the thing found, returns to exercise a power of termination and claim the property. In certain situations, finders may take full ownership rights, in others instances, they may receive none at all. The law draws these distinctions by classifying property that becomes separated from its owner into one of four categories, one abandoned property in which the owner has relinquished all property rights, Two lost property involuntarily separated from the owner, e.g. a wallet that accidentally falls from its owner's pocket, in an undetermined place. Three mislaid property that the owner, a, voluntarily places somewhere, e.g. a wallet intentionally placed on the counter at a store, b, inadvertently left at that place, and, c, forgets where the property was misplaced. Semeraro Introduction to Property 158 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer 4 Treasure trove property in the form of money or bullion that is hidden with the intent to recover it at a later time, but left in place for so long that the owner is unlikely to return for it. The following sections explore the property rights acquired by finders in each type of property. A. Abandoned property One who finds abandoned property generally obtains full property rights in that property against the world. All lost property, however, is not considered abandoned. At common law, to demonstrate that property had been abandoned, a finder needed to demonstrate both that, the property had been separated from its owner and the owner intended to relinquish all rights. Modern law retains this definition of abandoned property, but many jurisdictions have now enacted statutes creating a rebuttable presumption that a property rights holder who does not reclaim property for a certain period of time intends to abandon his rights. Be lost property in reviewing the following case, focus on why the court ruled in favor of the finder of the lost jewel rather than the jeweler. Try to put aside questions of basic fairness. Assume for example that the finder took the jewel from the top of a dresser and consider how a rule recognizing property rights in a finder against the world, except prior owners, might nevertheless advance social policy goals. What might those goals be and how does the rule of armory advance them? Armory v. Delamory 93 ER 664, 
King's Bench 1722, Pratt, Chief Justice. The plaintiff being a chimney sweeper's boy found a jewel and carried it to the defendant's shop, who was a goldsmith, to know what it was, and delivered it into the hands of the apprentice, who under pretense of weighing it, took out the stones, and calling to the master to let him know it came to three halfpence, the master offered the boy the money, who refused to take it, and insisted to have the thing again, whereupon the AP prentice delivered him back the socket without the stones. And now in Trover against the master these points were ruled, one that the finder of a jewel, though he does not by such finding acquire an absolute property or ownership, yet he has such a property as will enable him to keep it against all but the rightful owner, and consequently may maintain Trover. Two that the action well lay against the master, who gives a credit to his apprentice, and is answerable for his neglect. Three as to the value of the jewel several of the trade were examined to prove what a jewel of the finest water that would fit the socket would be worth, and the Chief Justice directed the jury, that unless the defendant did produce the jewel, and choose sick it not to be of the finest water, they should presume the strongest against him, and make the value of the best jewels the measure of their damages, which they accordingly did. Notes and Questions 1. At Common Law an action in Trover required the plaintiff to relinquish any claim semeraro, introduction to property I finders 159 on personal property and seek damages only. An action in Replevin sought the return of the property. In cases involving real property the equivalent actions were trespass and ejectment, respectively. Modern pleading rules allow plaintiffs to maintain alternative claims for damages or injunctive relief. Two black-letter law holds that the current possessor has superior rights to any subsequent possessor, even if the current possessor obtained the property by unlawful means. See Anderson v. Goldberg, 53 NW 636, Minnesota 1892. Why would the courts recognize property rights in a thief? In any event, some courts ignore the black-letter law in cases involving a wrongful prior possessor and an honest subsequent possessor. Richard H. Helmholtz, Wrongful Possession of Chattels, Hornbook Law and Case Law, 80 MWUL Revelation 1221, 1986. Three many states have altered the common law by statute to permit finders to deposit found property at a particular place and provide some notice to the public. If no one claims the property after a set period of time, the finder obtains full property rights. Although these statutes may apply to any type of found property, many are limited to lost property. See mislaid property in considering the following case, focus on the social policy goals that led the court to award property rights to the owner of the locus rather than the finder. This rule is typically justified by the belief that placing superior rights in the owner of the locus would be more likely to result in the mislaid article being returned to its rightful owner. Consider why one might reach that conclusion. Do you agree with it? If so, why not apply the same rule to lost property? McAvoy v. Medina 93 Massachusetts 548, 1866, Trunky, Justice. At the trial in the Superior Court, before Morton, J., it appeared that the defendant was a barber, and the plaintiff, being a customer in the defendant's shop, saw and took up a pocketbook which was lying upon a table there, and said, See what I have found. The defendant came to the table and asked where he found it. 
The plaintiff laid it back in the same place and said, I found it right there. The defendant then took it and counted the money, and the plaintiff told him to keep it, and if the owner should come to give it to him, and otherwise to advertise it, which the defendant promised to do. Subsequently the plaintiff made three demands for the money, and the defendant never claimed to hold the same till the last demand. It was agreed that the pocketbook was placed upon the table by a transient customer of the defendant and accidentally left there, and was first seen and taken up by the plaintiff, and that the owner had not been found. The judge ruled that the plaintiff could not maintain his action, and a verdict was accordingly returned for the defendant, and the plaintiff alleged exceptions. Dewey, Justice, it seems to be the settled law that the finder of lost property has a valid claim to the same against all the world except the true owner, and generally that the place in which it is found creates no exception to this rule. Bridges v. Hawksworth, 7 ENG Law and EQR 424 But this property is not, under the circumstances, to be treated as lost property in that sense in which a finder has a valid claim to hold the same until called for by the true owner. This property was voluntarily placed upon a table in the defendant's shop by a customer of his who accidentally left the same there and has never called for it. The Plaintiff Semeraro, Introduction to Property 160 Chapter 5, Acquisition without Transfer also came there as a customer, and first saw the same and took it up from the table. The plaintiff did not by this acquire the right to take the property from the shop, but it was rather the duty of the defendant, when the fact became thus known to him, to use reasonable care for the safekeeping of the same until the owner should call for it. In the case of Bridges v. Hawksworth the property, although found in a shop, was found on the floor of the same, and had not been placed there voluntarily by the owner, and the court held that the finder was entitled to the possession of the same, except as to the owner. But the present case more resembles that of Lawrence v. The State, 1 Humph. Tennessee, 228, and is indeed very similar in its facts. The court there distinguished between the case of property thus placed by the owner and neglected to be removed, and property lost. It was there held that to place a pocketbook upon a table and to forget to take it away is not to lose it, in the sense in which the authorities referred to speak of lost property. We accept this as the better rule, and especially as one better adapted to secure the rights of the true owner. In view of the facts of this case, the plaintiff acquired no original right to the property, and the defendant's subsequent acts in receiving and holding the property in the manner he did does not create any exceptions overruled. Lost property? Fpwing-bigstock.com d treasure trove at common law, treasure trove constituted money or bullion buried in the ground and, when discovered, became the property of the crown. In the United States, Treasure trove has generally been regarded as hidden money or bullion, whether or not buried in the ground, and is treated like abandoned property. Ownership rights over treasure trove go to the finder or the owner of the locus on which the property was found. In reviewing Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Finders 161 The following case, think about whether you agree with the court's decision to eliminate treasure trove as a distinct type of property. Corliss v. Winner 136 Idaho 417, 2001, Schwartzman, Justice, 
Gregory Corliss appeals from the district court's orders granting summary judgment in favor of Jan Winner on the right to possess 96 gold coins unearthed by Anderson and Corliss on Winner's property and in favor of Larry Anderson on a promissory note signed by Corliss. We affirm. I factual and procedural background A. The gold coins in the fall of 1996, Jan Winner hired Anderson Asphalt Paving to construct a driveway on his ranch in Blaine County. Larry Anderson, the owner of Anderson Asphalt Paving, and his employee, Gregory Corliss, were excavating soil for the driveway when they unearthed a glass jar containing paper-wrapped rolls of gold coins. Anderson and Corliss collected, cleaned, and inventoried the gold pieces dating from 1857 to 1914. The coins themselves weighed about four pounds. Anderson and Corliss agreed to split the gold coins between themselves with Anderson retaining possession of all the coins. At some point Anderson and Corliss argued over ownership of the coins and Anderson fired Corliss. Anderson later gave possession of the coins to Winner in exchange for indemnification on any claim Corliss might have against him regarding the coins. Corliss sued Anderson and Winner for possession of some or all of the coins. When they, defending both himself and Anderson, filed a motion for summary judgment. The facts except whether Corliss found all or just some of the gold coins without Anderson's help, are not in dispute. All parties agree that the coins were unearthed during excavation by Anderson and Corliss for a driveway on Winner's Ranch, that the coins had been protected in paper tube rolls and buried in a glass jar estimated to be about 70 years old. The district court entered a memorandum decision stating that the finder's keeper's rule of treasure trove had not been previously adopted in Idaho, that it was not a part of the common law of England incorporated into Idaho law at the time of statehood by statute, and that the coins, having been carefully concealed for safekeeping, fit within the legal classification of mislaid property, to which the right of possession goes to the landowner. Alternatively, the court ruled that the coins, like the topsoil being excavated, were a part of the property owned by Winner and that Anderson and Corliss were merely Winner's employees. Corliss appeals. 3. Law applicable to determining the rightful possessor of gold coins A standard applicable to review of the district court's choice of law This is a case of first impression in Idaho, the central issue being the proper rule to apply in characterizing the gold coins found by Corliss and Anderson on Winner's property. The major distinctions between characterizations of found property turn on questions of fact, i.e., an analysis of the facts and circumstances in an effort to divine the intense MRRO. Introduction to Property 162 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer of the True Owner at the Time He or She Parted with the Property The material facts and circumstances surrounding the discovery of the gold coins are not in dispute. However, the characterization of that property, in light of these facts, is a question of law over which we exercise free review. With these principles in mind we now discuss, in turn, the choice of categories applicable to the district court's characterization of the gold coins found by Anderson and Corliss, recognizing that the choice of characterization of found property determines its rightful possessor as between the finder and landowner. B. Choice of categories at common law All found property is generally categorized in one of five ways. C. Benjamin V. Lindner Aviation, Inc., 534N.W.2D400 Iowa 1995. Asterisk those categories are 
abandoned property that which the owner has discarded or voluntarily forsaken with the intention of terminating his ownership, but without vesting ownership in any other person. Lost property that property which the owner has involuntarily and unintentionally parted with through neglect, carelessness, or inadvertence and does not know the whereabouts. Mislaid property that which the owner has intentionally set down in a place where he can again resort to it, and then forgets where he put it. Treasure trove a category exclusively for gold or silver in coin, plate, bull lion, and sometimes its paper money equivalents, found concealed in the earth or in a house or other private place. Treasure trove carries with it the thought of antiquity, i.e. that the treasure has been concealed for so long as to indicate that the owner is probably dead or unknown. Embedded property that personal property which has become a part of the natural earth, such as pottery, the sunken wreck of a steamship, or a rotted away sack of gold-bearing quartz rock buried or partially buried in the ground. Under these doctrines, the finder of lost or abandoned property and treasure trove acquires a right to possess the property against the entire world but the rightful owner regardless of the place of finding. The finder of mislaid property is required to turn it over to the owner of the premises who has the duty to safeguard the property for the true owner. Possession of embedded property goes to the owner of the land on which the property was found. One of the major distinctions between these various categories is that only lost property necessarily involves an element of involuntariness. The four remaining categories involve voluntary and intentional acts by the true owner in placing the property where another eventually finds it. However, treasure trove, despite not being lost or abandoned property, is treated as such in that the right to possession is recognized to be in the finder rather than the premises owner. See Discussion and Analysis on Appeal, Corliss argues that the district court should have interpreted the Yundi's puked facts and circumstances surrounding of the placement of the coins in the ground to indicate that the gold coins were either lost, abandoned, or treasure trove. Wenner argues that the property was properly categorized as either embedded or mislaid property. As with most accidentally discovered buried treasure, the history of the original ownership of the coins is shrouded in mystery and obscured by time. The coins had been asterisk ed note, an excerpt from Benjamin V. Lindner Aviation, Inc., is reproduced later in this chapter. Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Finders 163 Wrapped in Paper, Like Coins from a Bank, and Buried in a Glass Jar, Apparently for Safe Keeping. Based on these circumstances, the district court determined that the coins were not abandoned because the condition in which the coins were found evidenced an intent to keep them safe, not an intent to voluntarily relinquish all possessory interest in them. The district court also implicitly rejected the notion that the coins were lost, noting that the coins were secreted with care in a specific place to protect them from the elements and from other people until such time as the original owner might return for them. There is no indication that the coins came to be buried through neglect, carelessness, or inadvertence. Accordingly, the district court properly concluded, as a matter of law, that the coins were neither lost nor abandoned. The district court then determined that the modern trend favored characterizing the coins as property either embedded in the earth or mislaid under which the right of possession goes to the landowner rather than treasure trove under which the right of possession goes to the finder. Although accepted by a number of states prior to 1950, the modern trend since then, as illustrated by decisions of the state and federal courts, is decidedly against recognizing the finder's keeper's rule of treasure trove. 
Corliss argues that the district court erred in deciding that the law of treasure trove should not apply in Idaho. However, the doctrine of treasure trove has never been adopted in this state. Idaho Code 73-116 provides, Tehe Common Law of England, so far as it is not repugnant to, or inconsistent with, the Constitution or laws of the United States, in all cases not provided for in these compiled laws, is the rule of decision in all courts of this state. Nevertheless, the history of the Finders Keepers rule was not a part of the common law of England at the time the colonies gained their independence. Rather, the doctrine of treasure trove was created to determine a rightful possessor of buried Roman treasures discovered in feudal times. And while the common law initially awarded the treasure to the finder, the crown, as early as the year 1130, exercised its royal prerogative to take such property for itself. Only after the American colonies gained their independence from England did some states grant possession of treasure trove to the finder. Thus, it does not appear that the finder's keeper's rule of treasure trove was a part of the common law of England as defined by Idaho Code 73-116. We hold that the district court correctly determined that IC 73-116 does not require the treasure trove doctrine to be adopted in Idaho. Additionally, we conclude that the rule of treasure trove is of dubious heritage and misunderstood application, inconsistent with our values and traditions. The danger of adopting the doctrine of treasure trove is laid out in Morgan, 711S.W.2D at 222-23, we find the rule with respect to treasure trove to be out of harmony with modern notions of fair play. The common law rule of treasure trove invites trespassers to roam at large over the property of others with their metal detecting devices and to dig wherever such devices tell them property might be found. If the discovery happens to fit the definition of treasure trove, the trespasser may claim it as his own. To paraphrase another court, the mind refuses consent to the proposition that one may go upon the lands of another and dig up and take away anything he discovers there which does not belong to the owner of the land. The invitation to trespassers inherent in the rule with respect to treasure trove is repugnant to the common law rules dealing with trespassers in general. The common law made a trespass an actionable wrong without the necessity of showing any damage therefrom. Because a trespass often involved a breach of the peace and because the law was designed to keep the peace, the common law dealt severely with trespassers. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 164 Chapter 5 Acquisition without transfer recognizing the validity of the idea that the discouragement of trespassers contributes to the preservation of the peace in the community, we think this state should not follow the common law rule with respect to treasure trove. Rather, we adopt the rule suggested in the concurring opinion in Sly v. Couch, which we restate as follows, where property is found embedded in the soil under circumstances repelling the idea that it has been lost, the finder acquires no title thereto for the presumption is that the possession of the article found is in the owner of the locus in quo. Land ownership includes control over crops on the land, buildings and appurtenances, soils, and minerals buried under those soils. The average Idaho landowner would expect to have a possessory interest in any object uncovered on his or her property. And certainly the notion that a trespassing treasure hunter, or a hired handyman or employee, could or might have greater possessory rights than a landowner in objects uncovered on his or her property runs counter to the reasonable expectations of present-day land ownership. 
there is no reason for a special rule for gold and silver coins, bullion, or plate as opposed to other property. Insofar as personal property, money and the like, buried or secreted on privately owned realty is concerned, the distinctions between treasure trove, lost property and mislaid property are anachronistic and of little value. The principal point of such distinctions is the intent of the true owner which, absent some written disloration indicating such, is obscured in the mists of time and subject to a great deal of speculation. By holding that property classed as treasure trove, gold or silver coins, bullion, plate, in other jurisdictions is classed in Idaho as personal property embedded in the soil, subject to the same limitations as mislaid property, possession will be awarded to the owner of the soil as a matter of law. Thus, we craft a simple and reasonable solution to the problem, discourage trespass and avoid the risk of speculating about the true owner's intent when attempting to infer such from the manner and circumstances in which an object is found. Additionally, the true owner, if any, will have the opportunity to recover the property. D. Conclusion We hold that the owner of the land has constructive possession of all personal property secreted in, on, or under his or her land. Accordingly, we adopt the district court's reasoning and conclusion melding the law of mislaid property with that of embedded property and conclude, as a matter of law, that the landowner is entitled to possession to the exclusion of all but the true owner, absence a contract between the landowner and finder. Notes and Questions 1 the Corliss case illustrates the argument against recognizing treasure trove as an independent category of property. Can you think of the policy underlying the adoption of the American rule of treasure trove? As one commentator has Riley noted, the old rule of treasure trove may make good theater, but it's poor law, and its death can come none to sick soon. Richard B. Cunningham, The Slow Death of the Treasure Trove, Archaeology, February 7, 2000 Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Finders 165-2 The court awards rights in the gold coins to the owner of the underlying property by refusing to recognize treasure trove and adopting a category of property called embed DED property. Is there another way that the court could have reached the same result in this case without eliminating treasure trove as a distinct category of property? 3. Distinguish the ownership rights awarded to the defendant in Corliss from the rights historically awarded to one who finds treasure trove. How do they differ? E. Applying finder's law The common law is thought to award a finder one no rights in mislaid property. 2. Possession of lost property against everyone except prior owners, and 3. Full ownership of abandoned property. Michael V. 1st Chicago Corp. 487N.E.2D403, 409, ILAP 1985. But such a statement ignores a number of factors that influence a court's allocation of property rights. In some jurisdictions, an employee is deemed to find on behalf of his employer if the find occurred during the regular course of employment. Independent contractors and employees acting outside the scope of their employment, however, are more likely to be awarded property rights. See Jackson v. Steinberg, 200p.2d376, or 1948, Erickson v. Sinikin, 26n.w.2d172, Minnesota 1947, Kalivakis v. The TSS Olympia, 181f sub 32, SDNY 1960.
All jurisdictions struggle when lost personal property is found on the real property of another. Should the owner of the real property be deemed to have possession as a result of owning the underlying property and thus be treated like a prior finder? Courts have recognized a relatively clear rule of awarding any property that is buried or embedded in the land to the owner of the land. Where property is not embedded, however, the cases tend to turn on the circumstances and location of the find. Property rights in personal property found by a trespasser in a clearly private area of someone's home, such as the attic, is likely to be awarded to the owner of the locus. By contrast, the courts would likely award property rights to an invitee who finds an object on the outskirts of investment property that the owner has never visited. Different courts mention the status of the finder and the property owner as well as the owner's privacy interest or likely sense of dominion over the location in which the property was found. The best approach is to assess whether a reasonable property owner would experience an unjustified invasion of privacy if property rights were awarded to the finder. If so, the property owner should be given superior rights. In each of the following three cases, 1. Evaluate whether the court properly identified the category of property and, 2. Explain the reasons, stated and unstated, that may have led the court to award property rights in the manner that it did. Do you agree with the courts? Hannah v. Peel KB 509, King's Bench 1945, on December 13, 1938, the freehold of Gwern Halid House, Overton on D, Shropshire, was conveyed to the defendant. Major Hugh Edward Ethelston Peel, who from that time to the end of 1940 never himself occupied the house and it remained unoccupied until October 5, 1939, when it was requisitioned, but after some months was released from requisition. Thereafter it remained unoccupied until July 18, 1940, when it was again requisitioned, the defendant being compensated by a payment at the rate of 250 litres a year. In August, 1940, the plaintiff, Duncan Hanna, a lance corporal, serving in a battery of the Royal Artillery, was stationed at the house and on the 21st of that month, when in a bedroom, used as a sick bay, he was adjusting the blackout curtains when his hand touched something on the top of a window frame, loose in a crevice, which he thought was a piece semeraro, introduction to property 166 chapter 5, acquisition without transfer of dirt or plaster. The plaintiff grasped it and dropped it on the outside window ledge. On the following morning he saw that it was a brooch covered with cobwebs and dirt. Later, he took it with him when he went home on leave and his wife having told him it might be of value, at the end of October, 1940, he informed his commanding officer of his find and, on his advice, handed it over to the police, receiving a receipt for it. In August, 1942, the owner not having been found the police handed the brooch to the defendant, who sold it in October, 1942, for 66 litres, to Messrs Spink & Son, Limited, of London, who resold it in the following month for 88 litres. There was no evidence that the defendant had any knowledge of the existence of the brooch before it was found by the plaintiff. The defendant had offered the plaintiff a reward for the brooch but the plaintiff refused to accept this and maintained throughout his right to the possession of the brooch as against all persons other than the owner, who was unknown. By a letter, dated October 5, 1942, 
the plaintiff's solicitors demanded the return of the brooch from the defendant, but it was not returned and on O.C. Tober 21, 1943, the plaintiff issued his writ claiming the return of the brooch, or its value, and damages for its detention. By his defense, the defendant claimed the brooch on the ground that he was the owner of Gwern Halid House and in possession thereof. Burkett J. Justice, there is no issue of fact in this case between the parties. As to the issue in law, the rival claims of the parties can be stated in this way, the plaintiff says, I claim the brooch as its finder and I have a good title against all the world, save only the true owner. The defendant says, my claim is superior to yours inasmuch as I am the freeholder. The brooch was found on my property, although I was never in occupation, and my title, therefore, ousts yours and in the absence of the true owner I am entitled to the brooch or its value. Unhappily the law on this issue is in a very uncertain state and there is need of an authoritative decision of a higher court. Obviously if it could be said with certainty that this is the law, that the finder of a lost article, wherever found, has a good title against all the world save the true owner, then, of course, all my difficulties would be resolved, or again, if it could be said with equal certainty that this is the law, that the possessor of land is entitled as against the finder to all chattels found on the land, again my difficulties would be resolved. But, unfortunately, the authorities give some support to each of these conflicting propositions. In the famous case of Armory v. de Lamory, 93 ER 664, King's Bench 1722, comma the plaintiff, who was a chimney sweeper's boy, found a jewel and carried it to the defendant's shop, who was a goldsmith, in order to know what it was, and he delivered it into the hands of the apprentice in the goldsmith's shop, who made a pretense of weighing it and took out the stones and called to the master to let him know that it came to three halfpence. The master offered the boy the money who refused to take it and insisted on having the jewel again. Whereupon the apprentice handed him back the socket of the jewel without the stones, and an action was brought in trover against the master, and it was ruled that the finder of a jewel, though he does not by such finding acquire an absolute property or own airship, yet he has such a property as will enable him to keep it against all but the rightful owner, and consequently may maintain trover. The case of Bridges v. Hawksworth 21 LJ, QB, 75 is in process of becoming almost equally as famous because of the disputation which has raged around it. The head note in the jurist is as follows, the place in which a lost article is found does not constitute any exception to the general rule of law, that the finder is entitled to it as against all persons except the owner. The facts appear to have been that in the year 1847 the plaintiff, who was a commercial traveller, called on a firm named Byfield and Hawksworth on business, as he was in the habit of doing, and as he was leaving the shop he picked up a small parcel which was lying on the floor. He immediately showed it to the shopman, Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Finders 167 and opened it in his presence, when it was found to consist of a quantity of Bank of England notes, to the amount of 65 litres. The defendant, who was a partner in the firm of Byfield and Hawksworth, was then called, and the plaintiff told him he had found the notes, and asked the defendant to keep them until the owner appeared to claim them. Then various advertisements were put in the papers asking for the owner, but the true owner was never found. No person having appeared to claim them, and three years having elapsed since they were found, 
the plaintiff applied to the defendant to have the notes returned to him, and offered to pay the expenses of the advertisements, and to give an indemnity. The defendant refused to deliver them up to the plaintiff, and an action was brought in the County Court of Westminster in consequence of that refusal. The appellate court observed that the notes which are the subject of this action were incidentally dropped, by mere accident, in the shop of the defendant, by the owner of them. The facts do not warrant the supposition that they had been deposited there intentionally, nor has the case been put at all upon that ground. The plaintiff found them on the floor, they being manifestly lost by someone. The general right of the finder to any AR title which has been lost, as against all the world, except the true owner, was established in the case of Armory v. D. Lamory which has never been disputed. This right would clearly have accrued to the plaintiff had the notes been picked up by him outside the shop of the defendant and if he once had the right, the case finds that he did not intend, by delivering the notes to the defendant, to waive the title, if any, which he had to them, but they were handed to the defendant merely for the purpose of delivering them to the owner should he appear. Then a little later, the case, therefore, resolves itself into the single point on which it appears that the learned judge decided it, namely, whether the circumstance of the notes being found inside the defendant's shop gives him, the defendant, the right to have them as against the plaintiff, who found them. After discussing the cases, and the argument, the learned judge said, if the discovery had never been communicated to the defendant, could the real owner have had any cause of action against him because they were found in his house? Certainly not. The notes never were in the custody of the defendant, nor within the protection of his house before they were found, as they would have been had they been intentionally deposited there, and the defendant has come under no responsibility, except from the communication made to him by the plaintiff, the finder, and the steps taken by way of advertisement. We find, therefore, no circumstances in this case to take it out of the general rule of law, that the finder of a lost article is entitled to it as against all persons except the real owner, and we think that that rule must prevail and that the learned judge was mistaken in holding that the place in which they were found makes any legal difference. Our judgment, therefore, is that the plaintiff is entitled to these notes as against the defendant. It is to be observed that in Bridges v. Hawksworth, which has been the subject of immense disputation, neither counsel put forward any argument on the fact that the notes were found in a shop. Counsel for the appellant assumed throughout that the position was the same as if the parcel had been found in a private house, and the learned judge spoke of the protection of his, the shopkeeper's, house. The case for the appellant was that the shopkeeper never knew of the notes. Again, what is curious is that there was no suggestion that the place where the notes were found was in any way material, indeed, the judge in giving the judgment of the court expressly repudiates this and said in terms the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 168 Chapter 5, Acquisition without transfer learned judge was mistaken in holding that the place in which they were found makes any legal difference. It is, therefore, a little remarkable that in South Staffordshire Water Co. v. Sharman, 1896, 2 QB 44 Lord Russell of Kill Owen CJ said, The case of Bridges v. Hawksworth stands by itself, and on special grounds, and on those grounds it seems to me that the decision in that case was right. Someone had accidentally dropped a bundle of banknotes in a public shop. The shopkeeper did not know they had been dropped, and did not in any sense exercise control over them. 
The shop was open to the public, and they were invited to come there. That might be a matter of some doubt. Customers were invited there, but whether the public at large was, might be open to some question. Lord Russell continued, a customer picked up the notes and gave them to the shopkeeper in order that he might advertise them. The owner of the notes was not found, and the finder then sought to recover them from the shopkeeper. It was held that he was entitled to do so, the ground of the decision being, as was pointed out by Pattison J., that the notes, being dropped in the public part of the shop, were never in the custody of the shopkeeper, or within the protection of his house. Pattison J. never made any reference to the public part of the shop and, indeed, went out of his way to say that the learned county court judge was wrong in holding that the place where they were found made any legal difference. Bridges v. Hawksworth has been the subject of considerable comment by textbook writers and, amongst others, by Mr. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Sir Frederick Pollock and Sir John Salmond. All three agree that the case was rightly decided, but they differ as to the grounds on which it was decided and put forward grounds, none of which, so far as I can discover, were ever advanced by the judges who decided the case. Mr. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, Common law judges and civilians would agree that the finder got possession first and so could keep it as against the shopkeeper. For the shopkeeper, not knowing of the thing, could not have the intent to appropriate it, and, having invited the public to his shop, he could not have the intent to exclude them from it. So he introduces the matter of two intents which are not referred to by the judges who heard the case. Sir Frederick Pollock, whilst he agreed with Mr. Justice Holmes that Bridges v. Hawksworth was properly decided wrote, in such a case as Bridges v. Hawksworth, where a parcel of banknotes was dropped on the floor in the part of a shop frequented by customers, it is impossible to say that the shopkeeper has any possession in fact. He does not expect objects of that kind to be on the floor of his shop, and some customer is more likely than the shopkeeper or his servant to see and take them up if they do come there. He emphasizes the lack of de facto control on the part of the shopkeeper. Sir John Salmond wrote, in Bridges v. Hawksworth a parcel of banknotes was dropped on the floor of the defendant's shop, where they were found by the plaintiff, a customer. It was held that the plaintiff had a good title to them as against the defendant. For the plaintiff, and not the defendant, was the first to acquire possession of them. The defendant had not the necessary animus, for he did not know of their existence. Professor Goodhart, in our own day, in his work Essays in Jurisprudence and the Common Law, 1931, has put forward a further view that perhaps Bridges v. Hawksworth was wrongly decided. It is clear from the decision in Bridges v. Hawksworth that an occupier of land does not in all cases possess an unattached thing on his land even though the true owner has lost possession. With regard to South Staffordshire Water Co. v. Sharman, the first two lines of the headnote are, the possessor of land is generally entitled, as against the finder, to Semeraro, introduction to property I finders 169 chattels found on the land. I am not sure that this is accurate. The facts were that the defendant Sharman, while cleaning out, under the orders of the plaintiffs, the South Staffordshire Water Company, a pool of water on their land, found two rings embedded in the mud at the bottom of the pool. He declined to deliver them to the plaintiffs, but failed to discover the real owner. In an action brought by the company against Sharman in Detanu it was held that the company were entitled to the rings. 
Lord Russell of Kiloan CJ said, the plaintiffs are the freeholders of the locus in quo, and as such they have the right to forbid anybody coming on their land or in any way interfering with it. They had the right to say that their pool should be cleaned out in any way that they thought fit, and to direct what should be done with anything found in the pool in the course of such cleaning out. It is no doubt right, as the counsel for the defendant contended, to say that the plaintiffs must show that they had actual control over the locus in quo and the things in it, but under the circumstances, can it be said that the Minster pool and whatever might be in that pool were not under the control of the plaintiffs? In my opinion they were. The principle on which this case must be decided, and the distinction which must be drawn between this case and that of Bridges v. Hawksworth, is to be found in a passage in Pollock and Wright's essay on possession in the common law, the posse's Zion of land carries with it in general, by our law, possession of everything which is attached to or under that land, and, in the absence of a better title elsewhere, the right to possess it also. If that is right, it would clearly cover the case of the rings embedded in the mud of the pool, the words used being attached to or under that land. Lord Russell continued, and it makes no difference that the possessor is not aware of the thing's existence. It is free to anyone who requires a specific intention as part of a de facto possession to treat this as a positive rule of law. But it seems preferable to say that the legal possession rests on a real de facto possession constituted by the occupier's general power and intent to exclude unauthorized interference. That is the ground on which I prefer to base my judgment. There is a broad distinction between this case and those cited from Blackstone. Those were cases in which a thing was cast into a public place or into the sea into a place, in fact, of which it could not be said that anyone had a real de facto possession, or a general power and intent to exclude unauthorized interference. Then Lord Russell cited the passage which I read earlier in this judgment and continued, it is somewhat strange I venture to echo those words that there is no more direct authority on the question, but the general principle seems to me to be that where a person has possession of house or land, with the manifest intention to exercise control over it and the things which may be upon or in it, then, if something is found on that land, whether by an employee of the owner or by a stranger, the presumption is that the possession of that thing is in the owner of the locus in quo. It is to be observed that Lord Russell there is extending the meaning of the passage he had cited from Pollock and Wright's essay on possession in the common law where the learned authors say that the possession of land carries with it possession of everything which is attached to or under that land. Then Lord Russell adds possession of everything which may be on or in that land. South Staffordshire Water Co v Sharman which was relied on by counsel for the defendant, has also been the subject of some discussion. It has Semeraro, Introduction to Property 170 Chapter 5, Acquisition without transfer been said that it establishes that if a man finds a thing as the servant or agent of another, he finds it not for himself, but for that other, and indeed that seems to afford a sufficient explanation of the case. The rings found at the bottom of the pool were not in the posse's Zion of the company, but it seems that though Sharman was the first to obtain possession of them, he obtained them for his employers and could claim no title for himself. The only other case to which I need refer is Elwes v. Brig Gasco, 33 CHD 562 in which land had been demised to a gas company for 99 years with a reservation to the lessor of all mines and minerals. A prehistoric boat embedded in the soil was discovered by the lessees when they were digging to make a gas holder. It was held that the boat, 
whether regarded as a mineral or as part of the soil in which it was embedded when discovered, or as a chattel, did not pass to the lessees by the demise, but was the property of the lessor though he was ignorant of its existence at the time of granting the lease. Chitty J said. The plaintiff then being thus in possession of the chattel, it follows that the property in the chattel was vested in him. Obviously the right of the original owner could not be established, it had for centuries been lost or barred, even supposing that the property had not been abandoned when the boat was first left on the spot where it was found. The plaintiff, then, had a lawful possession, good against all the world, and therefore the property in the boat. In my opinion it makes no difference, in these circumstances, that the plaintiff was not aware of the existence of the boat. A review of these judgments shows that the authorities are in an unsatisfactory state, and I observe that Sir John Salmond in his book on jurisprudence, after referring to the cases of Elwes v. Brig Gasco and South Staffordshire Water Co. v. Sharman, said, Cases such as these, however, are capable of explanation on other grounds, and do not involve any necessary conflict either with the theory of possession or with the cases already cited, such as Bridges v. Hawksworth. The general principle is that the first finder of a thing has a good title to it against all but the true owner, even though the thing is found on the property of another person, and he cites Armory v. D. Lamory and Bridges v. Hawksworth in support of that proposition. Then he continues, this principle, however, is subject to important exceptions, in which, owing to the special circumstances of the case, the better right is in him on whose property the thing is found and he names three cases as the principal ones, when he on whose property the thing is found is already in possession not merely of the property, but of the thing itself, as in certain circumstances, even without specific knowledge, he undoubtedly may be. The second limitation Sir John Salmond puts is, if anyone finds a thing as the servant or agent of another he finds it not for himself, but for his employer. Then, a third case in which a finder obtains no title is that in which he gets possession only through a trespass or other act of wrongdoing. It is fairly clear from the authorities that a man possesses everything which is attached to or under his land. Secondly, it would appear to be the law from the authorities I have cited, and particularly from Bridges v. Hawksworth, that a man does not necessarily possess a thing which is lying unattached on the surface of his land even though the thing is not possessed by someone else. A difficulty however, arises, because the rule which governs things an occupier possesses as against those which he does not, has never been very clearly formulated in our law. He may possess everything on the land from which he intends to exclude others, if Mr. Justice Holmes is right, or he may possess those things of which he has a de facto control, if Sir Frederick Pollock is right. There is no doubt that in this case the brooch was lost in the ordinary meaning of that term and I should imagine it had been lost for a very considerable time. Indeed, from this correspondence it appears that at one time the predecessors in title of the defendant Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Finders 171 were considering making some claim. But the moment the plaintiff discovered that the brooch might be of some value, he took the advice of his commanding officer and handed it to the police. His conduct was commendable and meritorious. The defendant was never physically in possession of these premises at any time. It is clear that the brooch was never his, in the ordinary acceptation of the term, in that he had the prior possession. He had no knowledge of it, until it was brought to his notice by the finder. 
A discussion of the merits does not seem to help, but it is clear on the facts that the brooch was lost in the ordinary meaning of that word, that it was found by the plaintiff in the ordinary meaning of that word, that its true owner has never been found, that the defendant was the owner of the premises and had his notice drawn to this matter by the plaintiff, who found the brooch. In those circumstances I propose to follow the decision in Bridges v. Hawksworth, and to give judgment in this case for the plaintiff for 66 liters. Benjamin V. Lindner Aviation Inc. 534 and W.2D 400, Iowa 1995, and Bank, Turnus, Justice, Appellant, Heath Benjamin, found over $18,000 in currency inside the wing of an airplane. At the time of this discovery, Appley, State Central Bank, owned the plane and it was being serviced by Appley, Lindner Aviation, Inc. All three parties claimed the money as against the true owner. After a bench trial, the district court held that the currency was mislaid property and belonged to the owner of the plane. The court awarded a finder's fee to Benjamin. Benjamin appealed and Lindner Aviation and State Central Bank Cross appealed. We reverse on the bank's cross appeal and otherwise affirm the judgment of the district court. I background facts and proceedings in April of 1992. State Central Bank became the owner of an airplane when the bank repossessed it from its prior owner who had defaulted on a loan. In August of that year, the bank took the plane to Lindner Aviation for a routine annual inspection. Benjamin worked for Lindner Aviation and did the inspection. As part of the inspection, Benjamin removed panels from the underside of the wings. Although these panels were to be removed annually as part of the routine inspection, a couple of the screws holding the panel on the left wing were so rusty that Benjamin had to use a drill to remove them. Benjamin testified that the panel probably had not been removed for several years. Inside the left wing Benjamin discovered two packets approximately four inches high and wrapped in aluminum foil. He removed the packets from the wing and took off the foil wrapping. Inside the foil was paper currency, tied in string and wrapped in handkerchiefs. The currency was predominantly $20 bills with mint dates before the 1960s, primarily in the 1950s. The money smelled musty. Benjamin took one packet to his jeep and then reported what he had found to his supervisor, offering to divide the money with him. However, the supervisor reported the discovery to the owner of Lindner Aviation, William Engel. Engel insisted that they contact the authorities and he called the Department of Criminal Investigation. The money was eventually turned over to the Keokuk Police Department. Two days later, Benjamin filed an affidavit with the county auditor claiming that he was the finder of the currency under the provisions of Iowa Code Chapter 644, 1991. Lindner Aviation and the bank also filed claims to the money. The notices required by Chapter 644 were published and posted. See Iowa Code 644.8. 1991. No one came forward within 12 months claiming to be the true owner of the money. CID 644.11, if Semeraro, Introduction to Property 172 Chapter 5, Acquisition without transfer True owner does not claim property within 12 months, the right to the property vests in the finder. Benjamin filed this declaratory judgment action against Lindner Aviation and the bank to establish his right to the property. The parties tried the case to the court. 
the district court held that Chapter 644 applies only to lost property and the money here was mislaid property. The court awarded the money to the bank, holding that it was entitled to possession of the money to the exclusion of all but the true owner. The court also held that Benjamin was a finder within the meaning of Chapter 644 and awarded him a 10% finder's fee. CID 644.13, a finder of lost property is entitled to 10% of the value of the lost property as a reward. Benjamin appealed. He claims that Chapter 644 governs the disposition of all found property and any common law distinctions between various types of found property are no longer valid. He asserts alternatively that even under the common law classes of found property, he is entitled to the money he discovered. He claims that the trial court should have found that the property was treasure trove or was lost or abandoned rather than mislaid, thereby entitling the finder to the property. The bank and Lindner Aviation cross-appealed. Lindner Aviation claims that if the money is mislaid property, it is entitled to the money as the owner of the premises on which the money was found, the hangar where the plane was parked. It argues in the alternative that it is the finder, not Benjamin, because Benjamin discovered the money during his work for Lindner Aviation. The bank asserts in its cross-appeal that it owns the premises where the money was found the airplane and that no one is entitled to a finder's fee because Chapter 644 does not apply to mislaid property. Whether the money found by Benjamin was treasure trove or was mislaid, abandoned or lost property is a fact question. Therefore, the trial court's finding that the money was mislaid is binding on us if supported by substantial evidence. 3. Does Chapter 644 supersede the common law classifications of found property? Benjamin argues that Chapter 644 governs the rights of finders of property and abrogates the common law distinctions between types of found property. As he points out, lost property statutes are intended to encourage and facilitate the return of property to the true owner, and then to reward a finder for his honesty if the property remains unclaimed. Passet v. Old Orchard Bank and Trust Co., 62 Ill App.3D 534, 1978, interpreting a statute similar to Chapter 644. These goals, Benjamin argues, can best be achieved by applying such statutes to all types of found property. We have held, however, that Chapter 644 applies only if the property discoffered can be categorized as lost property as that term is defined under the common law. Thus, the trial court correctly looked to the common law classifications of found property to decide who had the right to the money discovered here. For classification of found property under the common law, there are four categories of found property, 1, abandoned property, 2, lost property, 3, mislaid property, and, 4, treasure trove. The rights of a finder of property depend on how the found property is classified. A. Abandoned property. Property is abandoned when the owner no longer wants to possess it. Abandonment is shown by proof that the owner intends to abandon the property and has voluntarily relinquished all right, title and interest in the property. Abandoned property belongs to the finder of the property against all others including the former owner. Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Finders 173b Lost Property Property is lost when the owner unintentionally and involuntarily parts with its possession and does not know where it is.
Ritz v. Selma United Methodist Church, 467N.W.2D266-269, Iowa 1991. Stolen property found by someone who did not participate in the theft is lost property. Under Chapter 644, lost property becomes the property of the finder once the statutory procedures are followed and the owner makes no claim within 12 months. Iowa Code ID 644.11, 1991. See Mislaid Property. Mislaid property is voluntarily put in a certain place by the owner who then overlooks or forgets where the property is. It differs from lost property in that the owner voluntarily and intentionally places mislaid property in the location where it is eventually found by another. In contrast, property is not considered lost unless the owner parts with it involuntarily. The finder of mislaid property acquires no rights to the property. The right of POS session of mislaid property belongs to the owner of the premises upon which the property is found, as against all persons other than the true owner. D. Treasure Trove Treasure Trove consists of coins or currency concealed by the owner. It includes an element of antiquity. To be classified as Treasure Trove, the property must have been hidden or concealed for such a length of time that the owner is probably dead or undiscoverable. Treasure Trove belongs to the finder as against all but the true owner. V. Is there substantial evidence to support the trial court's finding that the money found by Benjamin was mislaid? We think there was substantial evidence to find that the currency discovered by Benjamin was mislaid property. In the Eldridge case, we examined the location where the money was found as a factor in determining whether the money was lost property. Eldridge, 291N.W.2D at 323, the place where money or property claimed as lost is found is an important factor in the determination of the question of whether it was lost or only mislaid. Similarly, in Ritz, we considered the manner in which the money had been secreted in deciding that it had not been abandoned. Ritz, 467N.W.2D at 269. The place where Benjamin found the money and the manner in which it was hidden are also important here. The bills were carefully tied and wrapped and then concealed in a location that was accessible only by removing screws in a panel. These circumstances support an inference that the money was placed there intentionally. This inference supports the conclusion that the money was mislaid. Jackson v. Steinberg, 186 or 129, 1948, fact that $800 in currency was found concealed beneath the paper lining of a dresser indicates that money was intentionally concealed with intention of reclaiming it, therefore, property was mislaid, not lost. Sly v. Couch, 155 Tex 195, 1955, holding that money found buried under garage floor was mislaid property as a matter of law because circumstances showed that money was placed there deliberately and court presumed that owner had either forgotten where he hid the money or had died before retrieving it. The same facts that support the trial court's conclusion that the money was mislaid prevent us from ruling as a matter of law that the property was lost. Property is not considered lost unless considering the place where and the conditions under which the property is found, there is an inference that the property was left there unintentionally. Contrary to Benjamin's position the circumstances here do not support a conclusion that the money was placed in the wing of the airplane unintentionally.
Additionally, as the trial court concluded, there was no evidence suggesting that the money was placed in the wing by someone other than the owner of the money and that its location was unknown to the owner. For these reasons, we reject Benjamin's argument that the trial court was obligated to find that the currency Benjamin discovered was lost property. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 174 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer We also reject Benjamin's assertion that as a matter of law this money was abandoned property. Both logic and common sense suggest that it is unlikely someone would voluntarily part with over $18,000 with the intention of terminating his ownership. The location where this money was found is much more consistent with the conclusion that the owner of the property was placing the money there for safekeeping. We will not presume that an owner has abandoned his property when his conduct is consistent with a continued claim to the property. Therefore, we cannot rule that the district court erred in failing to find that the currency discovered by Benjamin was abandoned property. Finally, we also conclude that the trial court was not obligated to decide that this money was treasure trove. Based on the dates of the currency, the money was no older than 35 years. The mint dates, the musty odor and the rusty condition of a few of the panel screws indicate that the money may have been hidden for some time. However, there was no evidence of the age of the airplane or the date of its last inspection. These facts may have shown that the money was concealed for a much shorter period of time. Moreover, it is also significant that the airplane had a well-documented ownership history. The record reveals that there were only two owners of the plane prior to the bank. One was the person from whom the bank repossessed the plane, the other was the original purchaser of the plane when it was manufactured. Nevertheless, there is no indication that Benjamin or any other party attempted to locate and notify the prior owners of the plane, which could very possibly have led to the identification of the true owner of the money. Under these circumstances, we cannot say as a matter of law that the money meets the antiquity requirement or that it is probable that the owner of the money is not discoverably. We think the district court had substantial evidence to support its finding that the money found by Benjamin was mislaid. The circumstances of its concealment and the low cation where it was found support inferences that the owner intentionally placed the money there and intended to retain ownership. We are bound by this factual finding. 6. Is the airplane or the hangar the premises where the money was discovered? Because the money discovered by Benjamin was properly found to be mislaid property, it belongs to the owner of the premises where it was found. Mislaid property is entrusted to the owner of the premises where it is found rather than the finder of the property because it is assumed that the true owner may eventually recall where he has placed his property and return there to reclaim it. We think that the premises where the money was found is the airplane not Lindner Aviation's hangar where the airplane happened to be parked when the money was discovered. The policy behind giving ownership of mislaid property to the owner of the premises where the property was mislaid supports this conclusion. If the true owner of the money attempts to locate it, he would initially look for the plane, it is unlikely he would begin his search by contacting businesses where the airplane might have been inspected. Therefore, we affirm the trial court's judgment that the bank, as the owner of the plane, has the right to possession of the property as against all but the true owner. 7. Is Benjamin entitled to a finder's fee? Benjamin claims that if he is not entitled to the money, he should be paid a 10% finder's fee under 644.13.
The problem with this claim is that only the finder of lost goods, money, banknotes, and other things is rewarded with a finder's fee under CH 644. Iowa Code 644.13, 1991. Because the property found by Benjamin was mislaid property, not lost property, 644.13 does not apply here. The trial court erred in awarding Benjamin a finder's fee. Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Finders 175 Affirmed in part, reversed in part. Snell, Justice, Dissenting, I respectfully dissent. The life of the law is logic, it has been said. If so, it should be applied here. The majority quotes with approval the general rule that whether money found is treasure trove, mislaid, abandoned, or lost property is a fact question. In deciding a fact question, we are to consider the facts as known and all reasonable inferences to be drawn from them. Thus does logic, reason, and common sense enter in. After considering the four categories of found money, the majority decides that Benjamin found mislaid money. The result is that the bank gets all the money, Benjamin, the finder, gets nothing. Apart from the obvious unfairness in result, I believe this conclusion fails to come from logical analysis. Mislaid property is property voluntarily put in a certain place by the owner who then overlooks or forgets where the property is. The property here consisted of two packets of paper currency totaling sick $18,910, 3 to 4 inches high, wrapped in aluminum foil. Inside the foil, the paper currency, predominantly $20 bills, was tied with string and wrapped in handkerchiefs. Most of the mint dates were in the 1950s with one dated 1934. These packets were found in the left wing of the Mooney airplane after Benjamin removed a panel held in by rusty screws. These facts satisfy the requirement that the property was voluntarily put in a certain place by the owner. But the second test for determining that property is mislaid is that the owner overlooks or forgets where the property is. See Ritz, 467n.w.2d at 269. I do not believe that the facts, logic, or common sense lead to a finding that this requirement is met. It is not likely or reasonable to suppose that a person would secrete $18,000 in an airplane wing and then forget where it was. Cases cited by the majority contrasting mislaid property and lost property are appropriate for a comparison of these principles but do not foreclose other considerations. After finding the money, Benjamin proceeded to give written notice of finding the property as prescribed in Iowa Code Chapter 644, 1993, Lost Property. As set out in Section 556F.8, notices were posted on the courthouse door and in three other public places in the county. In addition, notice was published once each week for three consecutive weeks in a newspaper of general circulation in the county. Also, Affidavits of publication were filed with the county auditor who then had them published as part of the Board of Supervisors proceedings. Iowa Code 556F.9 After 12 months, if no person appears to claim and prove ownership of the property, the right to the property rests irrevocably in the finder. Iowa Code 556F.11 The purpose of this type of legal notice is to give people the opportunity to assert a claim if they have one. If no claim is made, 
the law presumes there is none or for whatever reason it is not asserted. Thus, a failure to make a claim after legal notice is given is a bar to a claim made thereafter. Benjamin followed the law in giving legal notice of finding property. None of the parties dispute this. The suggestion that Benjamin should have initiated a further search for the true owner is not a requirement of the law, is therefore irrelevant, and in no way diminishes Benjamin's rights as finder. The scenario unfolded in this case convinces me that the money found in the airplane wing was abandoned. Property is abandoned when the owner no longer wants to possess it. The money had been there for years, possibly thirty. No owner had claimed its emeraro. Introduction to Property 176 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer in that time. No claim was made by the owner after legally prescribed notice was given that it had been found. Thereafter, logic and the law support a finding that the owner has voluntarily relinquished all right, title, and interest in the property. Whether the money was abandoned due to its connection to illegal drug trafficking or is otherwise contraband property is a matter for speculation. In any event, abandonment by the true owner has legally occurred and been established. I would hold that Benjamin is legally entitled to the entire amount of money that he found in the airplane wing as the owner of abandoned property. In re, seizure of $82,000 more or less, Jeffrey Chapel v. United States 119 F Sup 2D 1013, WDMO 2000, Lori, Judge. These consolidated cases concern the ownership of $82,000 found in a 1995 V Volkswagen Golf titled in the name of Helen Chapel. The United States government asserts that the $82,000 came from illegal drug sales and should be forfeited to the government. The Chappells contend that the $82,000 belongs to them because it was found in the gas tank of a car which they purchased from the government, after the car had been forfeited by its owner. For the reasons stated below, the court finds that the government is not entitled to the currency. I factual background The following facts have been stipulated by the parties. On February 15, 1996, COR Parole Jack McMullen of the Missouri State Highway Patrol stopped a 1995 V Volkswagen Golf for speeding and following too closely. During the stop, Corporal McMullen interviewed and became suspicious of both passengers in the vehicle, Roberto Lopez Vales and Guadalupe Cortez Amezcua. After a consensual search indicated fresh silicone on the undercarriage of the vehicle, Corporal McMullen asked the occupants if they would mind bringing the vehicle to the Missouri State Highway Patrol garage for a more thorough inspection. The occupants agreed to do so. Once at the garage, Corporal McMullen found that the battery in the vehicle had recently been removed, and he observed plastic baggies in the battery case. He then contacted Special Agent Carl Hicks, of the Drug Enforcement Association, DEA, who responded to assist Corporal McMullen. Special Agent Hicks observed that the plastic baggies contained foil-wrapped objects. When he opened the baggies and foil, he found $24,000 in United States currency and noticed a strong odor of methamphetamine coming from the baggies. Special Agent Hicks then interviewed Lopez Vales and Cortez Amezcua. Both Lopez Vales and Cortez Amezcua explained that they had driven the vehicle from Mexico to a holiday inn in St. Louis, Missouri, however, they were unable to identify the holiday inn. Lopez Vales stated that he had parked the vehicle in the parking lot. The vehicle was then picked up by unknown persons and returned. 
Lopez Velas admitted that he had known that $24,000 was in the battery of the car and that the currency was from the sale of illegal drugs. Lopez Velas stated that Cortez Amezcua did not know about the currency. Lopez Velas refused to name the person who had hired him to make the trip to St. Louis. At the conclusion of the interview, Special Agent Hicks announced that he was going to seize the $24,000 as drug proceeds, and was going to seize the vehicle as an item used to transport drug proceeds. Hicks advised Lopez Velas that he was not under arrest and was free to leave. Lopez Velas and Cortez Amescu left the highway patrol garage and have not returned. Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Finders 177 Special Agent Hicks sent the plastic baggies and foil for analysis. The substance on the foil was found to be caffeine, an ingredient commonly used as a cutting agent for methamphetamine. The DEA subsequently determined that the 1995 Volkswagen Golf was registered to Miguel Angel Sanchez Cortez, Punta del Este, 967 Saltilla, Coa, Mexico. Following the procedures established by Congress for the disposition of seized property, the DEA initiated an administrative forfeiture action against the $24,000 and the 1995 Volkswagen Golf. The only claimant who came forward to contest the forfeiture of those items was Lopez Velez, who filed a claim and cost bond on April 30, 1996. On July 10, 1996, an assistant United States attorney mailed a stipulation to an attorney for Lopez Velez, proposing the settlement of the claim prior to the filing of a judicial action. The attorney for Lopez Velez requested that the stipulation be mailed to him for his CLIN's signature. The stipulation was never returned to the United States Attorney's Office. On April 2, 1998, the United States Attorney's Office, with the concurrence of the attorney for Lopez Velez, referred the case back to the DEA to have the vehicle and the $24,000 declared abandoned. On June 12, 1998, the DEA declared the 1995 Volkswagen Golf and the $24,000 abandoned. On September 24, 1998, the DEA referred the 1995 Volkswagen Golf to the General Services Administration GSA, for sale because the DEA did not have the capacity to conduct a public auction. The DEA authorized GSA to sell the car but made no mention of the vehicle's contents. The DEA advised GSA that it had no information indicating that the vehicle required repairs, but also advised GSA that it believed the odometer reading was incorrect. Helen Chappell was the successful bidder for the 1995 Volkswagen Golf. On April 14, 1999, Jeffrey Chappell's Discover credit card was used to pay for the vehicle, and Helen Chappell received from GSA a certificate to obtain title to a vehicle. The vehicle is currently titled in Helen Chappell's name. At the time of this purchase, neither the Chappells, the DEA, nor GSA knew that $82,000 was hidden in the fuel tank of the vehicle. Not surprisingly, the Chappells noticed that the Volkswagen Golf had a fuel problem. Jeffrey Chappell took the vehicle to Waldo Imports in Kansas City, Missouri, to have the fuel problem fixed. While working on the car, the Waldo Imports mechanic found several bundles of currency floating in the fuel tank of the vehicle. He reported his find to the DEA office in Overland Park, Kansas. 
DEA agents went to Waldo Imports and seized 20 bundles of currency wrapped in plastic, totaling $82,000, more or less. A check of each bill revealed that none of the bills had a printing date later than 1996, when the vehicle was originally seized. On the date of the seizure, Special Agent Melton contacted Jeffrey Chappell, who explained that he had recently purchased the vehicle from GSA and had been unaware that the currency was inside the fuel tank. The Chappells have filed for the return of the currency pursuant to Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 41, e. 1999. The United States has filed for judicial foreclosure claiming the currency as drug proceeds pursuant to 21 U.S.C. 881. 2. Discussion B. The innocent owner's defense This judicial forfeiture action is governed by 21 U.S.C. S. 881, which provides, in relevant part, that a. The following shall be subject to forfeiture to the United States and no property right shall vest in them. 6. All monies furnished or intended to be furnished by any person in exchange for a controlled substance, and all proceeds traceable to such semeraro. Introduction to Property 178 Chapter 5, Acquisition without transfer and exchange, except that no property shall be forfeited under this paragraph to the extent of the interest of an owner by reason of any act or omis Zion established by that owner to have been committed or omitted without the knowledge or consent of that owner. 21 U.S.C. S. 881, A. 6. This statute therefore protects innocent owners of property from forfeitures, even if the property is ultimately traceable to drug trafficking. Because the United States has shown probable cause to believe that the $82,000 is subject to forfeiture as drug proceeds, the Chappells must prove their innocent owner's defense by the preponderance of the evidence. The United States does not dispute that the Chappells are innocent, but it does dispute that they are owners. The Chappells advance two theories to support their claim that they own the $82,000. First, they argue that the contents of a car pass automatically to the purchaser of the car simply because the transferor had the power to transfer the contents. Second, they argue that the $82,000 is mislaid property and the Chappells are entitled to the currency because they own the premises, the vehicle, where the currency was found. Neither argument is viable. The evidence is insufficient to show that the government intended to transfer own airship of the $82,000 to the Chappells at the time it sold the Volkswagen to them. There cannot be an agreement to transfer ownership if neither party is aware that the property exists. Chappelle's argument that someone actually transfers ownership of property simply because they had the power to do so and the property changes possession is not supported by the authorities cited by the Chappelle's and is inconsistent with the basic principles of the Uniform Commercial Code and Common Law. Nor can this currency be characterized as mislaid. Property is mislaid if it is voluntarily put down by its owner and its owner forgets where the property is. A purse found on a counter or the seat of a bus will generally be characterized as mislaid because it is logical to assume that the purse was intentionally placed and then forgotten. A wallet found on the floor, however, will be characterized as lost because it is unlikely that someone would put a wallet on the floor intending to return for it. If property is lost, possession of the property is entrusted to the finder of the lost property not the owner of the premises where the property is found. If the property is mislaid, then the owner of the premises where the property is found is entitled to possession, not the finder. 
The factual record in this case does not support the Chappelle's conclusion that the $82,000 is mislaid property. While the money was almost certainly placed in the gas tank intentionally, it is equally certain that the owners of the currency knew what happened to the money and chose not to claim it. Indeed, at least one district court has concluded that it is beyond belief that anyone would hide a large amount of currency and then suddenly forget where it was. Both cases cited by the Chappells in support of their argument that the currency was mislaid are distinguishable. In Benjamin V. Lindner Aviation, Inc., 534N.W.2D400, Iowa 1995, a large amount of cash was found in the wing of the airplane. The cash had been in the plane for nearly 30 years and there was no evidence as to why the money was secreted or to whom it belonged. Similarly in State XREL. Scott V. Buzard, 235 MOAP. 636, 1940, a large amount of cash was secreted in the wall of a building. There was no way to identify how long the money had been in the wall or who might have hidden it. In both cases, the courts characterized the money as mislaid. The courts reasoned that, but for a lapse of memory, the true owners would have returned for such valuable property. The record in this case, however, is not so skeletal. There is a good explanation for why the true owners did not seek to recover the currency even though they knew where it was. The money was owned by drug dealers and if they came to claim it, they might eventually be Semeraro. Introduction to Property I Finders 179 Arrested for Participating in a Drug Conspiracy Because the court finds that the owner of the $82,000 knew its location, the second prong of the mislaid property test was not satisfied. Instead of finding the property lost or mislaid, the court finds the property abandoned. Abandonment consists of two elements, one, an intent to abandon, and, two, the external act by which the intention is carried into effect. Hoffman Management Corp. v. SLC of North AM, Inc., 800S.W.2D755-762, MOAP.1990 Although abandonment should not be presumed lightly, it may be found when the evidence clearly and decisively leads to that conclusion. This is such a case. Drug traffickers know better than to stake claims to contraband and drug proceeds. It is far more sensible for such criminals to disclaim any interest in the property and avoid possible prosecution. In this case, Lopez Valles originally contested the forfeiture of the vehicle and the $24,000, but he never showed up to pursue his claim. It would stretch credulity to conclude that he knew about the $24,000 in the battery case and that the vehicle was transporting drug proceeds but he and the owner of the car did not know about the $82,000. Rather, the evidence shows that the original owners of the currency intended to abandon the $82,000 after the 1995 V Volkswagen Golf was seized by the DEA, and that they acted on this intent by failing to come forward and claim the funds. Under Missouri law, those who abandon property lose title. Therefore, under Missouri law, no one owned the $82,000 while these funds were hidden in the V Volkswagen Golf after it was abandoned. The currency went back into a state of nature analogous to wild animals. The question is who has the right to this currency which was abandoned and for a period of time was owned by no one? Once property has been abandoned, the first finder who acquires dominion over the property becomes its owner.
The first person to exercise dominion over this $82,000 was the Waldo mechanic. The mechanic, however, was acting as the Chappelle's agent at the moment he took possession of the currency. He had been told that there was a fuel problem with the vehicle. It was during his investigation of the fuel problem that he found the $82,000. Under these circumstances should the agent or his principal be entitled to the currency? Missouri has not specifically addressed this question, but other jurisdictions have held that possession by the agent is in fact possession by the principal. In Ray V. Flower Hosp, 1 Ohio App.3D 127, 1981, the Ohio Court of Appeals stated, in a long line of cases where hotel chambermaids, bank janitors, bank tellers, grocery store bagboys and other employees have found property while in their employ, virtually every case has charged the employee with the duty to turn the found property over to the employer for safekeeping. The reason for such a holding is that the possession of the servant is the POS session of the employer and that, therefore, the element is wanting which would give the title to the servant as against the master. Also see, Boyer, Hovenkamp and Kurtz, The Law of Property at 8, 4th ed. T. He possession of articles found during and within the scope of one's employment is generally awarded to the employer and not to the finder. 1-1 in Hoagland, the Missouri Supreme Court cited cases dealing with lost property where the employee was held to have superior rights to the employer, but the court did not have the agency case before it and the property in question was lost not abandoned. In Buzard, the Missouri Supreme Court found in favor of the owner of a building against the employee but that case involved mislaid property. The courts in Foster, and Allred v. Beagle, both found in favor of the landowner but the finders in those cases were not employees. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 180 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer Not all courts have agreed on this issue, however. Also see, R. H. Helmholtz, Equitable DIV and the Law of Finders, 52 Fordam L. Rev. 313, 319, 1983, as with the distinction between lost and mislaid items based on the place of finding, the distinction between finding by employees and finding by non-employees has appeared incapable of consistent application over the course of the last 45 years. The court finds the more persuasive position on this question is that abandoned property found by an agent is the property of the principal, so long as the agent is acting within the scope of his agency. This is consistent with Missouri's position that an agent must account for any profits he acquires during the agency relationship. This case is also factually distinguishable from Kalivaki S., where a steward on a steamship found property on the deck of the ship while walking from one place to another. In contrast, the Chappelles told their mechanic to fix the fuel problem in their car and it was during the mechanic's specifically assigned task that the money was located. Finally, and most importantly, this conclusion is consistent with the reasonable expectations of a car owner. One does not expect that the mechanic to whom a car is entrusted has the right to look through it and keep things which are hidden therein. For similar reasons, the courts have held that objects found underground belong to the landowner not the person who found them. Allred v. Beagle, 240 MO App. 818, 1949. In such cases it is held that the presumption is that the finder has no rights therein, the presumption being that possession is in the owner of the locus in quo. 
ID at 666. Because of policy concerns, courts award embedded property to the locus owner. Courts consider embedded property to be an exception to the general category of lost property. By distinguishing embedded property from other fines, courts hope to eliminate waste and spoilage of property and recognize locus owners' expectations about and constructive possession of items embedded within the land. Liana Izuel, Property Owners' Constructive Possession of Treasure Trove, Rethinking the Finder's Keeper's Rule, 38 UCLAL Revelation 1659, 1991. For all these reasons, the court concludes that the Chappells became the owner of the $82,000 when the mechanic first found the money. The United States finally argues that public policy should not allow anyone to profit from illegal drug trafficking. The question in this case, however, is not whether anyone should profit from drug activity, but rather who should profit from it the United States or the Chappells. In shielding innocent owners from the forfeiture laws, Congress has expressed a public policy in favor of allowing innocent people like the Chappells to keep their property even if it consists of drug proceeds. It should also be noted that the Chappells would never have acquired an interest in this $82,000 if the government had found the currency during the years that the Volkswagen Golf was in its possession. The reason the car was seized in the first place was the recent work that had been done on the undercarriage. This, plus the fact that the gas gauge always registered empty, might have inspired a search of the gas tank before the car was sold at auction. As early as the 1970s when Easy Rider was aired, the government was on notice that drug dealers use gas tanks to hide their contraband. While the equities do not weigh in the Chappelle's favor since the $82,000 is a windfall, neither do the equities weigh in favor of the government. The common law principles discussed in this order should, therefore, prevail. F. Shipwrecks and Milestone Baseball's two areas giving rise to difficult finders claims in recent years involve treasure hunters recovering the cargo from sunken ships and fans scrambling to catch milestone home run baseballs. Modern technologies have enabled treasure hunters to locate many long-lost sunken ships and recover their cargo. The developing technology of Treasure Semeraro, introduction to property I finders 181 hunting is thus creating new finders law issues. At common law, sunken cargo remained the property of the ship owner. One who recovered the cargo was entitled only to a finder's fee. In the United States, the law has distinguished between ships lying on the seabed and ships that are embedded within it. The former have been treated as lost, and treasure hunt ERS have been granted property rights. When the ship is embedded in the ground beneath the territorial waters of a state, the ship and its cargo are deemed property of the state. Abandoned Shipwreck Act of 1987, 43 U.S.C. 2101-2106 The exponential growth in the value of sports memorabilia has produced two controversial finders law issues with respect to valuable milestone baseballs recovered by fans. The first involves the relative claims of the team or player and the claims of the fan who catches the ball. Baseball teams generally permit fans to keep baseballs that go into the stands. Does that standard practice mean that a team abandons any claim to a milestone home run ball that may be worth thousands of times what an ordinary ball is worth, and in which the batter may have property rights as well? Compare Stephen Semeraro, an essay on property rights in milestone home run baseballs, 56 SMUL Rev. 
2281, 2003, arguing that the team does not abandon its rights in the ball and that the player may also have a claim on it, with Paul Finkelman, Fugitive Baseballs and Abandoned Property, who owns the home run ball, 23 Cardozo L. Rev. 1609, 2002, neither the team nor the player have any claim. The second issue involves claims among fans who struggle to catch the ball. Assuming that the team and player have abandoned any claims, the first fan to take possession would secure ownership rights. But how is possession determined when a crowd pounces on a loose baseball? The court in a case involving a record-setting Barry Bonds home run ball held that two fans with conflicting claims had to sell the ball and split the proceeds. Papa Vihayashi, CA Sup. CT 2002. Finders Law Short Essay Question Orville, a wealthy Southern political activist, agreed to host an elegant fundraising dinner for a senatorial candidate in his district. The event was held at Orville's country estate, a beautiful old mansion with a colorful history where Orville and his family usually spent their weekends. The event was open to anyone who made a minimum campaign contribution of $5,000. Frank, one of 250 people who attended the event, tripped on the carpet on an elaborately carved wood stairway and accidentally knocked the top off a newel post on the stairway. Unhurt, Frank picked himself up, and looked inside the newel post. There Frank found stacks of Confederate currency in mint condition, worth thousands of dollars to collectors of Civil War memorabilia. Frank told Orville what he had found and claimed the right to keep the money. Orville also claimed the right to keep the money. Who gets to keep the money and why? 2. Acquisition by adverse possession One of the most surprising aspects of property law for law students is that individuals can obtain full property rights in land or chattels simply by possessing them for a sufficiently long period of time. To one who has a basic understanding of civil law procedures, however, the notion should not seem that radical. When an individual invades the real property of another, the owner of the property may bring an ejectment action, and when one takes the property of another, the owner may file a replevin action. Like virtually all causes of action, a statute of limitations requires that the owner file the appropriate action within a certain period of time or forfeit his right. In the past, ejectment statutes of limitation were often quite long, 25 years or more. The modern trend has been to shorten these statutes to as little as three years. Six to ten years is now typical, though some remain semeraro. Introduction to Property 182 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer Much Longer If the statute runs, the owner loses his right to eject and the trespasser receives full ownership rights backdated to the start of his adverse possession. Personal property is treated similarly. Despite the statute of limitations analogy, many find the notion of property acquisition by adverse possession unseemly. After all, a wrongful trespasser is profiting from his affirmative wrongdoing, and the owner has erred, if at all, only by omission. As is often the case with respect to property, the law takes a broader perspective, looking to how society's overall interests are affected. One account focuses not on the trespasser, but on those who come to deal with him as the apparent owner of the property. When the real owner sits back and allows others to develop practices and expectations with respect to an adverse possessor, 
society's interest in stable expectations of property ownership outweigh the owner's right to the security of a particular property interest. The doctrine of accession that allows one to take ownership of personal property that has been altered and significantly increased in value may be based on similar policy considerations. See Weatherby v. Green, 22 Michigan 311, 1871, giving ownership to a party that wrongfully took wood worth $25 from a property owner and transforming it into hoops worth $800. Another account, made famous by Oliver Wendell Holmes in his classic book, The Path of the Law, focused on how human beings by nature become attached to that which they possess for extended periods of time and suffer if these attachments are severed. The owner of adversely possessed property, knowing as we all do that attachments grow over time, bears some responsibility to assert his rights before the attachment grows so strong that wresting the property from the adverse possessor would cause him great hardship. A. The elements of adverse possession An adverse possessor must satisfy several elements to successfully acquire property by adverse possession. These elements are, 1. Actual entry onto the property Physical possession of the property is necessary, merely acquiring paper title does not start the running of the statute. 2. Open and notorious possession occupation of the property must occur in such a way that reasonable people in the area would observe and recognize the possession. Note that the true property owner need not have actual notice of the possession. In cases involving adverse possession across a property boundary, however, courts often require stronger evidence that reasonable observers or perhaps even the owner of the adversely possessed property should have known that the possessor had crossed the line and POS cessed his neighbor's property. 3. Continuous possession Literal continuity is not required, but the trespasser must use the property at least as regularly as an owner would. For example, if the property is commonly used as a personal residence, then the adverse possessor must also use it that way. But, if the property is a beach house generally used only for vacations, then the trespasser may satisfy the continuity element merely by using the property sporadically. Of course, if the possessor uses the beach house even more frequently, then the continuity element would be satisfied. If an adverse possessor abandons the claim on the property by relinquishing possession with an intent to give up rights, the statutory period begins anew if the trespasser re-enters at a later time. For exclusive possession the trespasser must possess the property exclusively from the owner. Multiple trespassers, however, may possess the property together so long as they distinguish themselves from the general public. 5. Possession must be adverse and hostile to the true owner This element is also referred to as possessing under a claim of right or a claim of title. The meaning of this element is somewhat complex. It does not require actual animosity toward Semeraro, introduction to property 2. Adverse possession 183 The owner but it certainly requires that the owner did not give the trespasser permission to occupy the property. A possessor with permission is not adverse and thus, this element is not satisfied. Generally, courts will not assume permission from lack of action by the owner. The owner must demonstrate that she affirmatively granted permission. For possessors without permission, this element is intended to identify those who are claiming the property as their own in a way that is intended to cut off the actual owner's rights. Jurisdictions have used three different approaches to determining the intentions of the possible adverse possessor. Two older approaches look subjectively at the adverse possessor's state of mind, a, 
subjective good faith Some jurisdictions require that the trespasser believe that he in fact owns the property even though he does not, and b. Subjective aggressive trespasser Some jurisdictions require that the trespasser knew that he did not own the property, but nonetheless claimed a right to posse's Zion. The third, and now dominant approach, looks objectively at the adverse posse's SOR's actions, c. Objective facts Most jurisdictions now look to the objective facts surrounding the possession, did the trespasser's actions reasonably indicate that the trespasser is claiming an ownership right in the property? In other words, is the trespasser acting as an owner would? Improving or enclosing the property are classic objective facts satisfying this element. Image Source Stock Exchange www.sxc.hu Perhaps ironically, signs like this one do not prevent adverse possession and may make it easier for the possessor to prove the adverse and hostile element. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 184 Chapter 5 Acquisition without transfer B. Color of title A trespasser is said to have color of title when he has what purports to be a deed to the property that is invalid. Having color of title does not alter the elements required to prove adverse possession, but it may make it easier to convince a court that a trespasser has satisfied the elements. The most important aspect of color of title is that it enables the trespasser to accrue adverse possession rights in the entire property described by the deed. Without color of title, the trespasser accrues rights only in the portion of the property that is actually possessed or enclosed. With color of title, the trespasser is said to constructively possess the entire property defined by the bogus deed. See tacking from the perspective that adverse possession is an underhanded means of obtaining a property interest, one might demand that each trespasser personally satisfy the statute of limitations. But, if the limitations period is intended to require the owner to sue to exclude trespassers within a certain period of time, the owner may not deserve extra time simply because the identity of the trespasser has changed. The law has adopted a middle course. The general rule is that a subsequent trespasser may tack an earlier period of adverse possession if there is some formal transfer of possessory rights from the first trespasser to the second. Since an adverse possessor, if he ultimately takes ownership, is treated as having been the owner from the moment of the initial entry, the notion of a formal transfer of adverse possession rights is not as strange as it might first appear. Where one trespasser simply follows another without a formal transfer of rights, however, the new trespasser must possess the property for the entire adverse possession period. D. Ownership transfer during the adverse possession period If a fee simple absolute owner of property sells that property while it is being adversely possessed, the new owner does not get a new limitations period. Adverse posse's Zion is said to run against the estate, not the particular holder of the estate. Adverse POS session thus continues to be measured based on the possessor's entry onto the property even when an estate is transferred. If the statute has run completely, then the adverse possessor has taken ownership and the new purchaser will generally have no possessory rights. The purchaser may, however, have a deed covenant claim against the owner who sold him that property, see Chapter 6.3. The new purchaser also may be able to claim priority over the adverse possessor under a recording statute as a subsequent bona fide purchaser, see Chapter 6.V. Where property ownership shifts as a result of the natural termination of a posse's sorry estate, e.g., the end of a lease or life estate, or through a divesting clause, the situation is different. 
Because the statute of limitations runs against the estate, the adverse posse's SOR can only accrue rights toward, and ultimately take, the present possessory estate. Futur interest holders receive a new estate when they take possession. For example, if a trespasser takes possession of land over which A holds a life estate, the trespasser could only acquire that life estate through adverse possession. When the life estate holder dies, the owner of the remainder will have a right to take possession from the adverse possessor. Whether the limitations period has partially or even fully run when a future interest holder's right becomes possessory, the shift of the estate triggers a new statute of limitations for adverse possession. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Adverse Possession 185 e Adverse Possession Against the Government at Common Law Adverse Possession was not permitted against the government. In many jurisdictions, the law now permits adverse possession against the government. Some apply the same rules to public and private land, others set a longer statutory period for government land, and others allow adverse possession against government property used in a proprietary fashion, but not land used in a public fashion, such as a park or municipal building. F. Disabilities Adverse Possession Law tolls the statute of limitations in a rather complex way when the owner of the property is disabled. Disabled includes three categories, a minor, meaning someone younger than 18 years of age, an imprisoned person, and a person of unsound mind, which should be understood as a person suffering from severe mental illness that might require institutionalization. Importantly, the tolling provision only applies if the owner suffers from such a disability at the moment the trespasser first enters the property. Disabilities that arise after the adverse possession has begun do not toll the statute. Unlike standard tolling provisions, disability tolling does not simply freeze the running of the statute. On the contrary, the statute runs as it normally would. When the disability ends, however, a court must look at the current state of the statute of limitations. Although state laws differ widely, they typically provide extra time after a disability ends to file an ejectment action only if the remaining time under the statute has run out or crossed a particular threshold. For example, if the statute of limitations to file an ejectment action is 20 years, a typical disability statute would provide that if more than 10 years remains to file after the disability ends, then the ejectment statute of limitations applies as it normally would. The disability therefore makes no difference. If, however, the statute has completely run or has less than 10 years remaining when the disability ends, then the owner would have 10 years in which to bring an ejectment action. In a jurisdiction with a statute of limitations shorter than 10 years, after a disability ends the owner would typically have the standard length of the statute to sue for ejectment, or some shorter time specified in the disability statute. The disability ends when the disabled owner reaches maturity, is released from prison, is cured of mental illness, or dies. What is the result if the disability of the owner ends in death, and the individual who inherits the property is also disabled? The disability of the new owner is ignored. Adverse Possession Short SA Question Ollie inherited Ducktail Marsh, a 100-acre unimproved parcel, from his father, an avid hunter and fisherman. Ollie, however, has no interest in hunting and fishing and rarely visits the property. Approximately one half of Ducktail Marsh is woods and marsh land, and the other one half is quicksand and unusable. Eventually, Ollie plans to remove the quicksand, 
drain the marsh, and build a retirement home. Several years after Ollie inherited the property, Graham gave Buchanan a forged deed to Ducktail Marsh. Buchanan paved an access road, cleared several acres of trees, and moved a modest trailer propped on cement blocks onto the property. For the last ten years, Buchanan has visited the property frequently during the summer and fall for hunting and fishing, and he always stays in the trailer. The limitations period for ejectment in this jurisdiction is five years. Explain whether Buchanan can claim title to Ducktail Marsh by adverse possession. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 186 Chapter 5, Acquisition without Transfer G Adverse Possession and Property Boundaries One of the more active and controversial areas of adverse possession law involves the boundary between neighboring property owners. If one owner builds a structure that crosses the property line by a small amount, can adverse possession transfer ownership after the statutory period? What if no one realizes that a mistake was made? The issue is implicated under a number of elements in the adverse possession test. The following case addresses this issue. Think about whether you agree with the court's approach. Manilo v. Gorski 54 NJ 378, 1969, Hainman, Justice. Plaintiffs filed a complaint in the Chancery Division seeking a mandatory and prohibitory injunction against an alleged trespass upon their lands. Defendant counter claimed for a declaratory judgment which would adjudicate that she had gained title to the disputed premises by adverse possession under NJS 2A 14-6, NJSA, which provides, every person having any right or title of entry into real estate shall make such entry within 20 years next after the accrual of such right or title of entry or be barred therefrom thereafter. After plenary trial, judgment was entered for plaintiffs. Defendant appealed to the appellate division. Before argument there, this court granted defendant's motion for certification. The facts are as follows, in 1946, defendant and her husband entered into Posse's Zion of premises in Keensburg known as lot number 1007 in block 42, under an agreement to purchase. Upon compliance with the terms of said agreement, the seller conveyed said lands to them on April 16, 1952. Defendant's husband thereafter died. The property consisted of a rectangular lot with a frontage of 25 feet and a depth of 100 feet. Plaintiffs are the owners of the adjacent lot 1008 and block 42 of like dimensions, to which they acquired title in 1953. In the summer of 1946 Chester Gorski, one of the defendant's sons, made certain additions and changes to the defendant's house. He extended two rooms at the rear of the structure, enclosed a screened porch on the front, and put a concrete platform with steps on the west side thereof for use in connection with a side door. These steps were built to replace existing wooden steps. In addition, a concrete walk was installed from the steps to the end of the house. In 1953, defendant raised the house. In order to compensate for the resulting added height from the ground, she modified the design of the steps by extending them toward both the front and the rear of the property. She did not change their width. Defendant admits that the steps and concrete walk encroach upon plaintiff's lands to the extent of 15 inches. She contends, however, that she has title to said land by adverse possession. Plaintiffs assert contrawise that defendant did not obtain title by adverse POS session as her possession was not of the requisite hostile nature. 
they argue that to establish title by adverse possession, the entry into and continuance of possession must be a.c. accompanied by an intention to invade the rights of another in the lands, i.e., a knowing wrongful taking. They assert that, as defendant's encroachment was not accompanied by an intention to invade plaintiff's rights in the land, but rather by the mistaken belief that she owned the land, and that therefore an essential requisite to establish title by adverse possession, i.e., an intentional tortious taking, is lacking. The trial court concluded that defendant had clearly and convincingly proved that her possession of the 15-inch encroachment had existed for more than 20 years before the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Adverse Possession 187 Institution of this suit and that such possession was exclusive, continuous, uninterrupted, visible, notorious, and against the right and interest of the true owner. There is ample evidence to sustain this finding except as to its visible and notorious nature, of which more hereafter. However, the judge felt impelled by existing New Jersey case law, holding as argued by plaintiffs above, to deny defendants' claim and entered judgment for plaintiffs. The first issue before this court is, therefore, whether an entry and continuance of Posse's Zion under the mistaken belief that the possessor has title to the lands involved, exhibits the requisite hostile possession to sustain the obtaining of title by adverse possession. The first detailed statement and acceptance by our then highest court, of the principle that possession as an element of title by adverse possession cannot be bottomed on mistake, is found in Folkman v. Myers, 93n.j.eq. 208, E&A 1921, which embraced and followed that thesis as expressed in Myers v. Folkman, 89 NJL 390, Supreme Court 1916. It is not at all clear that this was the common law of this state prior to the latter case. An earlier opinion, Davik v. Neelan, 58 NJL 21, Supreme Court 1895, held for an adverse possessor who had entered under the mistaken belief that he had title without any discussion of his hostile intent. However, the court in Myers v. Folkman, distinguished Davik from the case then under consideration by referring to the fact that Charles R. Myers disclaims any intent to claim what did not belong to him, and apparently never asserted a right to land outside the bounds of his title asterisk asterisk star. The factual distinction between the two cases, according to Myers, is that in the later case there was not only an entry by mistake but also an articulated disclaimer of an intent by the entrant to claim title to lands beyond his actual boundary. Folkman, although apparently relying on Myers, eliminated the requirement of that decision that there be expressed an affirmative disclaimer, and expanded the doctrine to exclude from the category of hostile possessors those whose entry and continued possession was under a mistaken belief that the lands taken were embraced within the description of the possessor's deed. In so doing, the former Court of Errors and Appeals aligned this state with that branch of a dichotomy which traces its genesis to Preble v. Main Cent Arco. 85 me 260, sub.jud.ct 1893, and has become known as the main doctrine. In Preble, the court said, there is every presumption that the occupancy is in subordination to the true title, and, if the possession is claimed to be adverse, the act of the wrongdoer must be strictly construed, and the character of the possession clearly shown. The intention of the possessor to claim adversely, says Mellon, C.J., is an essential ingredient in disseason. And in Worcester v. Lord, the court says, to make a disseason in fact, 
there must be an intention on the part of the party assuming possession to assert title in himself. It must be an intention to claim title to all land within a certain boundary on the face of the earth, whether it shall even truly be found to be the correct one or not. If, for instance, one in ignorance of his actual boundaries takes and holds possession by mistake up to a certain fence beyond his limits, upon the claim and in the belief that it is the true line, with the intention to claim title, and thus, if necessary, to acquire title by possession up to that fence, such possession, having the requisite duration and continuity, will ripen into title. If, on the other hand, a party through ignorance, inadvertence, or mistake occupies up to a given fence beyond his actual boundary, because he believes it to be the true line, but has no intention to claim title to that extent if it should be as certain that the fence was on his neighbor's land, an indispensable element of adverse possession is wanting. In such a case the intent to claim title exists only upon the condition that the fence is on the true line. The intention is not absolute, but provisional, and the possession is not adverse. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 188 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer This thesis, it is evident, rewards the possessor who entered with a premeditated and pre-designed hostility the intentional wrongdoer and disfavors an honest, mistaken entrant. The other branch of the dichotomy relies upon French v. Pierce, 8 Con 439, Supreme Court Con 1831. The court said in Pierce on the question of the subjective hostility of a possessor, into the recesses of his, the adverse claimant's, mind, his motives, or purposes, his guilt or innocence, no inquiry is made. Asterisk 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 the very nature of the act, entry and possession, is an assertion of his own title, and the denial of the title of all others. It matters not that the possessor was mistaken, and had he been better informed, would not have entered on the land. 8 Con. At 442, 445 to 446. The main doctrine has been the subject of much criticism in requiring a knowing wrongful taking. The criticism of the main and the justification of the Connecticut branch of the dichotomy is well stated in 6 Powell, Real Property, 1969, 1015, pages 725 to 28. Do the facts of his possession, and of his conduct as if he were the owner, make immaterial his mistake, or does such a mistake prevent the existence of the prerequisite claim of right? The leading case holding the mistake to be of no importance was French v. Pierce, decided in Connecticut in 1831. This viewpoint has gained increasingly widespread acceptance. The more subjectively oriented view regards the mistake as necessarily preventing the existence of the required claim of right. The leading case on this position is Preble v. Main Central RR, decided in 1893. This position is still followed in a few states. It has been strongly criticized as unsound historically, inexpedient practically, and as resulting in better treatment for a ruthless wrongdoer than for the honest landowner. Asterisk 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 on the whole the law is simplified, in the direction of real justice, by a following of the Connecticut leadership on this point. We are in accord with the criticism of the main doctrine and favor the Connecticut doctrine for the above quoted reasons. As far as can be seen, overruling the former rule will not result in undermining any of the values which stare decisis is intended to foster. The theory of reliance, 
a cornerstone of stare decisis, is not here apt, as the problem is which of two mistaken parties is entitled to land. Realistically, the true owner does not rely upon entry of the possessor by mistake as a reason for not seeking to recover possession. Whether or not the entry is caused by mistake or intent, the same result eventuates the true owner is ousted from possession. In either event his neglect to seek recovery of POS session, within the requisite time, is in all probability the result of a lack of knowledge that he is being deprived of possession of lands to which he has title. Accordingly, we discard the requirement that the entry and continued possession must be accompanied by a knowing intentional hostility and hold that any entry and POS session for the required time which is exclusive, continuous, uninterrupted, visible, and notorious, even though under mistaken claim of title, is sufficient to support a claim of title by adverse possession. However, this conclusion is not dispositive of the matter sub judice. Of equal importance under the present factual complex, is the question of whether defendants' acts meet the necessary standard of open and notorious possession. It must not be forgotten that the foundation of so-called title by adverse possession is the failure of the true owner to commence an action for the recovery of the land involved, within the period designated Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Adverse Possession 189 by the Statute of Limitations. The justifications for the doctrine are aptly stated in 4 Tiffany, Real Property, 3d ed 1939, as follows, the desirability of fixing, by law, a definite period within which claims to land must be asserted has been generally recognized, among the practical considerations in favor of such a policy being the prevention of the making of illegal claims after the evidence necessary to defeat them has been lost, and the interest which the community as a whole has in the security, of title. The moral justification of the policy lies in the consideration that one who has reason to know that land belonging to him is in the possession of another, and neglects, for a considerable period of time, to assert his right thereto, may properly be penalized by his preclusion from thereafter asserting such right. It is, apparently, by reason of the demerit of the true owner, rather than any supposed merit in the person who has acquired wrongful possession of the land, that this possession, if continued for the statutory period, operates to debar the former owner of all right to recover the land. In order to afford the true owner the opportunity to learn of the adverse claim and to protect his rights by legal action within the time specified by the statute, the adverse possession must be visible and notorious. In 4 Tiffany at 291, the character of possession for that purpose, is stated to be as follows. Asterisk, 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 it must be public and based on physical facts, including known and visible lines and boundaries. Acts of dominion over the land must be so open and notorious as to put an ordinarily prudent person on notice that the land is in actual possession of another. Hence, title may never be acquired by mere possession, however long continued, which is surreptitious or secret or which is not such as will give unmistakable notice of the nature of the occupant's claim. Generally, where possession of the land is clear and unequivocal and to such an extent as to be immediately visible, the owner may be presumed to have knowledge of the adverse occupancy. In Falk v. Bond, 41 NJL 527, 545, E and A 1879, the court said, Notoriety of the adverse claim under which possession is held, is a necessary constituent of title by adverse possession, 
and therefore the occupation or possession must be of that nature that the real owner is presumed to have known that there was a possession adverse to his title, under which it was intended to make title against him. However, when the encroachment of an adjoining owner is of a small area and the fact of an intrusion is not clearly and self-evidently apparent to the naked eye but requires an on-site survey for certain disclosure as in urban sections where the division line is only infrequently delineated by any monuments, natural or artificial, such a presumption is fallacious and unjustified. The precise location of the dividing line is then ordinarily unknown to either adjacent owner and there is nothing on the land itself to show by visual observation that a hedge, fence, wall, or other structure encroaches on the neighboring land to a minor extent. Therefore, to permit a presumption of notice to arise in the case of minor border encroachments not exceeding several feet would fly in the face of reality and require the true owner to be on constant alert for possible small encroachments. The only method of certain determination would be by obtaining a survey each time the adjacent owner undertook any improvement at or near the boundary, and this would place an undue and inequitable burden upon the true owner. Accordingly we hereby hold that no presumption of knowledge arises from a minor encroachment along a common boundary. In Semeraro, Introduction to Property 190 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer Such a Case only where the true owner has actual knowledge thereof may it be said that the possession is open and notorious. It is conceivable that the application of the foregoing rule may in some cases result in undue hardship to the adverse possessor who under an innocent and mistaken belief of title has undertaken an extensive improvement which to some extent encroaches on an adjoining property. In that event the situation falls within the category of those cases of which Riggle v. Skill, 9n.j.super. 372, CHDIV 1950, is typical and equity may furnish relief. Then, if the innocent trespasser of a small portion of land adjoining a boundary line cannot without great expense remove or eliminate the encroachment, or such removal or elimination is impractical or could be accomplished only with great hardship, the true owner may be forced to convey the land so occupied upon payment of the fair value thereof without regard to whether the true owner had notice of the encroachment at its inception. Of course, such a result should eventuate only under appropriate circumstances and where no serious damage would be done to the remaining land as, for instance, by rendering the balance of the parcel unusable or no longer capable of being built upon by reason of zoning or other restrictions. We remand the case for trial of the issues. 1. Whether the true owner had actual knowledge of the encroachment, 2. If not, whether plaintiffs should be obliged to convey the disputed tract to defendant, and, 3. If the answer to the latter question is in the affirmative, what consideration should be paid for the conveyance? The remand, of course, contemplates further discovery and a new pretrial. Notes and Questions 1. In addition to adverse possession, Courts have resolved boundary disputes between neighbors using other doctrines that solidify interests more quickly than the statute of limitations would normally allow. Three doctrines that have been employed are, a doctrine of agreed boundaries resolves uncertainty between neighbors by allowing them to enforce an oral agreement that they have relied upon for an extended period. B doctrine of acquiescence allows the parties to cite extended acquiescence in a boundary for less than the statute of limitations for ejectment as evidence of an agreed boundary. C doctrine of estoppel prevents a neighbor from challenging a boundary where that neighbor by word or action indicated an acceptance of the boundary and another neighbor changed position in reliance on those words or actions. 
The doctrine may also apply where one neighbor remains silent in the face of expenditures by another neighbor in reliance on an existing perceived boundary. 2. Should Manilow's knowledge requirement be subjective or objective? Although requiring that a neighbor have actual knowledge of an adverse encroachment on her property in a boundary dispute can be justified, think about a case in which a reasonable person would notice the boundary infraction but a particular neighbor, through indifference or willful blindness, never did. 3. There are no clear rules with respect to relief in cases where neighbors innocently build over the property line. Where intentional trespass is shown, the courts will virtually always require the trespasser to remove the encroaching structure. At common law, the rule was the same for innocent encroachments as well. Now, however, the courts are more flexible. The court may choose to, i, ignore trivial encroachments, to, force a sale of the property encroached upon from the owner to the improver, or, 3, give the owner the option to buy the improvement. See Golden Press, Inc. v. Rylands, 235p.2d592, Colorado 1951. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Adverse Possession 191 Adverse Possession Essay Questions 1. Oksana owned a small apartment complex consisting of 10 two-bedroom units, the apartment complex. Ophelia owns a piece of commercial property that houses a pet shop and that borders the apartment complex owned by Oksana. On January 1, 1985, Ophelia notified Oksana that she was building a new entrance to the parking lot of the pet shop. This parking lot abutted the parking lot for the apartment complex. In her letter to Oksana, Ophelia wrote, Even though I am constructing this entryway entirely on my own property, I will give your tenants permission to use it to enter the parking lot of the apartment complex. I am proposing this because I believe that our properties will look better and be more valuable if we share a single entry. Oksana agreed. Ophelia built the new entryway, and Oksana's tenants began to use it. Although Ophelia had represented that the new entryway was on her property, the entryway in fact was built six feet inside of Oksana's property. An observer could readily see that the new entryway had been built across the borderline of the two parcels because of a pre-existing fence that divided the property. But Oksana never noticed. The statute of limitations for ejectment actions is 20 years. Beginning in 1985 through the present, describe the state of the title of the property belonging to Oksana in 1985 on which Ophelia constructed the new entryway. Explain when, if ever, the interests changed and how. 2 at 666 Horror Street stands a rundown home that has been vacant for the last 22 years. Within two years of being vacated, the house became so rundown that it violated numerous provisions of the housing code and was unfit for habitation. 18 years ago, a group of students from the local high school honor society began using the house for a Halloween haunted house attraction. The students dressed up as ghouls, witches, and goblins and haunt the house, and they sold tickets that entitled the holder to walk through the house. The students never asked anyone's permission to use the house. But, no one has told them to stop. After all, the house's state of disrepair prevented it from being used for anything else. The Honor Society regularly used the house for approximately three weeks each October for the Haunted House Project. The house has remained vacant for the remainder of each of those years. 
Although the officers of the Honor Society have run the haunted house for 18 years in a row, no individual student participated in the haunted house project for more than two years in a row. The student's teacher and advisor, Mr. Ambrose, however, has been involved with the project each year, always dressed as a warlock. When the students first began using the house, it was owned by Ozma O'Bannon, who entered a nursing home when she left the house 22 years ago. At the time, she was suffering from Alzheimer's disease and continued to suffer from the disease until she died in the nursing home 14 years ago. Ozma had taken title to the property at 666 Horror Street 25 years ago when her older brother, Matthias O'Bannon, left her a life estate in the property. His will read, I leave my property at 666 Horror Street to my sister Ozma O'Bannon for life, then to Hugh, Fred and Constance. Hugh died 21 years ago, without a will and with no heirs, under the state's intestacy laws. Fred died 20 years ago, leaving his entire estate to Bill Gates. Constance has been living a cloistered life in a monastery in Mongolia for the past 32 years and has no idea that she has any interest in the Horror Street property. During a high school introduction to law program, Sam, the current president of the Honor Society, heard that the state's statute of limitations to file an ejectment action is 15 years. Sam asked his father if Mr. Ambrose might actually be the owner of the old house Semeraro, Introduction to Property 192 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer at 666 Horror Street because he has supervised the Honor Society's use of the haunted house each Halloween for the past 18 years. Sam's father, to encourage his son's interest in law, took Sam to your law office and has agreed to pay your hourly rate for you to explain thoroughly the various interests in the property to Sam. Address any property rights that Mr. Ambrose has or may acquire by virtue of his use of the property at 666 Horror Street as a haunted house, and explain what steps he would need to take to maximize his chances of successfully obtaining title. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Adverse Possession 193 Finders and Adverse Possession Practice Multiple Choice Each of the eight multiple choice questions relate to the following fact pattern. Owen holds a 25-year lease on the warehouse. Larry holds a reversion. Owen has never taken possession of the warehouse and 24 years remain on the lease. Arvid has taken possession of one half of Owen's warehouse, storing musical equipment that he rents out. Arvid delivered the equipment during daylight hours, and he regularly picks up and drops off equipment between 4 p.m. and midnight. Arvid has not taken possession of the other one half of Owen's warehouse and Owen has no knowledge of Arvid's use of the warehouse. One which element if any would block Arvid from taking a property interest in the entire warehouse by adverse possession. A continuity because Arvid does not use the warehouse as his primary residence. B. Exclusivity because Arvid uses only one half of the warehouse. C. Actual entry, unless Arvid has color of title. D. Adverse and hostile, because Arvid did not believe he owned the unused portion of the warehouse. 2. If Arvid hired Blaine to help him with his musical equipment and Blaine only acted as per Arvid's explicit instructions, would Blaine be adversely possessing the warehouse? A. Yes, as long as Blaine actually enters the warehouse. B. Yes, because Blaine has Arvid's permission. C. No because Blaine shares possession with Arvid and thus doesn't have exclusive possession. D. No, 
because Blaine's possession is not adverse and hostile under the objective facts test. 3. If Owen is in prison, would that impact the running of the adverse possession statute? A. Yes, it would toll the statute while he is in prison. B. Yes, but only if Owen was in prison on the day Arvid entered and less than 10 years remained when Owen got out. C. No, so long as Owen knew of Arvid's adverse possession. D. No, so long as reasonable people in the area knew of Arvid's possession. 4. If Arvid sold his musical equipment business to Blaine and Blaine continued to use the warehouse, which doctrine would be relevant to the adverse possession period? A. Tacking B. Color of Title C. Disabilities D. Transfer of Ownership Semeraro, Introduction to Property 194 Chapter 5, Acquisition without Transfer 5 What interest would Arvid receive if he possessed the property for the entire adverse possession period before Owen's lease expired? A. Fee simple absolute. B. The remainder of Owen's 25-year lease. C. Fee simple subject to condition subsequent. D. Nothing because adverse possession does not apply to leased property. 6. If Blaine found a diamond ring on the floor behind the sink in the washroom of the warehouse while working there with Arvid, what type of property would the ring be? A. Lost B. Mislaid C. Abandoned D. Treasure Trove 7. If neither Arvid nor Owen owned the ring that Blaine found, who among Arvid, Owen, and Blaine would have superior rights in the ring at the time it was found? A. Blaine because he found it. B. Owen because he owns the warehouse. C. Arvid, so long as Blaine found the ring during the course of his employment. D. None of the three because found property must be turned over to the authorities for 60 days. 8. Assuming that Owen held only a leasehold interest in the property, and Blaine, A found a ring wedged in the ground along the pathway to the warehouse, b, when acting outside the scope of his employment, c, after the adverse possession period had run against Owen's lease, and, d, two days after Owen's lease ended. Who would have superior rights in the ring? a. Owen b. Arvid c. Larry d. Blaine Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3 Acquisition through Creation 195-3 Acquisition through creation for centuries, the law has recognized that one may obtain property rights in his own creations. With respect to chattels, legal questions rarely arise because one most often purchases the raw materials used to create a chattel. In some cases, however, property rights may accrue in the creator of a chattel even though the raw materials belong to another, and these situations have led to disputes. In appropriate cases, a doctrine known as accession has been applied to award ownership rights to the creator, rather than the original owner of the raw materials, whenever the value of the property increases substantially. Ray Andrews Brown, The Law of Personal Property 24 at 53, 2 ed 1955. For example, by converting lumber into barrel hoops, and thereby increasing the lumber's value 28 times, a laborer was awarded property rights in the barrel hoops. Weatherby v. Green, 22 Michigan 311, Michigan 1871. Under modern law, intangible creations are generally protected by statutory forms of intellectual property law such as patent, copyright, and publicity or by common law recognition, such as in the case of trade secrets. Trademarks have also come to convey property rights in some cases. Issues arising with respect to the creation of intellectual property rights are also quite varied and interesting. 
multiple courses in the law school curriculum are dedicated to these complex property-related issues. This section, however, merely introduces the concepts driving the law's recognition of property rights in entangibly creations. In some situations, the law recognizes property rights that are more limited in scope than property rights in land or chattels. In the following cases, try to identify the factors influencing the court in its decision to recognize, and limit, property rights. A property rights in ducks attracted to a decoy pond Keeble v. Hickeringil 11 East 574, 103 ENG Republic 1127, 1707, an action on the case lies for discharging guns near the decoy pond of another, with design to damnify the owner by frightening away the wild fowl resorting thereto, by which the wild fowl were frightened away and the owner damnified. Holt, Chief Justice, I am of opinion that this action doth lie. It seems to be new in its instance, but is not new in the reason or principle of it. For, first, this using or making a decoy is lawful. 2 dly. This employment of his ground to that use is profitable to the plaintiff, as is the skill and management of that employment. As to the first, every man that hath a property may employ it for his pleasure and profit, as for alluring and procuring decoy ducks to come to his pond. To learn the trade of seducing other ducks to come there in order to be taken is not prohibited either by the law of the land or the moral law, but it is as lawful to use art to seduce them, to catch them, and destroy them for the use of mankind as to kill and destroy wild fowl or tame cattle. Then when a man useth his art or his skill to take them, to sell and dispose of for his profit, this is his trade, and he that hinders another in his trade or livelihood is liable to an action for so hindering him. Why otherwise are scandalous words spoken of a man in his profession actionable, when without his profession they are not so? Though they do not affect any damage, yet are they mischievous in themselves and therefore in their own nature productive of damage, and therefore an action lies against him. Such are all words that are spoken of a man to disparage him in his trade, that may bring damage to him, though they do not charge him with any crime that may make him obnoxious to punishment, as to say a merchant is broken, or that he is failing, or is not able to pay his debts, all the cases there put. How much more, when the defendant Semeraro, Introduction to Property 196 Chapter 5, Acquisition without transfer doth an actual and real damage to another when he is in the very act of receiving profit by his employment. Now there are two sorts of acts for doing damage to a man's employment, for which an action lies, the one is in respect of a man's privilege, the other is in respect of his property. In that of a man's franchise or privilege whereby he hath a fair, market, or ferry, if another shall use the like liberty, though out of his limits, he shall be liable to an action, though by grant from the king. But, therein is the difference to be taken between a liberty in which the public bath a benefit, and that wherein the public is not concerned. The other is where a violent or malicious act is done to a man's occupation, profession, or way of getting a livelihood, there an action lies in all cases. But if a man doth him damage by using the same employment, as if Mr. Hickeringil had set up another decoy on his own ground near the plaintiff's, and that had spoiled the custom of the plaintiff, no action would lie, because he had as much liberty to make and use a decoy as the plaintiff. This is like the case of one schoolmaster who sets up a new school to the damage of an antient sick school, 
and thereby the scholars are allured from the old school to come to his new. The action was held there not to lie. But suppose Mr. Hickeringil should lie in the way with his guns, and fright the boys from going to school, and their parents would not let them go thither, sure that schoolmaster might have an action for the loss of his scholars. A man bath a market, to which he bath toll for horses sold, a man is bringing his horse to market to sell, a stranger hinders and obstructs him from going thither to the market, an action lies, because it imports damage. Action upon the case lies against one that shall by threats fright away his tenants at will. Trespass was brought for beating his servant, whereby he was hindered from tacking his toll, the obstruction is a damage, though not the loss of his service. There was an objection that did occur to me, though I do not remember it to be made at the bar, which is, that it is not mentioned in the declaration what number or nature of wild fowl were frighted away by the defendant's shooting. As in play years ease. Trespass quare clausum suum fregit, et Pisces sus sepit. After a verdict for the plaintiff, and entire damages, it was moved in arrest of judgment, that the declaration was not good, because it was not said of what nature, nor of what number the fishes were, which was held to be a fatal exception, not helped after verdict by the statute of Jeff Ailes. But indeed here is not the number stated. Now considering the nature of the case, it is not possible to declare of the number that were frightened away, because the plaintiff had not possession of them, to count them. Where a man brings trespass for taking his goods, he must declare of the quantity, because he, by having had the possession, may know what he had, and therefore must know what he lost. This is plain by several authorities. Trespass for beating and hindering his servant from taking and collecting his toll, objection that it is not said what quantity of toll he was to take, but that could not be known. Action upon the case because the defendant hindered him from taking toll of divers pieces of wool, and sheath not how many, yet the declaration was good. Trespass quare clausum fregit, et spinace suas ad valentum succidit. Exception was taken to the declaration because the number of the thorns was not mentioned, yet held not to be a good exception. Action upon the case, the plaintiff declared that the defendant killed divers cattle infected with the murin, and threw the entrails into the plaintiff's field, per quat diversa avaria of the plaintiff's interiorunt. After verdict, exception was taken in arrest of judgment, because it did not appear how many cattle of the plaintiffs did thereby perish yet judgment was given for the plaintiff, because there need not such certainty in an action upon the case, because the plaintiff is only to recover damages for them. Action on the case for hindering the plaintiff in taking the profits of his stewardship of such a manner, not shewing sick what the profits were, or how much they amounted to, it was never questioned but the declaration was good. The plaintiff in this case brings his action for the apparent injury done him in the use of that employment of his freehold, his art and skill, that he uses thereby. Secondly, says Mr. Solicitor, here is Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3. Acquisition through creation 197 Not the nature of the wild fowl stated, for wild fowl are of several sorts, ducks, teal, mallard and indeed all birds that are wild are wildfowl. It is true in the large signification of the word they are so, and also the word fowl comprehends all birds and poultry, but wild fowl are taken in a more restrained sense, pheasants and partridges are not thereby understood, for they are fowl of warren. Wild fowl are known in the law. 
The title of the statute is Against Destroying of Wildfowl. It recites that there hath been within this realm great quantities of wildfowl, as ducks, mallards, widgeons, teals, wild geese, and divers other kind of wildfowl, which is reasonable to be understood of that sort that do get their prey in that manner. The stat. Of 3 and 4 at 6, c7, which repeals that, of the 25 h8, takes notice of wildfowl, and hath the general word wildfowl, without coming to particulars. Therefore when the declaration is of wildfowl, it is not to be understood that sparrows, wrens, or robin redbreasts can be thereby included. Besides Flumenio v. Olookers in Littleton's Dictionary, are understood wildfowl, as being the only words in Latin that we have to express it. Lit. Diet. Tit. Wildfowl. And when we do know that of long time in the kingdom these artificial contrivances of decoy ponds and decoy ducks have been used for enticing into those ponds wildfowl, in order to be taken for the profit of the owner of the pond, who is at the expense of servants, engines, and other management, whereby the markets of the nation may be furnished, there is great reason to give encouragement thereunto, that the people who are so instrumental by their skill and industry so to furnish the markets, should reap the benefit and have their action. But, in short, that which is the true reason is that this action is not brought to recover damage for the loss of the fowl, but for the disturbance. So is the usual and common way of declaring. B. Property Rights in Hot News International News Service v. Associated Press 248 U.S. 215, 1918, Pitney, Justice, the parties are competitors in the gathering and distribution of news and its publication for profit in newspapers throughout the United States. The Associated Press, which was complainant in the district court, is a cooperative organization, incorporated under the membership COR Portions Law of the State of New York, its members being individuals who are either proprietors or representatives of about 950 daily newspapers published in all parts of the United States. That a corporation may be organized under that act for the purpose of gathering news for the use and benefit of its members and for publication in newspapers owned or represented by them, is recognized by an amendment enacted in 1901. Complainant gathers in all parts of the world, by means of various instrumentalities of its own, by exchange with its members, and by other appropriate means, news and intelligence of current and recent events of interest to newspaper readers and distributes it daily to its Justice Malin Pitney members for publication in their newspapers. The cost of the service, amounting approximately to $3,500,000 per annum, is assessed upon the members and becomes a part of their costs of operation, to be recouped, presumably with profit, through the publication of their several newspapers. Under complainants by laws each member agrees upon as summing membership that news received through complainants services received exclus semeraro, introduction to property table of contents chapter 3, concurrent interests 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 chapter 4, landlord tenant law chapter 4, landlord tenant 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 Chapter 4, 
Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 4, Landlord Tenant Chapter 5, Acquisition Without A Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer 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 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without Transfer